Greetings, and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here with you this Saturday afternoon, January 13th, 2024, to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be... And once again, a very happy new year to all. We just celebrated our new moon on Thursday. So we call forth an abundance of blessings for one and all. We begin by going into our heart center. Going into the center of your sacred heart. We call forth at this time the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being, true to our God presence and goddess presence. See yourself in your mighty pillar of light fully anchored directly to source and directly to the heart of Mother Earth, filled with a beautiful rainbow white light that brings everything that we could need or desire. Relax and let it enter into every cell and fiber of your being. We invite in all of humanity to join us in this sacred ascension work as we say the following prayer. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And see, sense, and feel yourself connecting heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart with everyone on the planet. As we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. We invite in for everyone, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, 
in all of the kingdoms of nature. We welcome the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels, through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome our beloved friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so very closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, from Lyra and beyond, and all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service at this time. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it in divine order. 999 billion times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all ascension waves, and with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively, the maximum that we can receive through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally, and through the conscious, subconscious, superconscious levels of the mind. We ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss. We did lose her. I'm not sure if we needed to. You want need me to get her back? Me. Okay. Yes. Turn up, Ronald. <sighs> uh, Don, I, I thought I heard her again, but yeah, you need to get her back. I don't think she knows that she got cut off. I don't know what that was about. Okay, everybody. Stay in the, stay in the heart. Uh, 
I was working on it. <laughs> Say that the energies are very high. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah we're just yeah, getting. We're I guess the weather might be affecting people's lines. I'm not sure. Maybe even ours. That could be. They're talking about serious snow and really cold. All right. We do have Cheryl back with us. All right, Cheryl. Pass the talking stick back to you, Cheryl. Okay. Greetings and blessings, everyone. We were in the middle of our meditation, and somehow I got cut off. So... Let's go ahead and expand our hearts as we proceed with our work. And we call in everyone from our circle of support from the very first name that created it. To every man, woman, and child, all of our family members and loved ones, all of our friends, our community members, we call in each and every business and corporation, each institution, each uh, locality, each and every nation, their government, and each and every military. We're going to focus our work tomorrow and Monday on government. But we do ask for the highest blessings for each and every aspect of government on federal, state, and local levels here and in each nation. And everything that we hold in our circle of support, we ask for assistance with the company of heaven to go ahead and hold the divine blueprint for perfection for the divine plan and we call in all of the energy people are focusing on. Generally, this is a lot of football and a lot of energy around the day and the 111 moon, the new moon, and the January full moon. We'll just call in all of that energy into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet for the raising of consciousness for one and all. And we call in Diane to receive all that we receive through her chakra from Meridian, each layer of her old field, multidimensionally, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, and through every ley line, line, through the grid system, the love grid, the light grid, the unity grid, all of the multidimensional grid system, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up this spiral of evolution, along with Gaia, 
and Gaia takes your rightful place as Freedom Star. We're going to work right now with the blue ray. See, sense, and feel that sapphire light entering around you, entering around the planet, filling everyone and everything with that ray of divine will, divine power, divine strength, divine protection, divine truth, and divine perfection. See it in and around you and the planet as we say, in the name of our Mother, Father, God, I call forth the blue ray of divine love of Archangel Michael to clear my path of all interference to the fulfillment of my divine plan as well as the divine plan for all of humanity. The expansion of my faith and my ascension in the light infuse my soul with the energies of divine will and surrender to my holy vessel. I ask for a golden dome of protection to be placed around me each day to repel any negative energy directed against me and the light for which I stand. I ask for your angels, the blue flame, your legions of blue flame angels to stand by my side by the power of your sword of blue flame. Cut me loose and set me free from all discordant energy in my world, in my home, in my work, in the city where I live. And as I ask for this, I ask for this for all humanity. I thank you for your endless love and service to humanity and to the earth. I thank you for your loving assistance in my own unique pathway. Work with all of the children and youth of this world. Help me and all of them to develop faith and trust in myself and in Mother, Father, God. Let blue lightning bombs of divine love bring cleansing and transformation within me and everywhere on earth. So be it, and so it is, beloved iron. Beloved I am presence, light of my soul. Beloved Omoria of the blue rain. Beloved Archangel Michael and your legions of blue flame angels. Infuse my soul all around me, a river of blue flame love. By the power of three times three, sustain and expand this love without limits. Let your protection take dominion over the earth and over every man, woman, and child on the planet. Protect the youth, the elderly, and the innocent. Consume within me and within the earth all that does not portray the divine will 
of our Mother Father God. Let love, freedom, and true knowledge of the divine be reestablished on earth now and forever. I am the I am. By all God's love, I know that I am the power and authority on earth to command life free and to return to wholeness everything on it. I call on the power of blissing love to establish the golden age of enlightenment and true brotherhood and sisterhood on earth. Let the victory of the will of our Mother, Father, God prevail on earth now. Let the flame of cosmic love and wisdom prevail on earth. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. See this blue ray permeating every fiber of life on earth. Take a nice deep As we call in the ray of divine love in its beautiful pink frequency. As we ask our mighty I am presence to help us integrate all of the quality. Breathe and receive, as we say, beloved presence of God, Goddess, I am. I humbly invoke within my being the expansion of your qualities of my love, wisdom, power, tact, compassion, patience, diplomacy, forgiveness, brotherhood, eternal youth, beauty, perfection, sustained joy, selflessness, devotion, freedom, tolerance, knowledge, and self-mastery. I ask for the ability to see each one of my fellow humanity as part of my greater self, to help each one to awaken to their true identity in God Goddess. I ask that I may help them with the fulfillment of their divine plan. I ask that I may develop my own talents to their highest potentials. I request that my emotional and mental bodies be harmonized, raised, and purified by the action of the violet fire and the ascension flame. I offer myself as an instrument of God, Goddess, to channel your many blessings to all life upon the earth that through me consciousness be raised and peace restored. May Mother, Father, God be magnified in an ever-expanding spiral 
of love and gratitude for the many blessings and opportunities for growth this life on earth offers. I accept your love and guidance with gratitude. I am now standing on earth, manifesting my full potential in God, Goddess. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we integrate this. Calling for Sandalphon and Gaia to assist in the full activation of what we have invoked. As we now invoke the cosmic light of ascension. Beloved glorious, I am presence, light of my soul. May the light of cosmic ascension and divine love be poured within my soul and into the earth like the light of a thousand suns to permeate the earth and to saturate her people and her many kingdoms. May all negativity, illusion, and karma be transmuted by this cosmic ascension light of God that never fails. May the great golden age of enlightenment, love, peace, brotherhood, and prosperity for all now be established upon our dear planet by the action of this great ascension light. By the authority of my beloved I am present, the light of my mother, father, God, and by the authority of the entire spirit of the great white brotherhood and sisterhood, I affirm, as a son or daughter of God, Goddess, I now declare that I am an authority on earth. I am calling for the action of the light of a thousand suns to now be released on this blessed planet for the immediate transformation of earth into the shining star that is her destiny and for the raising up of humanity into the eternal freedom in the realms of light and divine perfection. I request that the light that is needed to manifest the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven be released now without limit until all is ascended in the light and free. And so it is, beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. We call forth the radiant ascension flame, the white and the gold, to flood through us now. In the name of the victorious presence of God, Goddess, I am. I call to the masters of light from the entire spirit of the great white brotherhood and sisterhood. Beloved Goddess Purity, beloved Serapis Bay, and the brotherhood of the Ascension Flame at Luxor and Telos, 
beloved Queen of Light, and beloved angels of the radiant ascension flame. Flood every particle of life on earth with oceans and oceans and oceans of violet fire and ascension flame. Purify and raise the consciousness of all life and all kingdoms evolving here. Let thy flame blaze, illumine, and expand like the light of a thousand suns. Purify our minds, memories, and feeling world from all blockages and negativity. Purify our bodies from all diseases and weaknesses. Flood our world with the snow-white radiance of the ascension flame purity. Saturate and purify until we become crystal clear, transforming all we contact with the radiant flame of the ascension, radiant light of the ascension flame. Blaze the radiant ascension flame through us. Blaze the radiant ascension flame through us. Blaze the radiant ascension flame through us. Flood and saturate the earth with oceans of violet flame. Flood the earth with the radiance of the ascension fire. Cut us free to be with it in the realms of eternal freedom and infinite perfection now and forever. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. We now call forth the beautiful emerald ray as well as the golden ray to assist us in receiving our abundance. In the name of my beloved, I am present. And my beloved, Lord, myself, I call the lords of manifestation, angels of prosperity, Fortuna, goddess of supply, and lord of gold, to assist me now in manifesting all outer conditions in my life in God's perfect way, including my my true abundance, Charge, charge, charge into my life and use today all the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with ascended master wisdom and purity that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flame through my four-body system and expand without limit a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light to keep my life in perfect balance and harmony. I demand God's infinite protection and wisdom in all my financial endeavors. I demand to become a magnet of attraction, drawing to me all the wealth that I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth, to make my ascension, and to assist all of humanity to do likewise. I give thanks that it is done according to God's most holy will. I accept my abundance now 
with great love and gratitude. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And at this time, we call forth all of the ascended host to seal this work. Seal it in the violet flame. Seal it in the sapphire ray of divine will and protection and the golden light of Christ consciousness for ourselves, for each individual on the planet, and for Mother Earth and all life upon her. We give thanks for this opportunity to be of service And we give thanks for all of the blessings that we are continuously receiving. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your service and thank you for your understanding. We've had winds here in the metro Detroit area as well as snow, rain, and even some thunder snow where you could hear the thundering going on not too far away from me. I didn't hear it specifically, but it did take place not too far away from me. And so, as we, again, anchor heaven on earth, make sure that you're grounded back in your room, back in your body. And I thank you for your service. I would like to invite you to further service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. The calls begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. And we have about 25 minutes of greeting. We have a brief update from Taran Rama, and that at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our ascension work in earnest, the work of bringing heaven to earth through our prayers, our invocations, our visualizations, our activations. And we would love to have you join us at the teleconference call. Let me give you the main number to dial in on. It's area code 480-660-2224. Again, that's 480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND, 946-7441-POUND, every Sunday and Monday evening. In addition to that, there are local numbers. There are further national numbers or international numbers. You have conference.com has an app and you can get online 
with freeconference.com, I believe it's slash our access code number. But if you want that additional information, you can contact me. Just email me at Cheryl Crochet, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We'd love to have you join us and say you heard about the calls from the Saturday program. And I wish you infinite blessings during this month of January and for every month throughout the year of 2024. It's going to be a very exciting year. There is a lot going on. Stay grounded, stay centered, and be your Christ self. With love and gratitude, I pass the talking stick as we thank Karen Rama for their service. We thank Ranger for her service, and we pass this talking stick with every imaginable frequency with it. And a lot of fairy energy, dragon energy, a lot of elemental energy, and infinite blessings. I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbow. Thank you. I'll take that talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl, for your divine service as well. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are our listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. So I would like to give you an update on what it is we need for BBS Radio. Uh, For the last two weeks, we need $371 still. And um, we did get discounted for... For today and last Saturday, and that 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 should help us keep up abreast. And then it's two fifty nine a week for the next two weeks. After that, that's another five hundred and twenty coming up in the future. So if we could get caught up, that would be great. Here's how we we make a donation to our account at BBS Radio. If you want to go into your heart space and see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you'll see a schedule for the different programs for BBS Radio Station 1 and 2. uh, For Station 1, we have programs on Friday night at the 8 o'clock hour, and these are central times. And Thursday is the night at the round table with the panel. As you click on that icon there, and you find it in the menu listing, um, that'll take you directly to our account with DBS, and you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. And then on Fridays, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. There's a <clears throat> the icon there as you click on it, and you'll see that listing at the 8 o'clock hour, yes. So make that donation using your bank card. And for this program, it's listed at the 2.30 hour, the true history, history, and this area, and our galactic origins. Excuse me. And, um, yeah, so you can click on that icon and make a donation there. So that's how we get it done. So thank you for taking that action. (coughs) Sorry, I need a good drink, but I don't have one. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they need (coughs) money for their bills and living expenses. 
in Leslie, I'm sorry, $200 for their living expenses. So here's how we do that. Go to rainbowroundtable.net to access the, the link to the PayPal account. And there you can make that donation using your bank card. That that You'll find the donate link at the end of the menu or on the top bar. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, as you make that donation at PayPal, you can enter this uh, email address to do access the gifting option. That email is Koran, K O R A N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that eliminates the commercial charges, makes it a gift, as we are all friends and family here. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your donations. Um, as you're sending something, please let Rama know at Koran999 at Comcast.net. Let him know what you sent and when you sent it so he can plan accordingly. They need $200 for their living expenses. And that's about all they need this week. So we're grateful to be able to donate for their living expenses, food and gas and cat food and <clears throat> laundry and all those good things so thank you for your generosity thank you for your participation this way um yeah so as you're sending something let them know what you sent when you sent it at that his email coran999 at comcast.net and then as you need it the mailing address is ram d berkowitz r-a-m d berkowitz b-e-r-k-o-w-i-t-z Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, zip code 87567. I'll say it again, Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information, 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. And I'm passing this talking stick. And it's full of snowflakes still. <laughs> and it's got, but it's being warmed by all the dragon energy flames. And it's got unicorns and all the little people and lots of fairies and feathers. And greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. And thank you all at home. And um, we hope everybody gets enough rest. And we're glad to be here. And um, Rama wants to share some things with everybody about the status of our situation in the world? Um, I got a text message from Lady Nasternada, and she was traveling. She didn't tell me where. <laughs> Yet she said that um, what's going on in the Middle East Mr. Yahoo is pushing this right to the edge of the razor blade, and Biden is as well. And um, 
place of violent fire. They, I keep being told that there won't be any extinction level events, no nukes. And I'll say it again, that this drama playing out with Iran and the Houthis is all part of the deep state trying to stir the pot. And it's not pretty yet. All the angels, masters, galactic forces are here. And um, I wish I knew the hour. They're going to let us know. Yet we're going to see it. Your phone might act funny. You might see some stuff on there. People all over the planet are seeing things. And... The galactic forces are here. All the elements, earth, air, fire, water, ether, they're all here and they're being seen. This is how we shift this story. Because as it's being told to me, all the legends and stories around this planet are about these beings that live amongst us. And I heard something this morning about the fairies and how the fairies work with us big folks and the dwarves and the elves and pixies. All of these are the different angelic, divic realms that fully interact with the earth, air, fire, water, ether. It's how we have a, um, I would just say, a cosmic story and balance. And if you have ever seen the movie Maleficent, it's about this fairy lady who's like an elven queen and uh, it, it takes place in medieval times and um, she got betrayed by this orphan boy who later became a king and he tried to kill her. She ended up uh, inadvertently he went over the rainbow because of his anger. This is the biggest story going on right now. All we are saying is give peace a chance. I pass a talking stick. So, Jeff, you want to tell people what Lady Nana told you today? I, I did. <laughs> oh, in other words... Well, I didn't hear you say that part where Nana told you not to believe everything you hear on Twitter. Oh. <laughs> um, I saw something on Twitter, which is now X, and Elon Musk, whether he, you know, owns it or a group of corporate uh, stockholders own it or... No, he still owns it, Rama. Yeah. He but didn't I, lose all his billions yet. But I saw this... Um, tweet 
that said that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Mike Johnson, most of the administration were indicted for crimes against humanity and war crimes with what's going on in Israel. But I never saw it again, so I don't know how to find it. It's, you know, and uh, Lady Nada said, don't believe everything you read on Twitter. They can create fake stuff. This is part of the big deal. And um, blaze the violet fire. I passed the talking stick. Okay, well, um, I think we should just get started. I mean, okay. Um, there is a meaningful statement that Trump will be spending some hard ta- day, hard time in the prison system, right? C'est possible. Oh, I don't think he could handle it. That's my take. I got to turn it over to all that is. And the evangelicals are getting ready to blast the airway. So I guess we'll see what happens, won't we? Let's get started, sweetheart. Let's just get started with... Well, got to tell everybody. This is... Uh, Dr. Robert Gilbert, Sacred Geometry Secrets Revealed, Profound Ancient Healing Activation. Okay, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the USU podcast. In case we are new here, I'm Julie Riesler. I am so grateful to be your host. I'm so thankful you're here with me. This conversation, my soul friend, Oh my goodness. I am recording this actually after my uh, very, very profound conversation with Dr. Gilbert. I want to tell you a little bit about him, but I just want to share. This is one. I know it's a little longer. You're going to want to make sure you have time to listen to this, even if it's in sections. And about halfway through, he guides us through a very, very powerful practice. Um, so if you're able to be still or seated or lay down for that part, uh, I really highly recommend it. We will definitely have him back on the show. Um, we are going to get into all things sacred geometry and at a level that I've just never heard, uh, or learned about before. So I am super excited you're here. As always, let me tell you about Dr. Gilbert and then I'm going to just bring you right into the conversation. Dr. Robert Gilbert is has a multifaceted scientific and spiritual studies background. He is a former U.S. Marine Corps instructor in nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense, and he holds a Ph.D. in international studies. Dr. Gilbert has since 1985 conducted independent research into spiritual science to understand the non-physical basis of consciousness in the material world, drawing on the hidden initiation teachings and practices of great traditions worldwide. He also has extensively researched vibrational sciences and new energetic healing technologies. My friend, we got all into this. I cannot wait for you to hear. Dr. Gilbert holds the distinction of being the first non-Egyptian ever authorized uh, to teach the new science of biogeometry, 
developed by Dr. Ibrahim Karim of Cairo, Egypt. Biogeometry offers practical science applications of shape, sound, color, motion, angle, number, and proportion to harmonize life energy and benefit all living beings, as demonstrated at the Egyptian National Research Center in projects conducted conducted in the early 90s. Dr. Gilbert recently released a new series entitled Sacred Geometry and Spiritual Science on the Gaia Channel. That is where I saw him and thought he has to be here. Um, this series reveals many hidden patterns that guide and control our lives on Earth. Dr. Gilbert's organization is the Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies, which offers online training in holistic health and personal development. We will have all of that information at uh, the the show notes. And he also explains at the end of the show, the different offerings. Um, I just want to say thank you for being on this journey with me. I hope that you really just find the magic, the power, the beauty, the divinity in this conversation and realize all of what I just said is you, my friend. Well, Dr. Gilbert, I've got to say it is such an honor, such a gift to have you on this show. I fell in love with your sacred geometry and spiritual science series on Gaia. I literally, I'll share later that it, it, it was kind of funny. I would do my little solo infrared sauna and I would just watch and then do all of the, try to do the things you were teaching. And I'm like, He's got to be on the show. My listeners are going to love this and love you. So thank you for saying yes. Thank you for being here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I think before we, you know, diving into sacred geometry is a very large topic. Um, and before we even dive into that, I think for those who don't know you or the work that you, you know, have immersed yourself in, maybe just to share a little bit about your background, what what got you into this world of sacred geometry? How did you find yourself um, really diving into such an incredibly powerful realm? Thank you. Yes, uh, I think a lot of it comes out of my interest in the potential for developing human consciousness and energy and how that is related to practices and discoveries made in ancient times in the great spiritual traditions of the world uh, for the methods that they developed to be able to develop the human energy field further, to develop human consciousness to much, much higher levels. And as you're working with multiple different traditions, one thing that is incredibly helpful is to be able to understand what is the core pattern behind all these different traditions because they'll have different terminology they'll be approaching it from slightly different angles but if you understand the larger context of what they're working with then it's easy to put the different pieces together back into a coherent whole even though it's from different traditions with different ways of expressing what they're working with this also came into play when i was uh, a u.s marine corps instructor in nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare defense. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I began to, because I always like to understand things contextually. I can only understand things as a whole, going from the whole to the parts. And so as I was investigating modern nuclear, biological, chemical systems, which is really the foundation of biology, chemistry, and physics, 
I wanted to be able to have a method of seeing the larger picture that all this is coming out of. Because what tends to happen today, both in the way that people are taught mathematics and in the way that they're taught science in general, is it's so fragmented that it's like when we learn history, you, you in school taught a variety of different dates, but not how anything actually fits together. So as I began to work with this and got into more of the biology, chemistry, and physics, I found an overlap there with my studies in different spiritual traditions around the world that the exact same patterns that have been rediscovered in modern times through modern science and technology are the exact same patterns that were known and taught in ancient spiritual traditions, but in a much more holistic context. We've been very successful in modern times in applying these things in extremely practical, technological ways, but with very little understanding of the way that some of these technologies affect living beings in their consciousness and energy fields. And so to see this incredible overlap between what was taught often in very hidden circles thousands of years ago in spiritual traditions and what's been empirically rediscovered in modern research really got me on the trail of what today we tend to call sacred geometry. Uh, because sacred geometry, the way that I understand it, is really the study of all patterns. It's pattern information. And anybody who gets very advanced in any field understands it as pure patterns. But also, as I mentioned a moment ago, allows you to get information from multiple sources. And because you can see the pure pattern behind the individual expressions of that in different bodies of work, different traditions, you see how it all comes together as a whole. And so sacred geometry, if we really look at the term, it's sacred because it is a manifestation of the actual powers coming from higher non-physical realms. That's always been the understanding in spiritual traditions around the world. So that from these higher realms above the physical, literally the metaphysical and we could use a Western model of this, the modern seven planes model that got popularized by the theosophists in the last 150 years in the West. You've got the physical, you've got the vital energy level, which is called chi, ki, or prana in ancient traditions. You've got the astral level, which some traditions use to indicate both what in human beings is both the mental and emotional and mental function. But in other traditions, it's used just to express the emotional level of function. Then you've got the mental, then you've got the causal, then the spiritual, then the divine. And the divine is where everything is one. Everything is part of what physics would say is a unified field. But that's from a fairly externalized and not very humanized perspective. The unified field is literally unity between beings to the original source. And so if we understand sacred geometry as being in the beginning from the divine plane, an emanation of the thoughts and the mind of God, that's literally what it is. And that's what it was understood as in the ancient world. The thoughts in the mind of God, the unified source, the one that's behind every being that exists in the world today, all systems, then those thoughts in the mind of God go down through the plane levels and they then form the higher spiritual planes and worlds and beings and then come down 
into the formation of what human beings think of as karma on the causal plane level, and then moving into the structuring of the mind and the emotions, and then the formation of the energy body, then crystallizing into physical space as the actual physical form of a thing. So sacred geometry is understanding the larger spiritual context and sources of everything that exists in the physical world and the form in geometry that it takes to literally manifest that power in a stable way in space. Because that's what geometry is. It's patterns in space. We also have a kind of sacred geometry of time, which is patterns in time, which every human being is subject to with our life process coming from an infant up to an adult, then old age, then cycling off, going back through the incarnation process, coming back again, as is understood by most traditions around the world. And so that is really my take on sacred geometry, seeing that one-to-one relationship between a specific pattern rediscovered in modern times with uh, new science and technology and how that totally matched uh, the exact same pattern that was known in ancient spiritual traditions where they use it more for the development of consciousness and energy. And we tend to be applying it more externally today, but it's all the same pattern. So no matter what aspect of life you're working with, even things that we tend to think of as more qualitative, such as our emotional relationships and all these aspects of life, everything is really governed by sacred geometry. It's really the patterns behind things. Thank you. Thank you for that is just a really succinct and beautiful explanation. And to me, what comes to mind, and I, I am remembering when you talked about this, it, it's going back to that, that idea of unity, that everything and everyone has these essential building blocks, these patterns. It connects all of us. Um, can we talk for a moment? I feel like there's so much here. So I'm going to just try to pace us, but please like, go off on tangents um, for, for someone who is maybe newer to they've heard of sacred geometry. Um, maybe they've seen the flower of life symbol or some of these other symbols. Could we start with some of the basic patterns that, that you talk about? I know you start with kind of the first and then the set, like some of these basic patterns and what they represent. That might be a good place to start. Okay. So let's start with a very important concept which is that what we often think of as sacred geometry patterns today are in fact often a snapshot in a particular moment in time of a dynamic process of what my mentor, Dr. Ibrahim Karim, in the biogeometry system from Egypt refers to as the forming process. Mm. The forming process is where the energetic field becomes formed into the configuration that will allow the physical crystallization of a thing into a stable physical form. But things do evolve over time. So if you ask somebody, okay, what is the physical body of this particular human individual? It's like, well, at what age? At what point in the time cycle? It was very different when they were in the first couple of days of gestation in the mother's womb versus when they're 30 years old versus when they're 80 years old. It's constantly dynamically moving, but it's all based on the generation of shape information 
that allows consciousness and energy to express itself in a stable way on the physical plane. So this is also connected to the concept of a packed thought form. A packed thought form is the way that information is held and transmitted at higher levels above the physical. And so higher non-physical beings don't communicate in earthly language. Uh, earthly language is actually a very slow method and somewhat imperfect method of imparting information compared to the direct transmission of information from consciousness field to consciousness field, which is what happens at higher levels and is the way that, let's say, a highly advanced spiritual master would transmit information to a disciple or things of that kind in a classical tradition. So the pack thought form is the actual summary of a gigantic amount of information that in a spiritual transmission can be transmitted in an instant. And so that pack thought form can often be expressed through a pure geometric form. The geometric form is a kind of summary or crystallization of the pattern into space. Even if it's a pattern in time, that could be crystallized into a pattern in space that gives you a sense of what that unfolding pattern is. So if we have that as our foundation, what we'll find today that when people talk about sacred geometry, they often are referring to a very core set of patterns that are coming originally from Egypt. The Egyptians taught them to the Greeks. That's what the Greeks themselves said. You find this in the writings of Plato. And these sacred geometry patterns conveyed from the Egyptians to the Greeks became what was taught in the Pythagorean school of Greece. And that became the things like the Platonic solids and the Archimedean solids. And so these great ancient Greek initiates understood some of these spiritual patterns from the past. And so this leads us to patterns like the cube and the octahedron and the dodecahedron, and the icosahedron. Uh, these types of platonic solids are things that we often see represented today in terms of sacred geometry. And then they can take on slightly different forms. They can stellate or become a star form, or there can be more complex forms that take some of the shapes like a square from a cube and combine it with a triangle from a tetrahedron and then make other types of forms or a cube and an octahedron. You make what's literally called a cube octahedron with the Archimedean solids. Now, this has become popularized in modern times with a lot of kinds of uh, very trippy imagery that you'll see both in Hollywood productions if they're trying to represent something spiritual or non-physical, but also in EDM circles and uh, particularly around psychotropics and things of this kind. This type of imagery has become very, very popular, just like in the 1960s, like the paintings of Peter Max and these kinds of things became like a indication of the consciousness of the age with those kind of very brightly colored, somewhat cartoony images that were everywhere in the 60s, we're really moving into a time in which the sacred geometry imagery is just as fundamental. But we should be aware that sacred geometry really applies to everything, that there's a pattern to everything in existence. Again, even things that are we think of as non-physical, like the patterns of how we form and screw up our relationships with other people. Everything has a pattern. And what you find is that people who are the masters of any particular field is that they understand the pattern behind it. And then it becomes very straightforward to work with it until we know the pattern. We don't have any real freedom of choice, because if you don't know what your options are, if you don't know how a system works, 
then you don't really have any free will or free choice. You have to understand the entire pattern, the entire thing you're working with. So it gives us true freedom of choice. And it also gives us a power to work with the system co-creatively to apply for practical purposes. So again, what many people think of as core sacred geometry forms are things like cubes, tetrahedrons, octahedrons, things like this, uh, or some of these other types of what we would refer to as three-dimensional geometric forms of a very archetypal nature. Uh, because, for example, when people talk about platonic solids, we need to be aware that it's nothing other than the five perfect divisions of a sphere. So what often happens with sacred geometry work today is that people don't start at the beginning. They jump somewhere in the middle with a completed form and would say what the Greeks said, you know, that the cube is related to earth and the tetrahedron is related to fire, etc. But it's not clear to people why these are related to those elements. They're completely embodied in the geometry itself, why they're related to these elements of nature. And in working with these different uh, types of patterns, we can begin to get a, a sense of how the sphere is the primal pattern of all creation. So I always like to start with people like when I used to teach a seven day intensive in sacred geometry, starting at the very beginning and then moving into very complex patterns that create everything today, including in all scientific systems, as well as everything that rules our biological life, that when we would explore this, I always like to start with this idea of the seven planes. So the highest of these planes that is made very clear in the Egyptian biogeometry work from my friend and mentor, Dr. Ibrahim Karim, it is connected to the geometric form of an immaterial center. The center of everything is a literal transcendental gateway beyond space and time into the divine plane itself. And that has a specific energy quality <clears throat> that comes with it. And it's something called the BG3 in Egyptian biogeometry. It's a universal harmonizing and balancing force that's beyond polarity. Normally, when we deal with energies in esoteric metaphysical healing systems, it's in a yin and yang polarity. So to bring something back to balance that's unbalanced, if it's got too much yang, you add more yin to pull it that direction. If it's too yin, you add more yang to pull it that direction. But this idea coming from the ancient Egyptian temple science and restored to the world today through Egyptian biogeometry is that there is an actual energy quality of activating the balance point itself directly without adding any polarized energy, without going yin or yang. You're activating that balance point, that harmonizing uh, force in the thing itself, bringing it into its equilibrium. And so this is connected to the energy from the divine plane. The original, we could think of that as the original singularity, because the singularity is an immaterial point in the center that then has everything come out of it in modern physics. It's just a physics expression of the exact same concept in ancient Egypt and ancient spiritual traditions. And the, the movement from that immaterial center outward. So the center of the circle is this archetypal form that allows us to access the divine plane in its center. That's why if you go to ancient Egypt and you take a look at the, the artifacts we have from then, if you look at the ancient Egyptian ruler, you'll see that it has a series of divisions on it. In addition to the metric divisions they use to literally measure things, 
They also had on the ruler particular shapes, sacred geometry shapes that were related to the divine process of coming into manifestation from spirit on the ruler, which shows you how integrated the ancient Egyptian consciousness was with the movement from spirit to matter that created everything in physical space. So the first division of the Egyptian ruler is the classic point in the center of the circle glyph. And that's the hieroglyph for Ra'a, the netter of the sun. But we also see that the point in the center of the circle is used in modern Western work to represent things like the sun itself in astrology. It's used to represent gold in alchemy. It's used to represent the Godhead for the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. Again, these are packed thought forms. A point in the center of the circle is actually the point in the center of a sphere. And so from that emanating center, uh, from the divine plane, we emanate outward. And the archetypal form to create a separate system is that of creating a boundary where every point on the boundary is equidistant from the center. And so if you do that, it creates a sphere. The sphere is the perfect form where everything on the periphery is equidistant from the center. Now, if we then understand spiritually, which is what everybody leaves out these days and takes away any possibility of understanding what this really means, is that the center is the gateway to the divine plane, the original source point, and then it emanates outward to create the boundary in physical space of the physical world. So we have all these spherical forms in the human body with things in the blood and things like that. And we have spherical forms of planets. We have spherical forms of all kinds of things because it creates the perfect balance between the unified field divine plane energy of the center and its manifestation, creating a sealed boundary for a specific energy system to manifest in the physical space within with the spherical form. So if we understand that first, then we understand what the Platonic solids meant to the Greeks and the Egyptians, mm. because they are the perfect divisions of the sphere, the perfect boundary. But those perfect divisions of the sphere, there's only five of them. And only four of them were taught publicly by the Greeks, because the fifth one, the one that consists of 12 pentagonal faces, was considered to be too powerful, too dangerous to release to the public, because they said if it was ever to be misused, it would create tremendous destruction. And so, as you probably saw in my Gaia series, I described there how the form of the first nuclear weapon ever created in the Manhattan Project, if you take away the outer cladding of it, which makes it a sphere, you'll see that inside they have it formed to be a dodecahedron. The first nuclear weapon was a dodecahedron, the same form warned against by the Greeks that if misused could create tremendous destruction because the element that the dodecahedron connects to is the ether, the pure cosmic life force. And so this gives, I think, a sense of the stakes involved in this. This is not some type of abstract metaphysical woo type of thing. This is something as the foundation of incredible breakthroughs in modern science and technology, often misused. But again, the question was about what are some of these types of patterns we're talking about in sacred geometry? And so I'm just talking about some of the most core patterns. But again, everything has a pattern. Get a book like uh, General Chemistry by Linus Pauling. Even if you have no scientific background, doesn't matter. Open it up, take a look at it. And you'll see that every chemical compound, every element 
has a very specific geometric form. In fact, it's that geometric form in chemical analysis that makes it that chemical. Change the geometric form, you change the chemical that it creates, which changes its biological function. So this is the whole thing about translating energy into matter, energy into form. And the form becomes the literal crystallization of the energy power that can then be applied through the form. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I'm actually, um, was just laughing in my mind. My son just memorized the periodic table. The whole thing has a song about it. And we were talking about, he was talking about the different geometric, the different, the different shapes and forms of. And I'm afraid you're frozen on my end. Oh, no. Okay, now you're back. You're no, back, back. Oh, we're going with it. I don't know what that means okay. in the patterns of the geometry. <laughs> you're back. The airwaves are like, what's happening? Um, I was seeing my son memorize the periodic table for, for chemistry. And he, yeah. we were talking about the different, um, I, what we went to see the Manhattan Project. We were talking about the different, the different forms and, um, shapes. And I, there's so much here. I, I want to go back for a minute. Something you said I thought was just so powerful. You talked, you alluded to the spiritual meaning, you know, that often that's left out. We have the sphere with the center point and to really to dive into that spiritual meaning, maybe a little bit more as I look for those who aren't watching this, you have the beautiful spiritual awakening lit up behind your head, which I love. Um, yeah. And then I know you had also talked about the five divisions of the sphere, and perhaps we could go through those first four. I know the dodecahedron, I hope I said that right, is the fifth one. Um, but when when you said that with the spiritual meaning, what? how can we interpret this? I mean, I could think of ways, but from your experience, how can we look at this? This. I mean, I, I felt, honestly, Dr. Gilbert, as you were saying this, I felt like, energy in my body as you were talking about the center point i'm like my heart just felt like it was opening um it's so powerful i mean i could feel it almost brought tears to my eyes so i i feel like talking about that for a minute would be um would be helpful i think one of the best ways to really understand the power of the center is to understand it somatically to understand it in our bodies uh because i could say a lot of things about it on a more intellectual analysis level but yeah. to make it something visceral, uh, the things that I teach in my classes with this is what I refer to as zero point centering, where we can move our energy and attention into the center of the center of the center. And I want to give credit for this. I first learned this from the late French medical doctor, Samuel Sagan, who created the Claire Vision School of Australia mm. that I was an instructor for at one time quite a mm. few years ago. So I, I use slightly different terminology and slightly different ideas around it, but I always want to give credit to my sources. And so uh, there's this ability that we have that everything in manifestation is coming out of a center to create its manifestation in the physical world, and the energy is going then back into the center. And that is a microcosm of the larger macrocosmic process of how things emanate from the divine plane to physically manifest, and then they go back through the different planes to return to the center, to the divine plane. But this becomes an actual energetic practice that was understood in ancient traditions, and it is the key to activating any energy center in the human body. So, for example, if you put your attention at the Ajna center from the uh, Hindu tradition, then what you'll find is that 
if you move all of your energy and attention into the center of the center of the center of a place slightly inside the skull between the eyebrows, that you can activate a energy movement, again, as if your normal attention is going outside of you. Normally, to be able to operate in a physical world, our physical senses allow us to take our internal consciousness and to move it outward in somewhat of a sphere of attention around us. This is very well explained in things like Aikido, that our attention is like in a sphere of perception around us. So we're sending that all out to make sure we don't get, get hit by a truck when we're walking down the road type of thing. But that's because physical perception is based on the same pattern as physical creation, which is the movement outward from the center. Spiritual perception is the other part of this, which is moving inward Mm -hmm. from the periphery back into the center. And that's how we activate all latent spiritual powers in the human energy body. So if you put your attention slightly inside the skull between the eyebrows, like the formation of the frontal Ajna center, it does, it's part of a larger structure going backwards, but we'll leave that alone for right now. Then if you move all your energy and attention into the center of the center of the center of the center of what you feel in that third eye space, you'll go from normal physical perception, and usually you close your eyes so you can tune in internally. As you move into that center of the center, constant dynamic movement into the center, you become aware of the feelings of the etheric life body, our chi, ki, prana level. So rather than just perceiving things externally, you're starting to feel things in the body. Then you know that your level of awareness is at the etheric level, the chi, ki, prana. And the sensations that you have are things related to density, pressure, tingling, vibration. Those are the expressions of awareness at the life force level. And if you then go into the center of the center of the center, dynamically from all directions, moving your energy and attention inward to the center of whatever you're feeling there, then you'll go to the next level, which is the astral plane level. And the language of that plane, rather than the feelings of density, pressure, vibration, the language of that plane is the perception of light and color. Mm. And as we move into that level, we start to perceive light and color Some people are more visual with it, literally seeing light and color. And this is why people see this in psychotropic experiences. These centers are being activated through whatever that particular chemical they're ingesting is. And so we perceive things then in light and color. It may be pinpoints of light. It may be clouds of of light and color. And then there's further experiences beyond that until we keep going into the absolute center and we reach the divine plane. When we touch the divine plane and the absolute center, just through constant dynamic movement into the center of the center of the center, then once we touch that divine plane and the absolute center, it's like we flicked a switch internally. We activated something that was latent. And when we activate that by touching it with our own awareness and attention, through having gone into the absolute center of that energy structure in the body, then it reverses direction. It activates the light Mm. that is present in that energy center, and it then moves outward from the center to become a surrounding sphere. We're recreating this process in our own energy body. And you don't even have to like so much try to guide it to like become a sphere. It becomes a sphere automatically. It's just like that's what happens when the light pours out in all directions from a center. It's a natural thing to take place. So 
This is something that we can all experience inside of ourselves. And so we can use that to activate any energy center in the body. Mm-hmm. So not only what people think of as the seven chakras from the Himalayan tradition, but also all of the smaller energy points in the body that are called marma points in India and are called acupuncture points in uh, the Chinese Taoist tradition. You can put your energy intention into any of those centers and go into the center of the center, activate them, and then do what the Himalayan tradition calls taste the nectar. What's the quality of energy that's held in that place in our energy body? Every one of these energy points has a different power and function. In Sanskrit, each of the chakras have a different name related to their different functions and powers. Same thing for all the acupuncture points. They have different esoteric names based on their power. We can get in touch with that. We can taste that. We can feel that. We can activate it to become now active And that will have all types of effects for everything from physical healing to activating our latent spiritual potential. And at a higher level, we can actually even do this in other people's bodies. Mm -hmm. If we put our attention, our attention, our mind is not limited in space or time. If you have enough juice, if you have enough discipline, if you have enough training, you can put your energy and your attention on any point in space or time in the larger matrix pattern, and then create effects within it through the mind power. And so, for example, you could put your attention in another person's body in a particular location and move into the center of the center of the center, get in touch with what's present in that person's body at that energy center, and potentially also activate that energy center with the outward movement. If you're an energy healer and you know the right vibration, you could insert a particular vibration of a particular function into that energy center of their body. So that's a way that I like to introduce people to an extremely powerful spiritual skill. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important spiritual skills we can ever learn. But it's actually very simple and straightforward. You just have to practice it enough until it becomes second nature. And this gets in touch with what is that power of the center. Then in biogeometry, biogeometry teaches us to be able to amplify the energy coming from the center of any form that exists in the physical world, whether it's a living biological being or an abstract form. So Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of biogeometry, is an architect as well as an amazing natural scientist. And so he would understand how we could activate the energy in any building, in any construction, by activating the center. And so there's a lot of different ways to do that. I mean, that's why, you know, at this point, we used to do the foundation training in biogeometry in six or seven days. Now we do it I, I teach my online classes with that over a period of five weeks to give people enough time to get all that information. And the same thing with the advanced training. It's like another five weeks. And we're bringing Dr. Kareem to teach yet more pieces of the of these skills mm. uh, to the United States next March, in March 2024, uh, for people that have completed the advanced training. So, again, there's practical ways they understood in ancient traditions to activate that energy of the center which bounces and harmonizes all living energy systems, but in the form of the practice I just taught you a moment ago, which is not a part of biogeometry, but part of other systems, working with the same mystery from a different perspective, Mm. we can move into the center of any energy center in our body, activate it, and start to bring up the potential powers, or what they would call in the Himalaya siddhas, that come from these activated latent force centers in the body. I... 
I, I'm obsessed with what you're teaching and talking about because to me, this is, this is the natural, this is our birthright to be able to do this. And it's not something, I mean, I was not taught this in school. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, this is not taught to me. And I'm always obsessed with anything that, you know, for anyone listening right now can take this and learn and practice how to do this, that we all have this ability to, what I'm really hearing is just like the center point of a sphere known as the, the Godhead, the center, the, that incredible oneness, unity, healing power. That is when we focus and it could be anywhere, but maybe starting, like you said, in the center in the third eye um, to really, you keep focusing your attention that, that like you said, our mind is not, it's not dependent on space and time. I mean, I just, I almost wonder I don't know if you want to do this, but if we could even do a little practice session, I don't know if that's going to work, but just to help, I, I really feel the people, I'm such a beautiful community that, that listens here. That's part of uh, the USG family and community again. worldwide. Um, and we have a beautiful community. I know it froze for a second. I'm laughing at. Yeah, you're back. You're back now. I'm back. Yeah, but anything you, anything you said in the last five seconds, I missed. So it's all good. Yeah. Just saying we have an amazing global community. And I, I would love to give maybe just a moment, a, a few moments of inviting anybody as long as they're not driving to where we could practice this together with you. Because you said, you know, to me, I go into this is healing, like, and to be able to do this for ourselves. This is everything, you know, to have that power to do that ourselves Froze again. Okay. All right. I'm just laughing at the, uh, the energy. So funny. The energy here is so high, my friend. It's freezing. <laughs> can you hear me now, Dr. Gilbert? I can. I can hear you. All now, right. Yes. So we're going to, if we could do an, ex, um, an experience where people from wherever they're listening can, can join us so we can try this together and feel it. Would that work for you to guide, um, a short experience? Sure. Okay. Awesome. I can, I can do that. All right. Now, what I often do with people in, in teaching this, depending on the class that I'm doing, I sometimes have them do it on an external object. Like when I teach classes on the vibrational science of uh, of crystals and minerals, I'll have them get a particular type of stone. Today it's considered to be some type of wacky new age thing to think that stones have energy uh, or that like quartz crystal works to moderate consciousness and information. But that's always ridiculous that people think that because all of our modern computer systems are nothing other than silica quartz chips mm. that are able to hold and direct consciousness or information mm. in a particular stable way. People don't even understand the link between these things and modern technology. Mm. But what I'd have people do is I have them hold a stone or something and, and they'd go through the different layers of the stone until they touch the divine center. And then mm. that moves back outward and that activates the energy in the stone. So for simplicity, we're not going to do that here. I'm just giving you a larger context. What we're going to do is what I just described to you a moment ago. is the easiest to start in activating the centers by activating the frontal third eye, the Ajna center. And that's because we're a very mental culture. Yeah. So, you know, for people that are more heart-oriented, then activating the heart center may be easier. Or for people who are very physically oriented, Activating a center in the lower abdomen may be the easiest, but we tend to be a very mental culture, so we tend to start here. So what I'm going to invite everybody to do is just to close their eyes for a moment, take a few deep breaths into the lower abdomen, 
and with the inhale into the lower abdomen, I want you to relax so that your belly is expanding outward on the inhale. When you exhale, contract the abdomen and pull the navel toward your spine. So an actual physical contraction as you exhale, pushing the air out and contracting the muscles of the abdomen. And do this several times. On the inhale, the whole stomach bulges out. On the exhale, you pull the navel toward the spine and it pushes the air out. Do this a few times while relaxing all the muscles in your body. Make sure that you're relaxing the muscles around your forehead, around your eyes. Relax the muscles around your jaw, the muscles around your throat, muscles in your chest, particularly around the heart, including your back, which protects the back of the heart chakra. And we tend to hold tension there. Relax that area of the back and the front of the body around the chest. Relax the energy in the lower abdomen. Most people in our culture have chronically constricted muscles in the lower abdomen. So making sure that that's why we're expanding the stomach out on the inhale and contracting it on the exhale to make sure we're able to relax that and have it pulse and breathe and not be stuck and rigid the way that impedes the life energy in so many people today. Also, all of the muscles around the hips should be fully relaxed, including the buttocks. The muscles of your inner thighs need to be relaxed. People tend to hold that chronically constricted. Relax all these areas of the body and then return to normal breathing. Don't have to focus on your breathing at this point. Just keep everything relaxed. Sit up relatively straight wherever you are sitting at the moment in your chair. Tuck your chin in toward your chest slightly, and this will help to improve the alignment between your spine and the back of the head. And and not anything rigid. Stay relaxed, but just tuck the chin in toward the chest slightly so you can kind of feel almost an energetic click, like the spine and the back of the head are now aligned with an energy flow that's moving a little more smoothly. Now, from that preparation, the next thing I want to do is called the energy field awareness practice. Keeping your eyes closed, simply tune in to the feeling in and around your body so that you get a baseline of how your energy and consciousness is in its current state before we do the practice. That way you can tell the difference later. It's good to do this before any energetic or meditative practice. Just close your eyes, tune in to the feeling of energy in and around your body, and get a read on that so you can see the modifications the practice has. So once you've done that, how, what are you conscious of? What do you feel energetically around your head, rest of your body, around your body? Now keeping the eyes closed, I'd like you to please put your attention at the location between your eyebrows at the front of the skull. And then move your attention back just about half an inch just slightly inside the skull between the eyebrows. So this is the location of the Ajna center, what we call the third eye center in the West. And again, it's the the chakra that tends to be the easiest for most modern people to feel to begin with. So once you become aware of that location, I want you to consciously move all of your energy and attention into the center of where you have now placed your attention 
between the eyebrows, slightly inside your skull. So this is all a matter of being able to direct with the mind our energy field. So placing your attention slightly inside the skull between the eyebrows, make an energetic movement coming from all directions into the center of 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 that frontal third eye location. It feels almost like your attention is normally a great balloon around you, and now it's losing air. So it's contracting around its own center, and the boundary is moving in from all directions simultaneously toward that center. The sphere is contracting. The sphere of your attention is now contracting to a point at that location, slightly inside the skull between the eyebrows. As it contracts to the point, that's not the end, that's the beginning. You continue to move the contraction of that point into its own center. Constant dynamic movement of all your energy and attention into the center of the center of the center of the center of that point. The point is getting smaller and smaller. As we move into the next layer of this, you'll become aware that that location, slightly inside the skull, between the eyebrows, you'll now become aware of it in terms of vibration or tingling or pressure that you feel at this particular location inside the skull. And whatever you feel there through doing this practice, move into the center of the center of the center of the center of that place inside the skull, of that location where you have the feeling. As you keep moving dynamically into the center of the center of the center of what you feel there at the life force level, you're going to at some point of continually moving into the center, become aware either in an internal image of light and color, or if you're not visual, you may simply have a feeling of light and color appearing in this place on your mental screen, in this place in your forehead. So then keep moving all your energy and attention into the center of 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 this field of light and color. For those that see it, it may appear as pinpoints of light and color. Others may perceive it as moving dynamic clouds of light and color. doesn't really matter. Just keep moving into the center of the center of the center. But the light and color is the indicator that you're now at the astral level. Now, for time purposes, we're not going to go slowly through all the other levels. We're just going to keep going into the center of the center of the center and take the express train to the divine plane. So constant dynamic movement into the center of the center of the center of whatever you feel in that third eye space. And as you keep moving into the center of the center dynamically, it's almost now like there's a vortex pulling you into that center. But it's a vortex coming from all directions, pulling you into that center. At a certain point, you don't even have to try to do it anymore. It'll take its own energetic momentum and pull you deep into the center. That's going into the rabbit hole. And as you allow your energy and attention to go into that absolute center, at, when you touch that absolute center, that innermost point, that is the divine plane that is the source of the third eye space. And as you touch the divine plane of that absolute center, having touched the absolute divine plane center with your attention, it activates it. It's like throwing a light switch. 
And at this point, you can start to feel an automatic reversal of the energy coming out of that point between the eyebrows and flowing out in all directions. Become aware and allow that outward movement of light and energy out from the center in all directions and become aware as it streams outward, expanding the point to a larger sphere that completely surrounds your head with a golden radiance. It may have other colors present, but the core of it coming from the divine plane is always gold. And allow that golden radiance to create a sun of radiating light around your head from having activated that center, because often we use the term center in an abstract way, but it's an absolute center that we can activate and allow it to create that literal sun of energy around the head radiating outwards. Now, before you open your eyes, I want you to just keep focusing on that outward movement of the energy now streaming out of the center. We started by moving into the center to, until we reach the divine plane. Now in activating it, all the energy is streaming outward, the creation process back to the physical from the divine plane. Become aware of that streaming outward of the light and energy. And with your eyes still closed, become aware that that light and energy streaming out from that center will help to break up and dissolve and clear any blockages that are present within that movement range from that center to the radiating sun of energy around your head. That radiating sun clears up any types of samskaras, blockages, any types of dark areas within your consciousness or even within the physical structure of the head that need light and allow that radiant golden light streaming out to the sphere around your head, allow that to dissolve any of these dark blocked areas the exact same way that sunlight literally dissolves the dew on the plants in the morning to where it just vaporizes and disappears. See how bright you can make the light coming from the radiant sun around your head. You have an inner dimmer switch or an inner radiance switch that you can, with your attention, increase the luminosity of the light coming from the sun around your head. See how strong you can make the intensity of the energetic vibration of that sun around the head and how bright you can make the luminosity of the light coming out from the sun around your head, streaming out in all directions. And just increase the intensity of vibration and the luminosity of the light to whatever is your maximum comfortable point. And then I'm going to be quiet for just like 15 seconds and just tune in to the feeling of that radiance and the clearing effect from your having moved up the radiance to its highest level. And now keeping the eyes closed, you can let go of the practice. Know that the radiant sun of light and energy is still around your head. But with the eyes closed, once again, return to the energy field awareness practice and ask yourself the silent question. How has this practice structured my body of energy? And simply tune into what are the sensations in and around the body? 
how has the structure of your energy body changed, the structure of your consciousness changed from doing this practice? What is the after effect of the practice? How did it structure your energy field? Don't try to create anything. Just tune into and observe with your eyes closed how it feels in your body and outside your body after the practice. And then when you're ready, snap the fingers of either hand and open your eyes. And the snapping of the fingers is just to create a clean movement between the internalized perception and moving back out to externalized perception. That that was, I like don't even have words right because I was so in it. That was so incredibly powerful. I have to say, I, I would love to hear from everyone, anyone who just did that. What did you experience? I felt the clouds. I just to share really quick when you were speaking about the clouds of I I felt clouds and with the sun, that solar golden light, I got like I feel like heated in my cheeks, like my whole head felt warm. So incredible. That is so powerful. So powerful. Great. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Amazing. Again, it's it's a technique that once you learn it it becomes completely natural. It's one that's been done in spiritual traditions for forever, sometimes considered a hidden practice, yeah. like a more advanced initiation practice, but really the core of everything. You can activate any energy center in your body and potentially later in somebody else's body, but only with permission yeah. uh, through understanding how this process works. It's the same process as our world was created in. The yeah. emanation out from the center, the movement back into the center. That's true. When we incarnate, we move from the divine plane mm. outward to the physical manifestation of the earthly plane. Mm. Then we go back after death come back and it's like a breathing process mm. between the two seven the flow a question for you that came up i started to get these images you know we see in in art of and i'm curious about the term enlightenment enlightened one i'm afraid you're frozen again oh no <laughs> you're back now all right this you're is back now. funny we're just gonna go in it's such high energy yep. i think that it's absolutely like what's yes. happening with with those that are enlightened, right? The the idea of enlightened, being enlightened, enlightened ones, um, the connection with this practice, and then I also got this image of, you know, you might see an like Jesus or an angel or or an enlightened person with the sun halo around the top of their head, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how that might be connected to what we just did. I don't know for Absolutely. sure, but I'm, I think you did talk about that. Yeah. Absolutely. So the first thing you need to be aware of is that light and consciousness are the exact same thing. They are literally the exact same substance. So when we experience light internally, that's what makes us conscious. Our consciousness is literally light experienced internally. Mm. And when we experience consciousness externally, we experience it as light. So that's why whenever you see in any tradition any type of being or master that has a very activated higher consciousness, it always expresses itself in terms of light. So it can be the illumination of the light around the head. Well, now you know where that halo of light around the head comes from, from the movement of the center and now back out. But rarely is anyone told that this is the practice that creates that effect. Now, that's literally the case. 
Uh, so by activating the consciousness, and you don't have to like specifically do this technical practice. If you've simply activated your consciousness far enough, that'll happen automatically that you'll get this. This is just a method that helps to activate it more quickly and understand how it works. And it has very practical applications. But then if you do this so that your entire body of energy becomes activated, then you get the complete glow around the entire auric field where it's not just the halo around the head, but it's because in some cases you have the halo like the two-dimensional halo. That's from activation of the crown center. Or in some cases, based on the tradition, it's linked to the activation of the first center above the head. Slightly different discussion. Uh, but that's just what that is, where it's more shown as a two-dimensional circle. Three-dimensional is the whole sphere of light around the head. Then, then it can form around the entire body. And then it's like a an auric egg of light around the entire body that's radiating outward. At that point, the person has moved to some higher alchemical stages, and it's also moving toward what in some traditions would be referred to as the fully activated light body or the rainbow body is potential at that point, these kinds of things. Beautiful. No, I, I appreciate you explaining that. And um, one of the questions I think I might have frozen again. Um, you, know, you were talking about you can we can use this um, anywhere, anywhere in our body, the seven chakras, the meridian points, um, which is just really important. I think for any hopefully you're still listening with me here. Um, this mm-hmm. is something, as Dr. Gilbert was saying, is is natural and that we can all do and um, that we can use this you know, to expand our consciousness, expand our own light. And it requires going internally. And I think that's one of the, the, the main gifts of anything that has us focus on going inside, whether that's meditation or yoga or, you know, silence. Um, so, so important to, uh, to be able to really be able to focus on the inside. <laughs> We're just laughing because the energy is so high right now that it keeps it keeps pausing the uh, the airwaves. Um, I actually, you know, a question. Sometimes I hear questions from my audience, which I guess does not sound strange to you. I can literally hear a question come in, and and this is actually something I would be curious about as well. For those um, out there who have maybe there's an area in your body, maybe you hurt your knee or. Um, you've had digestive issues. I know I'm working on healing my thyroid area. So whatever I'm assuming we can use this beautiful um, experience, what we just did, the center point, the, 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 the practice you just did with us, we can use that to heal, to shift the light and consciousness in any part of our body. So it could be an area that's injured, an area that is maybe struggling. I wanted to ask about that. Absolutely. So there is the ability that we have to put our energy and attention into anything in space or time, particularly inside of our own body. But on the whole, we're not taught this. And so mm-hmm. we're somewhat removed from our bodies and, and their internal activities. So it's always possible to put your attention into any part of your body you're having an issue with. And moving all of your energy and attention to the center of the center of the center of whatever's happening in that particular body part. Now, that's where in shamanic systems, you would go into dialogue 
with that body part and is like, what is the issue? Yeah. What is the thing that's creating a larger challenge? Like, I mean, you could have just banged your knee on the table and it's going to be okay in a few days. That's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about when you have like more of a chronic thing. Often that comes from the restriction of the flow of energy. I mean, things like Taoist Chinese medicine, that's kind of like the source of all ills, is that we have blockages or restrictions to the normal flow of energy because that's what creates the healthy functioning of every body part. And in Egyptian biogeometry, that's also a very powerful concept for our practical energetic applications, is that the flow of the energy has to be in a specific geometric configuration in every organ. And it's what actually allows the organ to be fully, fully active. And that becomes the biosignatures in biogeometry that we teach people and are on the biogeometry medallion and things like this. They're a simplified two-dimensional image of the three-dimensional energy movement pattern in different organs and parts of the body and parts of the energy field that create the specific functions of that area. So that's a larger context. So we can put our attention into person has a problem with digestion, they have a problem with their heart, they have a problem with whatever it is, to go into it. And in a shamanic way, if you follow the shamanic school, then you would go into dialogue with that body part. Like, what is it that you need? What is it that is is the trauma imprint that we need to clear to get that energy moving again? What is the secondary gains you're getting by not allowing the energy to flow there? How does that feel? How do you subconsciously feel that keeps you safe from yeah. what? That you're not letting the energy flow in that body area. Things like this. So that's one particular trajectory. It can also be used for a type of illumination of our awareness of where we have certain samskaras that are imprinted into the energy body, sometimes from previous incarnations as well as from this one. Uh, but we've had it for so long, we don't even know what it would feel like not to have it. We don't know what it would be like to exist without that particular issue or blockage. So when I trained at the Claire Vision School with Samuel Sagan, that's where I learned the inward movement part of this. But they do not work with the outward movement part of it. Now, this is something that's very interesting because many traditions in the East will work with the inward movement whereas traditions in the West tend to work on the outward movement. But what we have to do is we have to understand, if you know sacred geometry, it's the whole pattern. So you understand, oh, they have to go together. You can't just breathe in and never breathe out, right? or vice versa. You can't just hop on one leg to get somewhere. You're going to walk with one leg and then the other leg. It's always a matter of polarity, alternation, and a living system to get to a particular destination. So... In the clear vision school, with moving into the center, once people had learned to do that and could then do it in their bodies, not just in a major energy center, then they would work with a facilitator using their system because there are many, many different systems. And if you understand the larger pattern, you can see the logic between behind different systems. And they would then have someone scan their energy field, put their hand on a place on their body uh, to that there was some type of disturbance. And that helped keep the person who they were doing it with, the client, keep their attention focused on that area. And then they would move all their energy and attention into where that disturbance energy field had been isolated. And then they would open their consciousness up as they keep going into the center of the center of the center of the energy disturbance. And that would often open up into traumatic memory 
or mm-hmm. into some type of memory of what's happening there, as well as mapping it. What does it feel like? Is it is it uh, smooth or sticky? Is it hot or cold? Is it sharp or smooth? These types of things gets people to engage with it. And often people would have all types of things come up that once it gets cleared with their attention, often it would clear somatically as well. And it's one of those things that there are methods that exist where we can remove energetic blockages externally from a person's system. And there'll be many cases where that may be a good idea. I'm not trying to say anything dogmatic here, but this method is, is one that relies on not having it removed externally. It's that the only way out is through. You go into the actual disturbed structure and out the other side, allowing yourself to remember whatever was the origin point of that disturbance. And if you can get to the point that you can keep an even keel in your own emotional body and mental body so that you're non-reactive, then you can go out the other side of it and it turns it inside out and it transforms. There's a great saying by Samuel Sagan of the Clear Vision School, which was your ability to see spiritually is governed by your ability to not react to what you see. And that's true on every level of our own spiritual development, including when we get in touch with the trauma impact centers in our own body of energy. Can you say that again? That's that is that hit me real hard. Your ability to see spiritually is connected to your ability to not react to what you're seeing. Exactly. Your ability to see spiritually is governed by your ability to not react to what is seen. Now, this is something that you find in many traditions. So like the Tibetans talk about grasping. Mm. So grasping is not just, oh, I want this person in my life. I want this money. I want this car. I want, I want, I want. That's grasping. But in a deeper sense, grasping is even when things pop up for us in a expanded consciousness state that we are calm and stable. We don't grasp it. We're just observing it. No type of emotional reaction to whatsoever. Mm. So there's the grasping where we're trying to grasp like, oh, I want to see what is that thing that's popped up in my mental field. As soon as you try to grasp it, you'll start changing it. You have Mm. to stay completely calm and just observe what is this thing that's come up. And, of course, the opposite reaction to the grasping is like, oh, I want that thing. Let me get that toy. The opposite reaction to that is of uh, avoidance. Like, oh, God, no, I don't want to see that. I don't remember that trauma that happened to me when I was three. I don't want to see this incredible feeling that I have in my personality where I fucked over all these people, but I justified it to myself. And now I realize I better make some amends. Whatever that thing is, either it's grasping or it's avoidance. In both cases, it's a reaction. And so to be able to get to non-reactivity is one of the most important aspects of virtually every spiritual tradition. They understand this. Now, they may call it mindfulness or they may call it some other things, but it really comes down to being able to see spiritually, perceive things with the mind power and not react to it, whether it's grasping or avoidance. You know, I just... I, uh, this is so powerful. I feel like I am going to need to have you come back and back again, again. (laughs) I have so many questions. And the thing that's coming up for me is just a insight. It's not a new one, but you know, in a way, as our society has gotten even more fast paced and more focused on 
I would say not just technology, but, but really reactivity and, and uh, just not being in the moment, not being present. Um, it's actually what happens the more you're in that reactive state, that over busy, overachieving state, which can be so cherished in the West, in the West at least. I'm just seeing it. It takes you completely out of the realm of, of doing this work and being in that non-reactive state. And it, it, it can affect, we know it affects your health, but I'm getting it really. There's detrimental effects here with your ability, my ability to tap into this natural healing, beautiful powers that are for all of us. And I, it's, it's profound because I, I know for me, I've, I've, one of my aims has been, can I do less? How might I do less? How might I be more of an observer? Uh, not react. You know, you get on the road. I'll just put it into clear, plain, everyday terms. You're on the road. Someone cuts you off, you know, and I, and I notice, am I reacting? Am I just, what am I saying to myself? Even in that example, I would think like learning to be in a space where someone cuts you off and there's no reaction. That's kind of one of the goals, the underlying goals and kind of seeing, you know, getting a sense, where are you on the spectrum of either, uh, as you said, you're either like overly grasping attached or you're avoidant. Can, oh, it's interesting. There you are back in the center. Can you be in the center point? That's exactly right. And yeah. again, this is the way, like you're saying, that many people can gauge their spiritual development. Do you get upset and start yelling every time you get cut off by somebody in traffic? Or is it something where you just, you just flow with it? There's no benefit to getting upset and screaming in your car at somebody else, that kind of thing. So that's getting a reflection from our day-to-day external life for how much we've developed non-reactivity. Now, this is also connected to what at a deeper level becomes an observation for our reactivity in relationships with other people because that's one of our prime things so family is one of like you can become a saint all day in a cave but you have to deal with your family that's something when you deal with your significant other or people that we have romantic intimate connections with that's a whole nother ball game so it's these are ratcheting up levels of intensity and how can we truly be non-reactive stay in compassion, these kinds of things. Again, Buddhism is great for describing a lot of these principles and how it works. But also there's ways to develop this in a more complete fashion. So when I created my online course called Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science, one of the most fundamental practices I teach there is the one that is referred to as the six Basic exercises are the six essential exercises for the European Rosicrucians, coming from the work of Rudolf Steiner, who's another great teacher of mine, and I think he's one of the most amazing spiritual teachers of modern times. And so when he gave indications on this, they were very short. So I, based on many years of working with this, I expanded it greatly in the course. But there's the basic idea of this is that if you're going to be developing your energy system, to a higher level. Another very important principle that we haven't really gotten into yet is that your spiritual development is completely mirrored in the structures of your subtle body. So structuring the subtle body is the lost million dollar concept to real spiritual development. 
that every act you take with your mind, everything you do with your emotions, it all creates activations of certain energy centers, sedations of others, flows of energy to start making connections and geometries in the energy body. The structuring of the subtle body is who you really are. That's the pearl of great price you take through the gate of death, the structuring mm-hmm. of the subtle bodies. If you don't create a new structure in the subtle bodies that's stable, anything that you develop in spiritual work is ephemeral. It will disappear because it's not anchored. So structuring the subtle bodies is like the key of everything. Mm. Now, the thing is that in my Central Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science course, in addition to going into the six essential exercises, I also talk about the three fundamental methods of activating the energy system. One is from below to above. And that's the old Indian system. That's like the Kundalini system. Mm. Activate the base of the spine first, shoot the energy up to the crown. Then there's from top down. That's the one that really became popularized with Christianity, with the descent of the dove of the Holy Spirit coming into the central channel of the human body from above, activating the head centers first, and then in sequence the ones below it, activating the lower centers, the ones connected to life force energy, sexuality, etc., then toward the end of the process rather than at the beginning of the process. But the third one that very few people have any consciousness of is the the method of activating from center out. And the center out method is the one used by the European Rosicrucians. And I think it's one of the smartest systems out there. Mm. The center out system means that you have to develop the heart first. Now, if we look at the structure of this, again, back to sacred geometry, everything has a pattern. People that really understand this know that there's a reason why in the Indian tradition they describe the heart as the 12-petal lotus. Every one of the petals on the 12-petal lotus of the heart is connected to a particular achievement of consciousness, a particular structuring of the subtle body that's linked to how we've used our consciousness. And so Steiner described the way in the Rosicrucian tradition of Europe Rudolf Steiner described that six of the 12 lotus petals have already been developed. We developed them in previous incarnations and in previous cycles of human culture development. But now we have to develop the other six to get the heart fully active. And so every one of those six petals is developed through a different practice. That's why there's six essential exercises. Each one activates a particular lotus petal of the heart chakra. Now, the reason we want to do this is that once we have activated it, then the entire heart chakra as a vortex of energy becomes fully active. And it then becomes the organizing center for the entire body of energy. Until then, you have no organizing center in your body of energy. And that makes the structuring of a subtle body much less stable. And it also makes much slower development on the path. To have an organizing center of anything that you do is essential. So that's why we would do this. Now, if we then understand that larger context, the center out method of activating the field, because you want to create an organizing center for everything with the six essential exercises, the six essential exercises are also ones that get us out of reactivity. Mm. But we break it down to its component parts linked to different lotus petals of the heart. So there's one that has to do with the observation and then proper direction of all of our thoughts. The next one, the observation and proper direction of all of our emotional life and feelings. The observation and then proper direction of all of our willpower and actions in the world. Then developing positivity 
toward everything that we encounter in life, even things that are horrible, painful challenges. Understanding that as a type of initiation trial, that by overcoming it, we will develop something of benefit. And I can say much more about it. That's a very simple introduction to it. And then the next one, the fifth one, is the having tremendous openness to new information, new perspectives, new ways of being. Because even if we get pretty clever, we can get very frozen into a particular personality, into particular attributes. Like, that's me. But no, those are surface personality attributes. Those are malleable. And to be open to new ways of being, new ways of acting, new ways of seeing. And then the sixth one is really the harmonization of all of this into a new configuration in the energy body. My goodness. <laughs> My brain is like the six essential um, exercises. That could be in itself a whole nother conversation uh, to go through those. It, I don't know if you've studied this at all, but I, I've um, I've had uh, and I've done quite a bit of studying in Heart Math Institute with heart uh, coherence and yes. and heart intelligence. And mm. whew, I'm just I'm getting like this sensation of this is all feels very, very connected. Uh, just even what I've learned around, you know, it, everything emanating how important the heart is and the heart center. Um and I don't know as much about Rudolf Steiner. I know you talk about the Rosicrucian, uh, just what he what he studied and, and and what that means. I find what you're saying it just in my body it, it completely resonates. This is how I felt when I was watching your series. I'm like, we have got to get him on here because this to me this is what can shift consciousness and can shift our planet and can. You can shift. Let's start with each of us individually. And I just I believe in this so much, you know, and it, it takes something. It takes something to focus your attention and to decide, you know, I am going to uh, with free will um, decide that I am I am a being and I, I want to be I want to be adding more light. I want to have those six other petals. I know it's not really a lotus, but I can see it like those six mm-hmm. other petals developed. Um mm-hmm. I am curious, and we definitely will make sure to have your information, Dr. Gilbert. I wore this, and I wear this often. I'm wearing actually one of the medallions. I'll just put it up if anyone's watching. You can see there are all kinds of codes on it. You mentioned this earlier, um, and the minute you talked about it, you know, I was like, I don't really even know exactly exactly how this works, but I want to have this near me and on me as often as possible. Can you share about, because I know this was also with, um, was it Dr. Um, Dr. Kareem? Kareem as well, that you created this? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was created by Dr. Kareem <clears throat> based on years and years of research where we teach something called vibrational radiesthesia as part <laughs> of the uh, biogeometry training. Now, in its modern form, it comes from French research in the early 1900s, where they were able to develop a system to be able to detect and differentiate any subtle energy quality. And they do a kind of energetic X-ray of any energy system at the subtle energy level and understanding what the functions are of all these different energy qualities. Now, that's something that was a tremendous breakthrough, but is almost unknown today. It allows you to have tremendous technical knowledge of any energy system, whether a human being or a plant or an animal or whatever else. And you can find all these hidden links between things. 
because they have similar energy qualities. So the radiesthesia allows us to test the qualities in the energy field. It allows you to trace out movements of subtle energy, including in the body. And that's what Dr. Kareem did in tracing out, like, what are all the energy movements inside the heart that give the heart all of its functions? So the ability to pulsate, the ability to keep a specific rhythm, the ability to cleanse the blood, the ability to whatever. All of these things are a different energy movement pattern. So that's the first thing we need to understand to explain this medallion that Dr. Kareem created. That in being able to trace out these movements, three-dimensional energy movements in the body within the organs, it then gives you a method for finding when a particular disturbance is taking place because the energy flow pattern has been disturbed. The whole idea here is that energy into shape creates function. Mm. Energy in its primal form is the proteus. It could take any manifestation. It's like a stem cell. That stem cell could become your eye. It could become your genitals. It could become your fingertip. It can become anything. That's how energy is. The reason that stem cells can do this is that they're a first manifestation from energy into matter before differentiation has happened. So in the energy system, the energy could take on any form, any function, any power, but the power is given to it by the energy movement pattern it has. What we think of as shape is simply a momentary snapshot of an ongoing dynamic flow of energy in a larger pattern, but it's dynamic. So when you see these biosignatures, you see what look like little squiggly lines on your medallion. Don't look at them as a static pattern. Look at them as a simplified two-dimensional flattening of the original three-dimensional energy movement pattern in the body that works to remind the body of the energy movement. Now, this is true for all types of esoteric healing throughout history, that it's linked on the principle of resonance, the resonance between two similar energy qualities. So the foundation of biogeometry is that it's really getting the ancient Egyptian temple science and putting it into a modern format where we can understand and apply it today. And so these energy movement patterns of the biosignatures are something that is literally creating the function inside that that body part. And resonance, we always use the metaphor of sympathetic resonance. We have things like two tuning forks. Get two tuning forks tuned to the same frequency. Strike one, now it's vibrating, and you can feel it vibrate. If you bring it close to a second unstruck tuning fork of the exact same frequency, you'll feel the unstruck tuning fork also start vibrating. Even though nothing has happened to physically make it vibrate. It's a transmission of the vibration from the first thing. The same thing is true in all types of modern electromagnetic waveform and antenna systems. They're coupled. They link together because of resonance. And so this is the esoteric application of it. So having that pattern available is something that can help the body to move the, the energy back into the correct pattern again to remind it of this. One reason I got into biogeometry as big as I did is that Dr. Kareem worked with me with biosignatures when I first met him Mm. over 20 years ago, uh, long before I became an instructor. And I had had serious car accident, lots of damage to my neck and spine, all kinds of issues. And I got massive restoration of my life from something as simple as these energy diagrams. 
it is something that for the Western mind would just be, how could this possibly work? How does, what's the idea behind this? But I saw that it did work. And I saw the power inherent in the biogeometry. Now, again, I'm not making any medical claims. Mileage will vary with everyone for anything of a esoteric energy level, but I'm describing the principle behind it. Mm. So what Dr. Kareem did when he first released this outward is that he was invited to do a project at the Egyptian National Research Center on what became a study group on the effect of geometric forms on life functions. Incredible work that they did there. So paradigm shifting, mind blowing. Mm. And then he was invited from that to participate in the National Hepatitis C Research Project in, in Egypt. And his group, like some people got interferon, some people got some type of herb or whatever it was that they were testing for hep C. And his people got only a medallion that had engraved on it the biosignatures for the liver and some other function had to be in there. Because it's not just the liver energy movement patterns that were needed to restore the function. There was also certain patterns from the heart that work with it synergistically that also have to be present. And other patterns that are related to the immune function and things like this. Again, no medical claims, experimental work. But at the end of that project, he won the hepatitis C research project trials and had by far the best results as people wearing a medallion with those shapes on it. Now, people will often then contact us when they hear the story and say, oh, can I get the medallion for hep C or whatever? And again, we always make clear we make no medical claims. Consider this to be experimental work that you're welcome to experiment along with us. Lots of people have incredible anecdotal stories about it, including myself. Uh, but what we make available is the medallion that you have there, because there was so much demand in Egypt once this became public, uh, that is not for any specific ailment. It just has a selection of different biosignatures for different functional areas of the body that everybody would need. That would create a good baseline. It doesn't have all the biosignatures on it because there's hundreds and hundreds of biosignatures. But that's the idea of how this works and how it, how it was developed. This goes back. You'll find things by Buddhist priests in Asia where one biogeometry student from Holland like showed us these pictures, says, you know, I was on a trip in uh, in Thailand and I was in a taxi cab that had been blessed by a Buddhist priest. And this pattern that they drew as a part of the blessing of the taxi cab was almost identical to a biosignature because they understand this energy science, too. But nowhere else in the world today that I know of can you get an actual catalog of all these energy movement patterns of biosignatures outside of biogeometry. And Dr. Kareem made the patterns public a few years ago with a book called Biogeometry Signatures. Mm. Now, it doesn't tell you all the methods that we will teach you to be able to use them and apply them in the Biogeometry Online trainings that I offer, because that just takes more time. But it will show you the patterns, and you could do very simple things with them based on what's in the book. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. This is just, as I like to say, mind-blowing, like just (laughs) mind-blowing work. I... um, you know, I, I, I'm already, I already have questions. I'm, I, I'm just going to say, Dr. Gilbert, if you'd be willing to come back, I think we need a part two. <laughs> I know we're happy to. Yeah. I, 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 uh, there's so many other thoughts and questions. I was taking notes in the series and of course now. And, and, um, I just, I want to thank you. You know, this, the whole idea of 
this show being your USU, it kind of gives a whole new meaning. It, I've always felt there's a real deep spiritual, you know, meaning to even though it's kind of a like funny kind of almost cheesy plan words, but it really this idea that there's a signature, you know, a geometric signature and that we all have that uh, at the core of who we are. It just gives a whole nother dimension to what it means to really be, you know, to be tapped in to your your most um, your soul self, your highest self, your, that, 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 um, you know, I'm thinking of the word maybe samadhi, right? The, the enlightened self, if I'm using that correctly. Um, before we close, I always like to ask, I actually, it's interesting and I'm thinking, oh, maybe this is one of the lotus petals. I call them heart flares where I just get you this. You froze again. Oh no. Oh no. Tell me when I'm back. That's all right. We will, uh, Hopefully, can you hear me now? Is that, is that? Now I can hear you. All right. Heart flares. (laughs) I was saying I came up with this term heart flare where your Uh, heart has something it didn't say yet that, uh, it would like to share. So I'm laughing. I said maybe it's one of the lotus petals that we're here to develop, but what, (laughs) maybe it is. Is there anything just in there for you on your heart that, um, that you feel you would like to share before we close? Something I didn't ask you or just something that's there for you? Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'll just use this opportunity to go ahead and put in the plug, which is if you want to check out more about the work we do at the Vesica Institute, our website is vesica.org and Vesica is spelled V as in Victor, E-S-I-C-A dot O-R-G. And you'll also find various uh, videos with me on YouTube and things like this on different topics that may be of interest. And you can, if you get on our mailing list, there's a lot of promotions and things that we do for people on the mailing list that people wouldn't see otherwise. And we have a lot going on right now. We're bringing Dr. Kareem to the U.S. for people that have already trained in biogeometry next year. And I haven't done a live course uh, for four years. And I'm going to be starting in a few months next year. I'll be starting to offer live courses again, which I'm looking forward to. So that's uh, kind of the immediate thing. But also, I'll just, as something that will be helpful for people, when you talk about heart flaring, what I'd like to offer to people is that when I trained with Samuel Sagan at the Clear Vision School in Australia, uh, he had something that as we were developing the third eye center, it's not just the frontal third eye that we worked on a moment ago. There's a tunnel that goes from the frontal third eye back to the cave of Brahma, the third ventricle of the brain in the center of the head, and then goes back to the ancient palace, this area around the external occipital protuberance or the bump on the back of your head. It's a tunnel of energy. And in developing this with systems related to what I, I we did together earlier in the show, but also with some other uh, methods we haven't discussed, you start to activate the third eye center in such a way that there'll be times it starts to get activated in a much stronger way. And then it goes back and it activates and it goes back. This is a natural process. And Sagan referred to this as third eye flaring. So be aware that parts of the energy body as they're getting activated can flare and become very active for a shorter or longer period of time. I became aware of this as I was doing meditation in dark rooms at the clear vision school with my eyes closed and there would be moments that I was certain that someone had walked into the room and was shining a flashlight on my eyes because the light got so strong. And I thought they were playing a joke on me. And I'd open my eyes up to talk to them. There'd be nobody there. The room was completely dark. And it was a third eye flaring experience. 
Same thing can happen to the heart. There can be an activation of that center. So there's literally heart flaring that happens there. So, you know, you have some beautiful moment with your children and that beautiful, you know, ecstatic moment with your children, when you hug them and like you get all the benefits of being a parent at that moment, then you get the heart flaring or with a lover or with something of that kind. You get that. Oh, fantastic. So this can happen throughout the energy body and people should be aware of it as a phenomenon, the flaring phenomenon. Okay. Okay. I've got a whole new level of like, Oh my gosh. I thought I made that up. I thought it kind of came through me. I heard heart flare and I had no idea that that is actually something that's a real thing. That is incredible. That is, uh, I'm a little floored and just really, I, I, I'm having a hard time rapping because it's, <laughs> you're, so, you're so knowledgeable. There's so much wisdom here. Um, I cannot thank you enough for your gracious time for obviously the the years of study and the practice and the intention to really help humanity here. I could feel it when I was watching you and I, I just thought, all right, this is this is he's gotta be here. So it's an honor. You're you have really I mean, there's so much there's so much wisdom in here and I hope we can bring you back to go through the next round of questions, which we didn't even touch some of them and that's okay. Um, thank you, Dr. Gilbert for, for, for being your USU and just helping all of us to access the, 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 the geometric patterning, the, the healing, the wisdom, the light that is possible for each of us. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed being here with you. I'll be happy to come back. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Amazing. And I'll just say thank you, beloved listener. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have all of Dr. Gilbert's information so you can check it out. And I promise to bring him back. We'll even get into what Vesica means. Um, and just thank you for being on this journey of being your USU, being the greatest light in the world possible. And from our heart to yours, lots of love. My friend, I'm so grateful and honored to be here with you on your journey and being your USU. Thank you for watching this episode, for being part of this incredible community and this mission to really step into your light to your highest purpose. I believe that as we all do that, we all can really be our best selves and uplift consciousness and in humanity. So thank you. I also wanted to say that if you are looking for greater support right now, maybe you're having a health concern or you're looking to really step into that next version, best version of yourself, please come connect with me, whether it's for more resources or coaching or guidance. I would love to support you in any way that I can. Just go to julieresler.com. You can book a powerful one-on-one -on -one breakthrough session there. You can connect with me. I would love to meet you. I'd love to hear how I can be on this journey with you. And before I forget, if you'd like a little more of this good vibe uh, tribe and would like to digest these episodes with a high vibe community, just go to Facebook and look up the USU podcast community. You'll find us there. Love always. And thank you so much for taking the time and energy to truly stepping into your authenticity and being your USU. Mm. Oh boy. I guess we got on the on good footing here this afternoon. A lovely insight into 
where we're headed, everybody. Mm. And so we're going to start now with another series. There's three of these. Um, the one we're going to start with is called Mysteries of the Knights Templar, and it's a preview. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> join Templar, Grand Master Timothy Hogan, and forensic geologist Scott Wal- Walter, W-O-L-T-E-R, <laughs> um, active members of the esoteric order as they unveil transformative connections to Atlantis, ancient Egypt, biblical narratives, and possible extraterrestrial influences. Delve into an intriguing realm of ancient wisdom and secret traditions revealed in the original Gaia Gaia series. Discover enigmatic secrets linked to mystery schools across the world, mm-hmm. offering profound insights into Templar influence on our collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that's there. Did you find it, dear? Um, mm-hmm. You found it to send it to Penny, so it must be there. Mm-hmm. I think this is it. Okay. <coughs> Does that one say uh, preview? Maybe. Oh, that DM Secrets Revealed. No, that's the next one. Um. Just says one and two. Um, well, this says Mysteries of the Knights Templar yeah. preview. Um, okay, it's uh, there's a S one colon E capital E P as in Paul one S one yeah. episode one. Okay. We're getting there, everybody. Okay, this is it. All righty. This is a half an hour, everybody. We found it. Yeah. We shall proceed. Was Atlantis? Was it a place? A culture? And what happened to it? I'm Timothy Hogan, Grandmaster of the Knights Templar. And I'm Scott Walter, a forensic geologist and a Knights Templar. And this is Mysteries of the Knights Templar. So the question is, who were the medieval Knights Templar? 
And who are the Templars today? But more importantly than that, what is the connection between the Templars and Atlantis? And who better to ask that question than the Grandmaster himself? Tim, who were the Knights Templar? History has suggested that it was an order founded in 1118 specifically to defend pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land. This was during the Crusades, and uh, pilgrims needed protection in order to go there. But we know, in fact, this was actually a cover. The Templar Order was founded because there was a belief, there was a knowledge that there had been a pre-Diluvian civilization. The Bible referred to it as the time of Noah and that it had collapsed during a massive cataclysm. Flood is is how it's described in the Bible. Ultimately, these Templars, they needed to track down the pockets of survival of the knowledge, the technology, the philosophies that had been preserved from this pre-Diluvian civilization. So what I'm hearing you say is that Atlantis was not necessarily a place that sunk into the ocean. It was a high culture. Yeah, it was more like a worldwide network of information that was being preserved at different parts of the world. And when this cataclysm occurred, everything fell apart, fell into disarray. And we went into a very dark period in humanity. But... The Templars understood that if they were ever going to bring Europe out of the Dark Ages, they needed to find the remnants of this lost civilization, the technology, the philosophy, and use it to spur people into a new high culture. Okay, let me ask you this. Is this a fair way to couch this, that the Crusades and the Templars' involvement in Crusades of capturing the Holy Land and establishing really which was a base of operations – so that they could go throughout the region to round up some of this ancient knowledge, this ancient information. Is that pretty much the story? Yeah, well, crusaders were busy trying to fight for the Holy Land and uh, taking over territory. The Templars were more concerned with digging for artifacts. So what it sounds like to me is the Templars had a mission even before the Crusades. They knew this stuff was there. How did they get that information? Did it trickle down all the way from the time of Atlantis? Well, it did. You have to remember that the Templars largely came out of Albigensian families in southern France, which were a Gnostic sect. So they already had ideas that were contrary to the popular establishments of the time. You mean of the Roman Catholic Church? Roman Catholic Church and the monarchies. Right. They were very democratic and they were open to spiritual ideas in which the individual was empowered. Hmm. Uh, this allowed them to go out and try to seek out other communities that had these views. In particular, there was a tradition that caused the Templars to travel to Constantinople to meet with a group there that was known as the Brothers of the East. This particular group in Constantinople uh, had originally come from Greece, had been established in 1057. And they set themselves up in an area that was known as the, the Church of St. Sergius and Bacchus, which was a building designed by an alchemist in which uh, Pythagorean and other ideas were incorporated into it, Gnostic ideas. Sacred geometry. Sacred geometry, absolutely. 
So, Tim, there's a uh, pervasive rumor within the Templar tradition that I've heard for years. And I would like to get confirmation from you. The equilateral, equal armed cross that adorned the Templars' white tunics and that they're famous for, that's a very old symbol. Is it true that it goes back to the time of the Atlanteans? Yeah, in fact, it's a symbol that is found all throughout the ancient world. In particular, ancient Sumer. It was something that was utilized by what were known as the Anunnaki or the, or the gods of ancient Sumer. But you also find it in Egypt and other places. And it related specifically in, in ancient Sumer to a alchemical science that was known as Graal. G-R-A dot A-L. That is, sounds familiar. Yes, this this came to be partially associated with what was later to be known as the Holy Grail, right? which the Templars were said to be guarded. So they adopted this symbol. So a lot of people are going to ask a question, how do these different traditions recognize each other? How do they know who's on their side and who's not? And I think that breaks down to signs of recognition, just like we have in our modern Templar order and within Freemasonry, correct? Correct. Yeah, there were certain signs, there were certain handshakes that had been passed down from early times that these different Gnostic families and traditions had been holding on to. So when Hugh de Paines and Godfrey de Saint-Omar had inherited these things, they went to Constantinople, they were able to exchange them with the Brothers of the East. In particular, there was a Joanite tradition under a guy by the name of Theoclete and another man by the name of Michael Silos, who was a very famous French philosopher. And they had been at Constantinople and they had the blueprints for what Hugh de Paines and Godfrey de Saint-Omar needed to do to form the Templar order and specifically to go to Jerusalem for the next stage of their mission. There's documentation that has come to me over the last 15 years. It's called the Cremona document. And one part of it is a specific narrative that talks about Hugh de Payen, the first Grand Master of the Knights Templar, and five other knights who entered under the south wall and followed a tunnel system and found an ancient ritual chamber. How old it is is unknown. But inside that chamber, they found, or I should probably say recovered, not discovered, artifacts that they knew were there. This included ancient scrolls, ancient knowledge, as you mentioned, technologies in the form of instrumentation, gold, wealth, and the remains of a very important person in Templarism going all the way back to the first century, John the Baptist. Is there a connection between John the Baptist and the Johnite tradition? There is. In fact, uh, the entire Johannite tradition got its name specifically from John the Baptist, who is deemed to be the initiator of Jesus. And according to the Johannite tradition, he was meant to be the leader of this spiritual tradition. Unfortunately, he was taken out early. But the Johns of the Bible were all part of this tradition, and it's believed that there was a succession, a line of succession, going all the way up to Theoclete in Constantinople, who then, in turn, entrusted Hugh de Paines with this same mission. Okay. So what you're saying is there's a tradition that starts with John the Baptist 
comes forward all the way to Theoclis, right? Correct. How about going the other way? Does this go all the way back to Atlantis? It does. And this is where we, we go back to some of the Babylonian traditions that talk about the god Oannes, who came from the sea and baptized priest kings and gave them the keys to rebuild civilization. It was deemed that these myths were probably alluding to the Atlanteans who had survived this cataclysm and had preserved pockets of information and technology. Mm -hmm. And it's worth pointing out that the word Oannes, the name Oannes, whose feast day in the ancient world was June 24th, Hmm, just happened to become... John the Baptist day. That's exactly right. And John in Greek is Ioannis. So So, coincidence? It was a tradition. Exactly. It was information being passed down. The Templars recovered this. They began their archaeological digging for the first nine years that they were in Jerusalem. That's all they did was dig under the Temple Mount. And information that they got from there led them to other locations like Mm -hmm. Egypt, Mm -hmm. Lebanon, and other places, ultimately to the new world of what was to become known as America. Right, right. Well, the evidence that we see is in the form of Templar graffiti carved all over the Middle East region. That's correct. They met with people like the Sabaeans Mm -hmm. in northern Turkey who were preserving a whole tradition in the area that we now refer to as Gobleki Tepe, which had the seeds of civilization being being preserved there, all the way down into Egypt in places like Abydos, where they were meeting with Coptic Christians, which was a different tradition. And then within Jerusalem itself, as they were digging out of the Temple Mount and other places, one of the things they came across, and this is from traditional Jewish sources, is they came across certain jars And as they opened up these jars, much like we find with the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Naj Hammondi Library, Mm -hmm. they discovered these new texts, which what we now know is were the Zohar, the the texts known as the the fundamental aspects of the Zohar. So this would have been the genesis of Jewish mysticism, the Zohar? Absolutely. Not only was it the genesis of Jewish mysticism, but there was information in the Zohar that pointed to land on the other side of the ocean. In fact, it talked about other continents and the earth being round and where people lived. And and this was fundamental to the Templars in their discoveries of, of what there was to follow thereafter, including right. going to the New World. Okay. Just recently, some images were shared with me and some drone footage of a site that's two and a half miles away from Gobekli Tepe. And we've now coined the phrase for this site, Templar Tepe, because there are a couple of walls with Templar graffiti carvings that are undeniable, unmistakable, which tells us the tradition was there. The question is, what were they doing? Was it somehow connected to Gobekli Tepe? And I think the prevailing wisdom now is pretty much universal that Gobekli Tepe was an ancient observatory dating back to the time of the Atlanteans because you mentioned this catastrophic event that didn't completely destroy the culture, significantly reduced it almost down to nothing. And 
What we see at Gobekli Tepe is this incredible observatory was intentionally buried. Archaeologists are saying it was intentionally buried at the very same time of this catastrophic event that has now been labeled the Younger Dryas Impact Event. That's right. Well, and it just so happens that this Younger Dryas Impact Event, as it's being called now, falls exactly in line with the time frame of when Plato specifically said Atlantis collapsed. <laughs> and not only that, but we find remnants of that same story being preserved at Edfu in Egypt, talking about this great cataclysm and how long ago it was, and it falls in with that exact same time period. What we understand now as Templars was that as that civilization collapsed, the technology had to go into hiding, it had to be preserved in different areas. And certainly places like Lebanon and Egypt and Jerusalem became fertile places to preserve this stuff at that time. You know, one of the things that was found by the Templars was a series of arcs, which are now associated with Arcs of the Covenant. Wait a minute, a series of arcs? I thought the ark was just the ark, the ark. one ark. No, there were multiple arcs. There we go. In fact, some traditions say that there may be as many as a 100. The Templar Order has found evidence of at least 10, but they recovered six. Mm -hmm. And they knew that these things couldn't fall into the hands of the power structures of the day, so they had to go into hiding. So there was a great effort on the part of the Templar Order to take these arcs and try to understand them, how they worked. And it turns out these arcs, what they really were was giant capacitors. Mm -hmm. they, they could generate electricity, and they were filled with a superconductive substance, which the Bible refers to as manna. Manna, that's right. And manna in Hebrew just means what is it? And we know now it was probably named this because when you test this substance, it doesn't show up as anything. <laughs> like, you know, most tests are done with spectroscopic analysis. Or, Infrared spectrometry. Right, yeah. X-ray diffraction. Right. Back then they would do a burn test right. to see what color the flame was. But this didn't show up as anything, but it had these unusual properties. And since they couldn't tell what it was, what is it? Okay, here's the big question, though. You said the mana was the power source, right? Yeah. And that these were capacitors, batteries. Yeah. What did they run? thing that we think is it was probably broadcasted electricity throughout the planet from the old Atlantean tradition. There probably was a world grid network, electricity being broadcasted around the world. And when this cataclysm happened, it just shut that all off. So they were able to preserve the capacitors, and that's about it. But the grid was shut down. The grid was shut down. And the Templars were, were wise enough to recognize, okay, this happened in antiquity. It could happen again. They had the mission of trying to rebuild civilization to where Atlantis was before, recognizing that civilization is fragile and it could fall apart. So they had to preserve the keys to rebuild civilization again and again. When civilization collapsed, there was an attempt to try to preserve what they could. 
some of this not only included these arcs, but they also included instructions for government, democratic ideas, power of the individual, the connection of the individual to God, and that the source of who we really are is connected to the creator, and that everybody through their own efforts, could, could connect with that. Right. This was the basis of what empowered democracy originally. So really what you're talking about is something that we've all heard that resonates with all humans, that we are all born with inalienable rights. That's right. As humans, when right. we come into this world, that we all have a basic list of things that we are entitled to just being here, right? That's exactly right. And so the Templars tried to preserve that and establish that. There were maps of the old world. And in fact, uh, many of these maps that the Templars were creating and the, that the Templars also inherited were later to become known as what Admiral Perry Reyes of Turkey yep. or the Ottoman Empire at the time right. was cataloging. And, and he even said, Hey, he got these maps from earlier maps. Well, these were Templar maps that had been being preserved. You know, one of the things that's always fascinated me is the Perry Reese map. And there are things on that map that shouldn't be there. Yeah, he had cataloged things prior to Columbus, including Antarctica without ice and also the entire South American area. And this seems to suggest information that had been preserved from a previous civilization. If you're talking about Antarctica being mapped without ice, you're talking a long time ago. Probably what happened was there was even a tradition from before Atlantis that was preserving this information. These are part of the cachet of things that the Templars discovered. Let me guess, Perry Reese, probably a Templar, huh? Well, he certainly came out of that tradition. You got to remember, he was in Constantinople, right where the Brothers of the East were, right where the, the Templar Order was secretly founded. And this was the center of commerce at the time. It was the center of the world. And this is where information was being brought back to. You know, the other thing that's really interesting about the Templars, something I paid a lot of attention to and studied myself, are these round churches that were used for, well, I should call them chapels, right? Yes. And Observatory used, chapels. Yeah, <laughs> laboratory astronomical uh, chapels that actually were observatories that were mapping the heavens. And what we now know is that there's a system of churches on the island of Bornholm in Denmark in Europe that they have now figured out by using long-range alignments in the heavens to be able to calculate the circumference of the Earth. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but when you are a maritime culture and you're traveling on the ocean, one of the most important things you need to know is how far is it to my destination. That'll, that'll allow you to plan accordingly with food and water and people and it's going to give you a tremendous advantage over anyone else if you know how big the earth is and how far away things are. They also began to encounter a number of different cultures that most people in Europe at the time had, had never encountered. And these included groups like the Druze, the Tahid Muhudun. Mm -hmm. There were Islamic sects that were mystical in nature. Now we would refer to them as Sufi. Mm -hmm. There were Druid traditions. 
And there were traditions within Lebanon that were really inheritors of Phoenician traditions and, and Canaanite traditions. And in their associations with these groups and in their travels in Egypt, there was one thing that they found amongst them all that was secretly being passed down. And it was the science that we now refer to as alchemy. Alchemy, yeah. And we know now, uh, especially you find this in Egypt at places like Abydos, uh, where the Templars set up headquarters. They also set up commanderies at Philae, at Dendera, at Edfu, and a number of different places in Egypt. But particularly at Abydos, and even at Luxor itself in Karnak, there are depictions of alchemical processes. Hmm. And in particular, there's depictions of these arcs, and there's depictions of the mana. That mana putting in there was the catalyst for the art to work. And this mana had to be made alchemically when it was produced. So how do you make mana? Where does it come from? Well, it, it comes from just about everything, but you have to be able to calcinate it down and then extract it out of the ashes. We're going to pour that ashy lye into this to filter. Make sure the pH is nice and high. I'm going to add an acid to it taking something from above 12 and, and we're dropping it down. As you can see, there's stuff starting to form. We're going to do this eight times just to clean it. So it becomes this self-contained atom that it becomes completely captured and it doesn't bind with anything. And this was the monad. You could also convert certain platinum metals into mana, which we believe this is really what Moses was doing when he burned the golden calf into a white powder ah, and to feed to the wandering Hebrews. But it was an allegorical reference to the alchemical science that he was performing, but it had to be veiled. Absolutely. And we see this depiction on the Egyptian temple walls as well of where the pharaoh was being fed these cakes that looked like they were cone shapes, mm. and uh, they, they're usually depicted right next to these ark boxes, and uh, they're they're being fed to the pharaoh as, as this special food that kept him healthy, and that they were being stored in these arcs, which generated the electricity. But let's go back for a second. I want to understand exactly how does mana work inside the ark to create this power cell? So what this mana is... It's platinum metals that are in a monoatomic state. Mm. So what that means is each atom doesn't bind with the other atoms. And it does this because it's in a high spin state, what's known as a high spin state. The two outer electrons and the atom enter into what's known as a Cooper pair. And when they do that, they go into this high spin state. They're completely captured by the nucleus of the atom and they don't bind with the other atoms like they normally would. When this happens, they enter into a superconductive state. Mm. And it just so happens that when you have a container full of mana, these monoatomic atoms, if you subject it to a very weak electrostatic or electromagnetic field, the spark, if you will, the spark, it, it ends up causing the container filled with mana to weigh less than the same container filled with nothing. So there's a anti-gravity effect. That's a levitation a effect? A levitation effect. And, and this is the reason why the arcs in the Bible is guarded by the Levites, from which 
we get the word levitation yes. later on, and that two Levites could carry these arks with rods, even though the amount of gold and acacia wood that was put into building these arks would have caused the ark to weigh several tons. But two people could carry it as long as it had a charge and as long as this these monoatomic atoms, this, this mana was inside of it. Okay, so what you're saying is they basically had the ability with mana when it was supercharged to cause things to levitate. Could this be the secret to the massive megalithic blocks that we find all over the world that have been cut and placed and seemingly it is impossible that any humans with the technology that we thought they had in the distant past actually could have been moved this way? Yeah, we think so. In fact, it's even possible that they may have just taken one of these arcs, bound it to the stone, and then that helped to cause the weightlessness of the stone itself. So at that point, then they could move the stones any way they needed to. As the Templars started discovering these things and figuring how it worked, they realized this was a technology that it was godlike power. So they knew if these fell into the wrong hands, they could be abused. And so at this point, the Templars had a strong mission to move these arcs and these other artifacts out of the areas of Jerusalem, of Egypt, and other areas, move them through Lebanon into places like Portugal, France, ultimately Scotland, and then from there, move it on over to the Americas, which they had, of course, by this point, had already been mapping and knew about. They knew all about it. Well, let's just talk about the elephant in the room to this whole plan that the Templars had, and that's the Roman Catholic Church, right? And it brings to mind their strategy was something analogous to keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. And I think really that's exactly what was going on, at least for the Templar leadership. And by aligning with the church and um, giving them the impression that they were on their side was what allowed them to have the freedom that they did to round this stuff up with the ultimate plan of bringing it to North America. And I agree with you. I think that's exactly what was going on. And the Templars would throw the church a bone. <laughs> Every once in a while, the Templars were responsible for starting to build the cathedrals right. for the church. But even on the cathedrals, they tried to carve and preserve this information, much like the Egyptians had done in earlier times. So even to this day, there's Pythagorean concepts, Gnostic concepts, alchemical information. You go to the front doors of Notre Dame Cathedral, for example, there's a series of plate medallions that show all the stages of the alchemical process. This is part of what the Templars were trying to preserve. They also brought over iconography. For example, the Templar headquarters at Philae in in Egypt was the uh, Temple of Isis. And in this temple of Isis, not only on the temple walls, but also on the altars, there were these black basalt statues of the goddess Isis nursing the young child Horus, which is identical to images of Mother Mary nursing Jesus. That's exactly right. So the Templars brought that iconography over. They gave it a new facelift. 
<laughs> and to preserve the memory of it, they carved what were to become known as the Black Madonnas, mm -hmm. which were these same iconography but painted black, so they looked like the statues in Egypt, and placed them in the crypts under the cathedrals that they were building. So, Tim, here's what I think we have. We go back to the time of the Younger Dryas period. Prior to that, we had a high culture that exists that preserved ancient knowledge just in case something happened. And I don't think it was just in case. I think they knew something catastrophic was coming. I think Gobekli Tepe being covered up is a powerful piece of evidence to support that. And so they preserved this information. And the survivors of that catastrophe lived on. And eventually the tradition, the Templar tradition, starting around the year 1000 or just after, acquired this knowledge, knew that they had to form a Templar order that would go in and align with the Roman church, go into Jerusalem, round up the stuff that they needed, find that old hidden knowledge and information technology that was left by the Atlanteans, take that knowledge, use it to acquire the strength, the power to eventually bring it over to North America. Is that a decent synopsis? Not only that, but they wanted to reestablish the Atlantean tradition in order to recreate what had once been and had been lost, but now had been found. So really, Francis Bacon was the one who wrote the New Atlantis. He was a Templar, and that whole book that he wrote was specifically an outline to rebuild these technologies that had been discovered by the Templars. So Francis Bacon, he was in on the secret, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And so what that means is the United States of America is the New Atlantis. Absolutely. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Timothy Hogan. And thanks for watching this episode of Mysteries of the Knights Templar. My, my, my. Now that we know that we know that we know, we certainly got a mission, everybody. So that was the preview. Part two. No, part one. That was well, the preview. That was part one. Yeah, part one is called uh, Mysteries of the Knights Templar Atlantean Secrets Revealed. That's what we just played. No. We played the preview. That I'm was looking at it. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. Oh, well, then you played the wrong one. You were supposed to play the preview. Um, okay. Uh, what happened? You're supposed to play S1 and then the colon. What evidence is there that supports the Templars' interactions with ancient cultures found around the world in their mission to reestablish the New Atlantis? I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Timothy Hogan. And this is Mysteries of the Knights Templar. I think we've already established that the Templar mission to establish the New Atlantis was going to be in North America.
Yeah, so they had to map it. They traveled the whole site, and they left artifacts all throughout it. Possibly one of the most important artifacts in the world, in my opinion, is the Kensington Runestone. The world to this day still thinks that it's a hoax that was perpetrated by the farmer who who found it back in 1898. But we now know that that's impossible. And after taking a careful look at it, from my perspective, I followed the evidence trail from Minnesota, where the artifact was found, all the way back to Europe. And the evidence trail took me right to the Cistercians, the white monks, and the Knights Templar, who were also Cistercian. Yes, the Templar order really came out of the Cistercian order. St. Bernard of Clairvaux was the main architect of both. He was a incredible scholar and leader within the Roman Church at the time. He was a secretly a practicing Druid. He was friends with Rashi of Troyes, who was a very famous Kabbalist. And he took all this information, infused it into the Cistercian order, which became the scholarly body that began to translate and catalog all the things that then the Templar order was finding. So the Templar order would go out, find this information, bring it back for the Cistercians to start to catalog. Now, remember when I was talking about the Templars finding those ossuaries with the scrolls, the technology, the gold, and the remains of John the Baptist? Well, later on in the narrative, we know that those original Templar knights with Hugh de Payen took those scrolls and the devices, which included a cryptex, to decode those encrypted documents. And they gave them to Bernard. And he was the one that decoded them and learned about other sites around the world that had been you know, hidden in those documents and carefully encrypted to protect them. But Bernard was a scholar. He was a charismatic leader, and he was also secretly venerated the sacred feminine. Certainly Bernard, he was a defender of the Albigensians, the Albigensian Cathars, which were, again, those Gnostic families that most of the Templar Knights had come out of. And the Albigensians, as Gnostics, they venerated the feminine. In fact, the goddess Sophia, which just meant wisdom, from which the word philosophy comes from, or lover of wisdom, Mm -hmm. was one of their main goals. It represented the human soul and its fall to matter, and then its growth and development and the freedom to learn. And ultimately, different goddess figures became aspects of this Sophia. And even beyond that, the Gnostic Church at the time had women leaders, they had women priests, women bishops, which they still do to this day. So there was a very equal system, and it was something that Bernard of Clairvaux was familiar with, and he subtly tried to put that into the Roman Catholic doctrine. I've read a lot about Bernard, I've studied him pretty extensively, and I have to say, in my opinion, he is one of the most important historical figures in the history of the world, and nobody knows who he is. You know, you say Templars, they raise their hands, Cistercians, who are they? But you have to remember, when he joined the order with 30 family members, including two of his uncles, one of them being the Grand Master, Hugh de Pans, came from this region that you're talking about, right? These Burgundian families, and He joined the order when there was one abbey at Citeaux, and then he founded two years later, in 1115, the first daughter abbey of the Cistercians at Clairvaux, hence Bernard de Clairvaux. But you have to understand, by the time he died, 
in 1153. The Cistercian order had grown from one abbey when he joined to 300. And then by the time the Templars were put down in 1307, a little under two centuries later, there were over 750 abbeys across Europe, into the Holy Land, into Scandinavia, the British Isles. I mean, think about that meteoric growth. It's an amazing success story that nobody knows about. And here's the other thing a lot of people don't know about, is that Bernard de Clairvaux was the one who wrote the charter for the Knights Templar Order that was based on the Cistercian Charter of Prayer and Work. Not only that, but that original rule of the Templar Order was composed of 72 articles. And each of these articles was said to correspond to one of the 72 Kabbalistic names of God that he had learned from Rashi of Troyes, who he was friends with. Yeah. This brings us back into this universality of what the Templar Order was trying to do, what Bernard of Clairvaux recognized, and this importance of the sacred feminine. So when the Templars, who recognized the divine spark within everybody, that everybody was connected to that divine source, and that there was a feminine aspect to this, as they traveled into the New World and began to encounter indigenous tribes, the indigenous tribes had their own version of this same idea. So they were able to connect very easily. Well, they're all matriarchal, the indigenous cultures of North America. And I've had a little bit of experience with the Algonquin Nation, specifically the Ojibwa tribe, and some of their spiritual teachings and some of their rituals that they practice, their own form of Freemasonry that's called the Medewin. And several years ago, I was invited to participate in a Medewin sweat. And it took time for me to earn the right from the medicine man to ask my questions. And when my time came, he said, Scott, ask your questions. And I said, well, I would like to talk to you a little bit about the medieval Knights Templar. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you mean our blood brothers? Mm -hmm. But basically what it boiled down to is that when the Vikings came over here starting in the ninth century, the late 800s, up until the very beginning of the 11th century, They didn't get along with the natives very well. They just sort of did what they wanted. And if you don't like what we're doing, then screw you, essentially. Right. But when the Templars came over shortly after that, they were completely different. And they respected the indigenous people because this was their home. And they understood that. And they bonded through ritual because the Freemasonry that the natives practice is the same as the Templars practice. So this is how they were able to achieve a deep spiritual bond and through intermarriage. And this is what allowed the Templars to operate and pretty much go wherever they wanted for 400 years before Columbus discovered America, right? Discovered. (laughs) Yeah, you know, the Templars protected the sacred in all traditions. And it made it very easy for them to associate with other groups. One of the other groups in North America that the Templars encountered was the Mayans. So I'm really glad you brought that up because in this Cremona document material, not only do we have maps and letters and encrypted messages, but we do have artifacts. One of those artifacts is a brass seal that's actually a navigation device. Inside of it, there are some metal inserts One of those metal inserts is a small nail about this big. And what's inscribed on it is the word 
Quetzalcoatl. Oh yeah, you know something about that? Yeah, Quetzalcoatl was the the deity, you know, one of the main deities of the Mayans. I mean, he was the Osiris figure, if you will. He was the one who had died and was raised. That he had set up civilization. The Templars recognized in this myth something that they were familiar with themselves. And not only that, but the Mayans and other Nahuatl cultures. The Nahuatls, you know, included the Aztecs, the Mayans, Olmec. And, and the Olmec, others in there. They all had a myth that they had come from a previous civilization that had been destroyed by cataclysm. You've heard this before. They escaped, vaguely familiar. Yeah. They escaped in boats and came to this area. In fact, this civilization, according to them, was known as Atslan. Well... It's not too much of a stretch to connect Atslan with Atlantis. Yes. And the Nahuatl word for Itzel really meant like water wizards. So there was this connection there. Between these connections and then there were certain hand grips that were being exchanged that the Templars knew about, that they had exchanged with the Druze. These were recognized by the Mayans who had similar grips, similar initiation ceremonies. So they recognized each other as brothers. So this is a really important point because you're talking about people previously that as far as even they knew, there was no connection, at least in memory or anything that had been written down. But yet when they get together, they have the same hand gestures, same signs of recognition that must go back to pre-Younger Dryas. That's exactly Atlantis right. Atlantis again. You could try to say, oh, maybe a collective consciousness, but there's too many exact similarities. Specific, specific things. things yeah. Know, which suggests that the same tradition was being passed down on both sides of the Atlantic. No question. The Templars had inherited this. They recognized right away, hey, we're all passing on the same tradition. In fact, the Hopis talked about before the last shaking of the earth that the great spirit had given them a hand grip mm. that they could recognize each other by. And as they were separated, they knew that if they gave this hand grip, they would recognize each other again. So later on, when the conquistadors came across the plains, they met the Hopi. The Hopi went to give the grip and, and, and they didn't have it. And they got nothing. And they knew there would be problems. Wow. But when they encountered groups like the Templars... They had it. Okay, so based on all of this, let's just stick with the Maya and let's just talk about cultures around the world that build these amazing temples that seemingly were impossible to be built in the distant past, but yet here they are. And what we're finding archaeologists saying more and more is that they're pushing the origin dates back farther and farther. Now, in North America, we have the earth mounds, right? And we actually have a pyramid, an earthen pyramid in Cahokia Mm -hmm. that has a larger base footprint than the Great Pyramid of Giza. Yeah, Callensville, Illinois. Yes, along with many other different types of mounds at that amazing city that was believed to have over 50,000 people living there around 1400 A.D., which would have been about the same size or even smaller than London at the same time. But the prediction that I want to make is that there has been some scientific work done at Monk's Mound, it's called, in Cahokia, that there's actually stone work 
in the center of it. They've been able to use certain GPR to to document that. These structures are going to be older and older, and they're going to go back. And I believe they're going to predate the Younger Dryas at about 13,000 years ago and maybe even older. It's looking more and more like a lot of the dates that uh, archaeologists have put for when these things were built was actually the date in which they were restored. According to the cultures, this is what they say they did. We just haven't necessarily listened to that. But the Templars listened to it. They recognized, oh yeah, we know that to be true from back in Europe as well. And then the Templars began to set up their own artifacts around North America to document, not only create land claims, <laughs> which you think is what the Kensington Rune That's what it was. says. Acquisition business slash taking up land from Vinland, which is the northeast coast, far to the west. Right. So. So, so tell me about some of these other sites that are established around North America. Well, first of all, you're talking about what I believe are Templar artifacts, the Kensington Runestone being one, dated 1362, which is 130 years before Chris, who never set foot on the land we now call the United States of America that already had millions of people living here. The whole premise yeah. of his discovery of America is ridiculous. But this is why it was dismissed, because this narrative was so entrenched. But we also have things like the Spirit Pond runestones, which are three more Templar artifacts that are dated 1401 and 1402. We have the Narragansett runestone. We have the newer Holy Stones, which actually are Hebrew. We have the Bat Creek Stone, which was found in a Cherokee burial mound that has possibly first century Paleo-Hebrew that the Smithsonian Institute didn't recognize right away. And so they published it, but it wasn't realized that it was actually Paleo-Hebrew almost a 100 years later. And of course, what was their immediate reaction? Oh, no, 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 that's a fake, right? I mean, there's something going on here, but this is just the beginning. Obviously, I'm known for the Kensington Runestone, and I called it a land claim. It was found on the North-South Continental Divide of North America, and that's where you would put it at that time if you were placing a land claim. But perhaps the most interesting and fascinating artifacts, at least in my opinion, were found near Tucson, Arizona, called the Tucson Lead Artifacts. And those things are self-dated to the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, and they are filled with Latin. They have Hebrew. They have all kinds of interesting imagery that suggests that there was a, an ancient Hebrew culture that came from Europe at that time, probably under persecution, to a place where they knew that they would be accepted and treated well, just like the Templars did, as long as you gave the crupper the yeah. handshake. So I think what this means, at least the way I interpret this, is that the Americas were really a sanctuary for the people that were living in other parts of the world, when they suffered persecution for their ideological beliefs, they knew there was a place where they could go and they would be recepted by people that had like ideology and welcome them. Well, and, and we find this also suggested on the, the Overton Stone. Yes. Where you actually have a Templar cross. In Nova Scotia. In Nova Scotia, next to native iconography. Yeah. 
Uh, well, there's a feather, a feather, right? Right. There's cross tobacco, tobacco leaves, leaves, and right. then there's a crescent moon. Right. So I'm sure an indigenous person could help us understand exactly what that message says. Of course, right next to it is a Knights of Christ style Portuguese right. temple cross. cross. Right. That's exactly right. Well, Tim, I think it's important that we make the point that there's an ancient tradition that goes back to the Atlanteans of respect of other people, of those inalienable rights that everybody is born with, signs of recognition so you know who your friends are and, more importantly, who your enemies are. And that's what we had in North America. The indigenous people embraced that. The more you learn about indigenous people, the more you realize they've had it figured out all along how to live in balance, right? right. How to live with nature. Yes. And this has to go back to the Atlanteans. And not only that, but if, if you recall, the Templars were trying to establish a new Atlantis. And in Francis Bacon's book later on, The New Atlantis, he talks about this land where there's these people that live just as you're describing And they know the world, but the world doesn't know about them. (laughs) And this is the sanctuary for them to preserve the knowledge uh, and the tradition. So the Templars, finding that they themselves being persecuted throughout Europe, except for in a few small places, including Portugal and Scotland, they found refuge themselves in this, this area that they could then work with the natives to build a new system. Well, they knew all about North America. They knew about the indigenous people, and they had already begun to set the table before the put down in 1307. So they had they had an escape route already set to go. And this, to me, is part of the brilliance of all this. And it really just goes all the way back, like everything does, to this Atlantean culture that they had rediscovered. And by the time of the put down, they understood what that tradition was all about. It was their heritage and it was something that they wanted to continue. And it wasn't going to be in Europe. It wasn't going to be in the Middle East. It was going to be far to the West to that sanctuary, that new Atlantis. Tell me about the Newport Tower and its association with how does it connect with these other monuments and uh, the Kensington Runestone and the Templars? Well, I think, I mean, I think if anybody could talk about it, it's you. Well, getting back to the Cremona document, the Newport Tower is all through it. It's documented on the maps. It talks about when the astronomical alignments were laid out prior to its construction There's also discussion in the Cremona document about an agreement with the indigenous people that they would be allowed to build this structure here. It was all about mutual respect. You just didn't come over here and do as you please. You sat down with your brothers and you made an agreement. But this tower is absolutely incredible. It's two stories tall. It's about 26 feet in diameter. It's a round stone and mortar structure that sits on eight round heavy pillars that have round Romanesque arches and the eight archways that have capstone ledges that were designed for structural support for a first story wooden ambulatory that went around it. Now, the current narrative is this thing is I have a hard time saying this because it's so ridiculous a windmill, right? No. <laughs> I mean, even my son, Grant, who is a structural engineer in his early 30s, I asked him, I said, could this stone and mortar structure serve as a windmill? And he chuckled a little bit and said, no, dad, 
I mean, the lateral forces would tear it apart. There's no steel reinforcement. Forget it. It couldn't have been a windmill. But yet that's what the world is being told today. This was built by the Templars and it was used as that first stake in the ground. And we know it started in the latter part of the 14th century. The runestone is also dated 1362, the latter part of the 14th century. And they're absolutely connected. And I have to tell you how they're connected, literally connected. And that is there are two keystones in that tower. One is egg-shaped, which is not a coincidence. The other is a Markmaster Mason's keystone, a notched keystone. And they are back-to-back in the west northwest archway but they are not centered in the archway no self-respecting medieval stonemason would do that right so what does logic tell you they did it for a reason yes and when i first went there and discovered this illumination event that happens on the winter solstice at nine o'clock in the morning a light box from the south window creates a light box that goes down and frames out that egg at exactly nine o'clock. Now, this shadow play or light play, as it were, is something that the Templars were known to do and ancient traditions were known to do with standing stone sites found out all around the world again. Even in the cathedrals themselves. Oh, absolutely. Marks that are... That's right. That's right. A place called Saint-Sulpice. Oh, yeah, Saint-Sulpice. I've seen the Chartres Cathedral. Chartres, yep. But probably the most amazing thing, the next day I went outside and I was looking up at that keystone on the outside, back to back with the egg, the only two keystones in that tower. And then I turned and I looked to the west and it hit me just like that. And then I went home, I went on my computer and if you draw a line from the center of the tower through the only two keystones and extend that line into space, It goes to Kensington, Minnesota. That's right. Now, you can't make that up, right? Correct. Now, here's the thing. I published that in 2009. And you know, and I both know, there are a lot of people in this world that don't like this research. They don't like Templars. They don't want any of it. And don't you think if if those skeptics could have proven that alignment wrong, that I wouldn't have heard about it by now? You know what I've heard? Nothing. Crickets. Yeah. (laughs) That... Is amazing. That's right. So let's talk now about, we, we mentioned Christopher Columbus earlier, and I, there's something really important about him that I need, I feel like we need to put out. Okay. There. You know, Christopher Columbus, he had his own ambition. He began to figure out that there was probably something going on on the other side of the Atlantic. There had been whispers that the Templars had secured artifacts and had taken them somewhere else. So the church had a vested interest in trying to find where these treasures were. They didn't know that the Templars had already made pacts with the tribes on the other side of the Atlantic and were securing these things away and putting them uh, in secret vaults, actually, at the times. But what Columbus did was he figured out that the Templars had something to do with all this. So he went to the Grand Master's daughter, who was in a convent at the time, He pulled her out of the convent. He married her to secure certain maps that that her father had given her. Columbus got a hold of these maps, figured out that there was something across the water, and he went to Portugal, the king of Portugal, and said, hey, fund me 
to go across the ocean. King of Portugal was like, we're not going to fund you. We already know there's something on the other You're side. You're not telling us anything. Portugal, yeah, Portugal or Port of the Grail had been founded by the Templars as a Templar state initially. Templars were using Portugal as a, as a place to travel back and forth to the New Worlds from there. So they said, no, we're not going to help you, Christopher Columbus. And so Christopher Columbus said, fine. And he went to Portugal's enemy, which was Spain. Spain. Spain was a very Catholic country. They had already kicked the Jews and the Muslims and other what they believed were undesirables out of the country in 1492. And he went to Queen Isabella and said, fund me to go across the ocean. I will find your treasure. I'll find the artifacts. You will be the hero of the Roman church. It will secure your faith and secure your country. So they funded him. When Christopher Columbus started to go across the ocean, then he had a, he knew that there were going to be people there who had already associated with the Templars. So he had to create a ruse to be accepted. So what did he do? He put giant Templar crosses <laughs> on his sails as an announcement that when he came across, they I'm, would think, I'm back. I'm one of you guys, you know? <laughs> so they would think he was a Templar. Yeah. And uh, of course, then he tricked them. And then from there on, it was, it was unfortunately genocide yeah. for a lot of indigenous people as they were trying to find these treasures that had been brought over by the Templars. And so, thank God the native people, the indigenous people who had established these pacts with the Templars worked to preserve these artifacts uh, that the Templars had brought over and that the Templars still had association with. Once they discovered that there was, in fact, this territory on the other side of the Atlantic and that the Jerusalem treasures probably were hidden there, that became the main focus of the Roman church to bring in conquistadors and inquisition to try to secure them. Well, Tim, I think we've established and made it very clear that the Templars had deep spiritual bonds and connections with cultures worldwide, and that their ultimate mission was in North America to establish the new Atlantis but it was also called the New Jerusalem. Yeah, the Templars recognized the divine spark, the, the divine flame within everybody. It allowed them to associate with these different cultures, get along with them, work with them to establish these new ideas. And you're right, they decided they needed to establish a new heavenly Jerusalem or a new Atlantis in the area of North America. They began this task of doing it they worked with the other cultures to try to establish it, and their success in that is still yet to be determined because we're still working at it. Oh, that's a whole nother story, but we'll get to that. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Timothy Hogan. And thank you for watching this episode of Mysteries of the Knights Templar. Holy Toledo. <laughs> I'm telling you, the timing is amazing. It's time for the new Atlantis. Yeah. The new Jerusalem. That's what they said in that first piece, that this would be 
the New Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. This America, the I am race, America, A-M-E-R-I, there's the I, C-A-S, and then the first A is, uh, the first A is A, and then the next letter M, so the I plus the M, A-M, and then race has got the uh, R after A-M-E-R, and then the A at the end, A, and then the C before C, and then the E, A-M-E, I am race. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, okay, so we have a little bit of time here, so let's see if I can get this. Let me just see what time this is. Mm. Well, that is that say 6.20? Okay. Mm-hmm. We have 22 minutes. This is from Caroline, Oceana Ryan. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Archangels, Star Nations, Families, Earth Elements, Fat Fae elders, angelic legions, and other light beings known as the collective today from Lady Master Joan of Arc, Carolina Oceana Ryan. Hello, friends. A friend is suggested, has a friend suggested the other day that I channel a message from Joan of Arc. Uh, The way her name was before was. Joan, J-O-A-N, capital D apostrophe, capital A-R-C, Joan D-Arc. And considering what the world is going through now, I felt that that was a great idea. So today we'll be speaking with the Ascended Master, who is Lady Master Joan of Arc, Saint Joan. My question is... To her is, this is Joan of Arc channeling to star seat light workers, creating peace. My question to her is, there are many shifts and changes occurring on the earth now, including this terrible war being waged against unarmed civilians in Palestine. I know that in times of terrible loss, as many thousands are dying at once. It can be because there is a soul group that has volunteered to come to the earth to experience traumatic events that affect large populations. The events of September 2001 being one example. Those who left us at that time were in a special soul group who consciously took on that role before incarnating, and that would not have happened otherwise. It can create huge shifts in consciousness and an individual and group awareness, and it can encourage us to question the separation that pits one culture against another. It can also bring powerful shifts in terms of us becoming aware of who the true war criminals are, the unseen hand, and their 
being caught and brought to divine justice. You you led the French uh, army to many victories, Lady Master. You encouraged a king to take his throne despite Paris being occupied. You led the French army in retaking their land from invaders, even in Paris. Your actions and your vision helped to secure the identity of the French people. And so, how do you see this current conflict, Lady Master? What do you see as the higher reason behind it? Because even though we are blazing the transmuting violet fire of Lord Saint Saint Germain to encompass the whole of the Mideast, we are still experiencing news reports that have been dire for more than three months, and that is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So how does a young woman from a farmer's family, still in her teens, project her light so powerfully as to change the world? How do we do that? <laughs> so, I'll bring her in now. One moment. So, Lady Master Joan of Arc, greetings, fellow followers of the Path of Light. Your friend asks, in essence, why so many must die at once, with special connect, concern for women and their children and whole families and communities being killed or removed. Though my history in the earth life you refer to, sister, was one of battle and the growth of nationalism for one culture, my path is far greater and goes far deeper now than any victory won in conflict. Truly, there is no victory in conflict. Humanity is only beginning to realize that now as they see the sheer numbers of children's bodies in white bags. <sighs> These ones being called victims are very great souls, full of light, who came not to live what the human terms, quote, a long life, rather to establish not only the need rather the requirement for peace on your planet. Many of you are souls burst in connection with another galaxy or universe that does not engage in conflict. And so, you see the violence of Earth life and you find it incomprehensible. Your Earth presence, however, quiet and unperturbed, a life you may have lived till now is also a powerful signpost on the path to ascension and a peaceful life on Lady Gaia. Yet there will be no peace until the majority hold in their energies not only the desire, rather also the requirement for peace. You see many taking a stand now in other cities, holding signs and chanting that a ceasefire must occur. And though... You have seen others demonstrate in like ways over the years. You can tell, we can tell you there is a great difference now. 
For one, these are often Jewish folk themselves, standing powerfully in favor of cessation of all hostilities. That is something, the prevailing power structure, though it is now in tatters, was not expecting, not of the magnitude that it has occurred around the world, including in Israel itself. For another, these are persons of all ages, backgrounds, religions, ethnicities, and why have these ones chosen to ignore the usual cultural barriers and categories at this time? These dear ones came in for those actions, as assuredly as those dying or being injured or displaced chose that path before incarnating, not out of preference once in a human body, rather out of the soul's own desire to know strength from what has been termed sacrifice. Yet this great gift to humankind is the great is far greater than the term sacrifice entails. You have heard of Yeshu's sacrifice upon the cross, and that image was a powerful one for me in the earth life you describe. <clears throat> Yet this was not the essence of the visions uh, I received while in that earth body. Yet this was not the essence of the visions I received while in that earth body. He and those of his realms, such as St. Michael, did not speak to me in ways that glorified sacrifice of the body or of stability of daily life. He did not and does not. He is here with me now as I speak. Stress that death is in, in crux, uh, is the crux of the matter when soul growth is the thing that is sought after. In order for the vibrational environment of earth to move to a far higher level, humanity as a whole must grasp that all life is a great and sacred whole. And wholeness, the oneness of all life, and a splintered and fractured human consciousness, these are being called to finally meet and to reconcile. This is something that almost none of your purported leaders will assist you in. They endeavor to keep you from it. And so, you must claim it for yourselves. You must declare that every child's life is as precious and invaluable as every other child's life. You must decide to move above what has been called politics and the machinations of perpetual war. Move above the dire predictions and the tragic reports of loss and destruction. It is to and all, it is time to and all judgments all separations and to move it is time to end all judgments all separations and to move into your heart space where you have you have painted a higher love planted a higher love excuse me it's not having a print cartridge that's clear a steady and unyielding peace that is the journey now dear ones we do not call it the battle. 
that metaphor, though once required by humanity, as a motivation to move forward on its path, no longer suits your path or your predicament. If we turn the page here. Almost complete. We're just going to go a little over here and finish this. And we speak of predicament in the sense that your human hearts, weary with shock and overtired from carrying the grief of many thousands, will not immediately understand how to move into a place of inner peace, a refusal to despair. Some days the mind may ask, as you are entirely disconnected from what is called reality, in truth, what you see around you is only a facsimile of a reality, a projected image of temporal experience and nothing more. All of you have lived many lives in the old frequencies of struggle and hate. And now, as you absorb the absorb and attune your inner selves to the higher light, do you suppose you can remain in the old vibrations? Any more than I could lie to those who interrogated me and threatened me with execution? No, you will not remain in the old frequencies, friends. You will, you will, and you are moving forward. You are grasping the power of love that does not judge, does not condemn, does not bend under the pressure of terrible images and reports of lives lost or in peril. You may ask those of you whose countries, and there is more than one, supply and enrich the countries attacking the unarmed, how we can bear the shame of this. And to that, all of us in the higher realms would reply, release the shame This is none of your doing. Move into the place where you do not take responsibility for another's path. Move into the place where you respect the path of growth toward enlightenment, including the path you might never take on for yourselves, nor wish on another. Yet you know that as all roads lead into greater light, even these ones, who now die or despair, or who exercise a false power to kill or displace others. Even these ones will come to know the wholeness and healing their spirits now lack. Last page here. And the oneness humanity is now standing up to claim for itself. Of course, many days these words will not 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 cure your sadness or feelings of helplessness. Yet, we would say, even as you have been trained to despair and feel helpless at the sight of others' suffering, engage the power of the transmuting violet flame. Yes, call in the power of the Great Mother to end all war, all losses, all prejudice held by one against another. Not Purely by outer action comes her great intervention, rather by a rebirth of consciousness, 
within many millions of people. Hold fast to your respect for that which other souls have chosen and release them into that great light from which all have come and to which all shall return. Yes, you have this power and it carries you now to that new earth you have so destined to experience. You did not know it would be of your own making. And yet, how else would it be made, friends? And so we go forward, and this time the standard we fly above us is that not of one nation, rather of earth and her people, all of them, and of a universe in which all are loved. And this beautiful truth none can avoid. Namaste, dear ones. We are beside you every moment. Caroline Ocean and Ryan. All right, so we are going to take a little break, everybody. And we're going to play the New Year's music we didn't get to play while Uncle Don was sleeping <laughs> today. But it will be very interesting because there's some uh, narration that the orchestra person is going to speak between the pieces is very interesting. So we're going to have a really good rest of the evening. But now we're going to take the break. And then when we come back, we're going to have a look at the stars and uh, see about uh, with Richard and see about what Kate Potch has to say about them and Tanya Gabrielle. So Satnam for now, everyone. See you soon. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Okay, thank you very much, and good evening, everybody. Good evening, Richard. Yes, okay, here, let's check the old uh, solar system out here. Uh, okay. The moon just set in the west here in the eastern time zone. And it's very, very new. It's about uh, maybe three days old. It's uh, the moon's in late Aquarius. So. Okay, 29, moon's in the last degree of Aquarius, and the sun is at 24 Capricorn. Uh, Mercury is at 30 degrees of Sag, so it's going to change signs tomorrow or late tonight, along with the moon's going to change signs. So the moon's going into Pisces, Mercury's going into Capricorn. Venus is at 18, 19, Sag. Mars at 8, Capricorn. Jupiter, 6, Taurus. Saturn, 5, Pisces. Uranus is the only one retrograde now. Everybody's gone direct except for Uranus. So, uh, yeah, Uranus retrograde. That's that's kind of like Mercury retrograde, only on steroids. 
Neptune's at 26 Pisces, and Pluto's at 30. Pluto, all right, and Chiron is still hanging out at 16 Aries. So, even Jupiter is moving very, very, very slow. Richard, when does Uranus go direct? Uh, I don't know. I can't give you a date on that right now. <laughs> okay. It's going to be... I don't know. Okay. That's a hard it's one. That's a hard one to guess okay. because it's relative to Earth. The distance between... The sun and Uranus is about 115 degrees. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a trine. Sun trine Uranus now. Sun's been trine Uranus for about a week. Okay. So sun trine Uranus generates more missile fire. Uh. Yeah, everybody heard about the the, the, the Yemen attack. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. Those politicians just aren't very smart. Well, no. Nope. That's an opinion, my opinion. I'm I, I think they're pretty dumb. <coughs> dumb, 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 dumb. All right, if you've got clear skies, you'll see Jupiter just past the midheaven towards the west and Saturn if you've got a a horizon there to your west Saturn is just about ready to set so uh, that's it alright let's go listen to Kaipacha see what he thinks of this mess I mean we still got we still got uh, okay Venus, Venus square Neptune now Venus at 20 and Neptune at 26, so that's a square. Sag to Pisces. All right, Sun not really square Jupiter, but um, it was square Jupiter. It's gonna be square Jupiter. Jupiter's at six. Yeah, Sun is coming up. In a week, it's going to be in Aquarius. So Aquarius to Taurus, that'll be a square. So we're getting ready for Sun Square Jupiter. Mm. So nothing really changing right now because Mercury's moving real slow. You know, Mercury is only moving at a degree in, a, in five minutes of arc per day. Venus is moving at a degree, a little over a degree per day. They're moving about the same speed as the sun. Right? The sun is now moving a hair over one degree per day. Hmm. So that's that. All right. Thank you, Richard. Let's here we go. All right, here.
It's Guy Pacho with the Weekly Pele Report for January 10th of 2024. I'm here at the Silver Mine Park, and it is beautiful. It's a little windy, but I'm going to find a nice, quiet place. The moon is in Capricorn. We are going to have a Capricorn new moon, a Capricorn party. Mercury is moving into Capricorn on Saturday. We're going to have Mercury, Mars, Sun, Moon, Pluto, all in happy Capricorn. <laughs> Woo, baby. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, uh, but it, it's not going to go on forever after that new moon. Well, the new moon, and I'm going to be talking about it today. Okay, the new moon is square the moon's nodes. I'm going to be going into that because we have basically a Chiron North Node Eris conjunction going on for months uh, through 2024. I'm going to be talking about that a lot uh, in this weekend's workshop. But anyway, just to uh, continue on here, uh, the moon does move into Aquarius on Friday. So, you know, we've got uh, a little break and then by Sunday... Uh, she goes into Pisces. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, of course, all these other things that are happening. What I mean, today's mantra and what I want to talk to you about today is there's this kind of, uh, how can I say, a difference going on between Mars trying Jupiter. That's basically all week. It's exact on Friday, but Mars moves pretty slow, so it's going to be going on all week. And that's one type of energy. And then Venus in Sagittarius is another powerful, beautiful, freedom-loving energy, but it is in conjunct Uranus. That is exact on Sunday. Okay. Now, it is trying to Chiron up there on tomorrow and as it moves through of course we know that with Chiron in aspect to Uranus by almost exactly 30 degrees you know when a planet aspects one it's going to aspect the other so I'll be talking about that energy a little bit and how it's just the inconjunct aspect is just kind of uneasy it's an adjustment it's kind of funky kind of funky and if you did happen to pause and look at that chart at the beginning you'll notice that i included the asteroid series series the mothering nurturing earthly loving feminine energy is conjunct venus all week it's actually exact next tuesday so uh, that is just like, it's a beautiful, loving, caring, nurturing energy. And I think I'm just going to find a little spot around here and look at the camera to talk about it. All right. All right, everybody. The moon has gone into Capricorn and it is time to get serious. 
This is going to be a serious Pele report. I know people like it when I laugh and joke and smile, but there's nothing funny about what's going on these days. <laughs> oh, my God. I am preparing for the astrology of 2024 this weekend. If you have not signed up, you still want to. I'm looking at the charts of all these countries in China and Taiwan and the Ukraine and Palestine and Israel and the governments and the politicians. I'm preparing and looking at all the stuff that's going on and it's like, whoa. And then I'm looking at the aspects that are happening and, you know, we have the solar eclipse exactly conjunct Chiron. With Eris not far away, let's face it, we have a Chiron North Node Eris conjunction going on basically until May. January, February, March, April, and May. Ay, ay, ay. The North Node of the Moon is the future path of evolution. It's now in Aries from July of 23 to January of 25. And right through this, like I say, these months, it is a healing crisis. Chiron is bringing about and brings up and brings about a healing crisis. And this healing crisis is how we stand for ourselves and how we assert ourselves. And if we stifle and feel weak, how we may overcompensate Yes, and over and become aggressive and lead to violence and wars. And so we have crisis around the expression of masculine energy, which is sexual energy. It is the desire to penetrate, the desire to exert, the desire for freedom, for my rights. My instinctive animal nature comes out. This is an eight year. I talked about it. Two plus two plus four <laughs> equals eight. Eight house, Scorpio, Pluto, power. So this is an intense year. Scorpio is also ruled by Mars, the ruler of the North Node, which, yeah, I don't want to get into what I'm going to go into this weekend, but... You want to definitely look at where your Mars is and where your Venus is because Venus rules the south node in Libra. And it's almost like this wind chamber. Just think of a tunnel, okay, where the where the air and the breeze and the future is coming through that north node and going out. So, you know, wherever you've got the, the middle degrees of Libra this year, that's like the toilet flush, okay? That's like the exit door. That's like where things are leaving your space. And where you have the north node is where new things are coming in. So what we have here is this is the relationship axis. It's a year of really looking at relationship, looking at partnership as my camera falls over. And I'm traveling, so I got this funky setup with my phone. <laughs> This is the other thing. Mars in Capricorn is anger. And I just kind of woke up on the wrong side of the bed today. It's kind of gnarly, nasty. I wanted to talk about boundaries. You know, the, this week's mantra came through. You know, this is a time where, yes, we need to stand for ourselves. We need to be Aries. And this new moon in Capricorn squares 
that Aries. It squares that Chiron, squares even Libra. This is external authority, time, space, governments, banks, business, things beyond our control. It's not only Scorpio in the 8th house is what's out of our control, but a lot of the 10th house matters, like our reputation or what other people say about us. You can't control what other people say about you. It's a 10th house matter. I mean, I woke up this morning. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be honest. I got pissed off. I found out that I cannot hike around any of these mountains around here for safety purposes. There's too many robberies and murders. So I need to have an escort for my Pele report. So that pissed me off. And then I find out that it's just windy, windy, windy. And, and it, like, no matter where we go on the whole cape, <laughs> you know, it, it's just a windy freaking place. These are things I cannot control. Yeah. And this is what, you know, this is like Venus in conjunct Uranus. That Uranus in Taurus wants freedom. And, and the North Node in Aries wants freedom. And Mars in Capricorn is willing to fight for freedom. And it's trying Jupiter right now. So there's this like, you know, Tarzan thing like, yeah, go, 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 go. You know, it's just Venus and Sag wants to hike and, you know, hike up all the trails and climb the rocks. And Mars and Capricorn is a little goat wanting to get to the top. And, you know, there's all this kind of energy, energy. But there is also, right, Pluto in Capricorn. And then this moon comes into Capricorn. And what is, you know, Capricorn Cancer Axis is the physical, financial, emotional security axis. Caution. Safety. That's why we have laws, rules, and boundaries. Yeah, to put people in jail that go too far off track of what is acceptable or not even acceptable, what is human, you know. So it is laws and rules. And we are all, you know, we, we are all at the mercy. And, and, and I'm just thinking about this, you know, because it's like we incarnate into this planet. I mean, this in a, in a way, this is our container. Time and space are our container. Uh, you know, th this this planet is our container. We're coming into this age of Aquarius. And I'm going to be talking about Pluto going into Aquarius. Yeah, this Saturday and Sunday. Uh, the link is below in the notes. <laughs> Throwing that in. But it's a big shift. It's a big change. After Pluto's been in Capricorn since 2008, it's moving into Aquarius for the next 20 years. And this is a breaking out, a liberation from. Capricorn is conforming to our conditioning, its conservation. It has to do with our parental and societal patterning, conditioning. This is okay, this is not okay. This is proper conduct. Uh, this is, you know, revolution and rebellion. 
uh, you know, this is acceptable. You go to jail for this. I, this is, we are all brought up. And the thing is that I'm looking at all these different countries' charts. And then we, so we're not only in this one container, but even within that container, we've got smaller containers. Yes? Different language, different religion, okay? Different gender, different financial status. Someone who incarnates into China is going to have a completely different programming, patterning than someone in the United States or Israel, right? Or South Africa here. I mean, so we, you know, we incarnate according to particular soul intentions. I want this color skin. I want this gender. I want this language. I want, you know, this much money. I want blah, 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 blah. Because in this particular lifetime, I need to learn, grow, change, evolve, release, let go of, liberate myself from. I mean, there's all kinds of intentions for every incarnation. And, you know, it comes with the territory. And so then I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's like, what can I, I I likened it to like a swimming pool, you know? Well, like we're caught in this swimming pool (laughs) and we can't swim outside the pool, you know, and and the temperature of the pool, the the size of the pool. I mean, these are things, you know, we just there. This is Saturn. (laughs) This is Capricorn. This is just like, guess what? This is external reality. Boom. You know, you are not totally 100% autonomous, sovereign, independent, free, and liberated. Uh, 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 uh. You've only got so much money. You've only got so much time. You've only got so much da, 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 da. I mean, it's just, Saturn is limitation. Capricorn is limitation. So when we come, you know, with all of this type of energy, you know, it's time for us to deal with limitation and how do we deal with that and how do we deal with crisis it was great i read this article from the anthroposophical society this week around crisis and 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 the author talked about crisis being a rupture it's a rupture it's a breaking up. It's like a, a pimple that has to pop, right? Can only take, 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 take so much. The hot water heater, you know, gets too hot and it has to pew, explode. This is a, this is a crisis. And we have numerous crises happening. Not only in individual people's lives, but in the lives of nations, of peoples. And what is this crisis about? It is a rupture. And this is the interesting twist. And some of you may go for this a little more than others, but here we go, okay? You know, the outside reflects the inside. This author talked about inner transformation is where we face and we confront our own limitations, our own weaknesses, our own past conditioning. And we struggle and we wrestle and we deal with, you know, our 
inner limitations of my thinking, of my past, of my, you know, of, you know, of who I am. So when we're doing our inner work and we are transforming ourselves, we are going through one internal mini crisis after another. If you're doing your shadow work, <laughs> if you're in an intimate relationship, no. <laughs> if you're, you know, if, if you're needing to become conscious of your unconscious and you do it willingly, you don't resist the evolutionary process and you go through these little mini crises, you know, guess what? It's like, boom. Okay, those are your crises. And when you don't, when you avoid, deny, you don't do your North Node in Aries. You've got, you're a wounded Chiron in Aries. It's like, I'm not going to uh, be aggressive. I don't want to assert myself. I don't want to confront anybody. I don't want to fight. I'm light and love and la, 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 ba, 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 ba. Yeah? Guess what? Crisis comes to you. <laughs> if you are not looking at identifying, becoming conscious of, and doing your inner wrestling work yourself, so the outside world comes in and you unconsciously hire other people to mess with you until you do assert yourself until you do it. I, I looked at it. The the metaphor that I had was like, you know, just think of it. If you, uh, your, your house, you've got to weed your own garden. Let's say you own a house, you got a garden, you got it, you know, and if you don't pull your weeds, which involves killing plants, <laughs> it's a very Shiva kind of a thing, right? Weeding your garden. It's like, I'm going to kill you and kill you and kill you and kill you. <laughs> anyway, let's say that you don't weed your garden. You don't cut your grass. It's like, okay, you know, you've got this yard and your grass is growing. You got to get out there with that lawnmower and go chop, 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 chop. Or you, or you will become overgrown. Not only will you become overgrown and your garden won't produce enough uh, food for you to eat and survive and live on, but some of those weeds may go over into your neighbor's garden. <laughs> yeah, right. And then, then you have, then your neighbor comes banging on your door. You have not weeded your garden. You are a slob. Okay, you know, your, you know, your place looks like a shack. You end up with a crisis between yourself and your neighbor. And so it's like when we don't do our inner work, we get, you know, opportunities presented to us from the outside where we have to become aware. We have to evolve. We have to grow. And so these crises that we're dealing with, on one level, we can look at them as opportunities. Yeah? Opportunities to break free from the past. Because, yes, 
There are past supports that we have had that gives us a sense of security. It gives us a sense of identity. It gives us a sense of stability and predictability, but it also binds us to the past. It also limits our expression and limits our future. So we are both supported by the past and we are bound by the past. And we need to break free of those binds of the past and move into change. Now, Capricorn is a cardinal sign. It wants to initiate change. Let's make no doubt about it. And that's why this mantra this week, Mercury, Mars, Moon, Sun, Pluto, five so-called planets in that same sign of the zodiac, this is a time for us to take charge of our own life, of our own self. And where do we have loss? K2, the south node of the moon, wherever that is in your chart, house, sign, aspect, Libra. Okay, going through Libra from, I think it's at like, uh, 19 degrees now, it's going to be going through uh, 19 down to zero through 2024, okay? Look, look, look where that is, because guess what? That's where it's lost. That's where it goes out. That's where it's really time to let go. It's time to let go of being nice, being diplomatic, being political, Yeah, you know, like stifling our inner animal, you know, uh, know, uh, controlling, maybe suppressing, denying our anger, trying to smooth things over. There's a couple of signs that just don't like confrontation. I immediately think of Pisces, (laughs) Neptune, and I think of Libra, Venus, Venus, the lower octave of Neptune. Venus also rules Taurus. We could say Taurus is not really, you know, a fighter. Cancer's not a fighter. Okay, you know, we got a, we got a number of, you know, signs, energies. You want to just look at your own chart. You know, where is your Neptune? You know, where is your Venus? Where is your moon? The moon doesn't really like to fight. So you get, you, you have these, we, we all have these spaces, these spots, these places where we can dumb down, dumb down, baby. And now we come up to a new moon. And that new moon square the moon's nodes is what we call a skipped step. In order to heal the wound of Chiron, in order to really be free, in order to be sovereign and true to ourselves, We have to take that skip step. We have to take charge. We have to be the boss. We have to draw the line in the sand. We have to make boundaries. We have to say, this is my yard and that's your yard. I don't want your weeds in my yard. I'm not going to have my weeds going in your yard, right? But, you know, good fences make good neighbors. Knowing your boundaries, knowing what's okay and what's not okay, 
not allowing yourself to be trampled on, not allowing the bully on the beach, you know, to cross your line in the sand. So, yeah, this is a year. Okay. And particularly this month, this, this new moon, it sets the tone for the whole month. Okay. But, you know, this is a, a, a very strong time right now where, yeah, there's going to be wars this year. They're not going away. They're not disappearing. And it's not just, you know, the Middle East and it's not just the Ukraine. You know, th- there's wars all over the freaking place. Those guys just happen to be hitting the newspapers, okay? And there's wars, you know, inside this country, that country. There's wars in the families. There's wars in businesses. There's war. I, it's, and, you know, when all else fails, you know, people turn to violence. And, uh, you know, it will be nice when we evolve you know, as a species to a place where we don't need to resort to violence in order to get our needs, our needs met. The wound of Chiron in Aries is I don't deserve to exist. I'm too weak to get what I want. I am not independent and free, you know, to, you know, to really fulfill my desires. I am powerless I am impotent. This needs to be healed, but the only way it's going to be healed if we don't step up to the plate and if we don't, you know, own our anger and if we don't, you know, raise the kundalini and, you know, come out of, you know, Mars rules this, you know, the second chakra, right? You know, in the solar plexus, the third chakra, we got to get in touch with these lower chakras, and not just be talk, talking heads. Libra's an air sign. South node in Libra is talk, 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 talk. Now let's talk about it. Let's come to the peace accords and the peace tables and draw up treaties and da, 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 da. And it's just like, you know what? Ugh. The north node is Aries. It's like it's time to assert powerfully and strongly who you are, what you want, where you're going, what's okay, what's not okay, and make yourself known. This is like, you know, I, I, I almost think that, you know, I know Gemini rules the elbows, but this is like making elbow room. Yeah? So this is a month and this is a week. You know, make yourself some elbow room. <laughs> Draw your lines in the sand, baby. Ow! So... My lack of boundaries and fear to say no have created the box I'm in. If I want to be free, I'm going to need to draw my line in the sand. So, yeah, you know, it's like when you don't let other people know What's okay and what's not okay. You can't necessarily blame them for invading your space, breaking your boundaries, because you didn't, you didn't, you weren't assertive enough to speak them. Yeah. And not only speak them, but then 
There's consequences for breaking my boundaries. There's consequences for invading my space. There's, you know, da, 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 da. so it's not even you can build a fence, but then you got to maintain it. So you, you know, you may say, oh, yeah, I've got good boundaries, you know, I da, 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 da. but you got to hold. And this is especially Capricorn endurance, perseverance, commitment through time. Yeah. And then and it's like consciously changing those boundaries. Maybe last year in 2023, that was not OK with me. But I am going to let go of that binding, limiting boundary. And I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to do my, you know, Uranus and Taurus. I, I'm going to experiment, you know, with the five physical tenses, senses and, and touch and pleasure and, you know, uh, you know, living on planet Earth and in this body. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to break out. I'm going to break free. I'm going to let go of those boundaries, but. I'm going to create a new set of boundaries that just gives myself a little more space. So this is all that we can really do. Like I'm, I'm feeling and I'm thinking it's like, okay, you know, we can only control so much. Number one, it starts with our mind. Nobody can control your thoughts. Okay. <laughs> we can think anything we want <laughs> so we are free in our thoughts on what we focus on what we think about what we you know i mean yeah where our attention rests and then from our thoughts you know in some degree we are you know somewhat free in our feelings i mean our feelings get triggered they're subconscious and unconscious and, you know, smells and memories and, you know, people and movies or whatever bring up maybe unwanted feelings. But in, we can still we are still free in how we deal with our feelings. And maybe in our intimate relationships, we have a little more control, but then it starts to really go away very fast. <laughs> As soon as you get in a car on a bicycle or walk out your door, you know, you know, there's like, boom, you know, there's way, way many things beyond your control, right? So all we can do is kind of, and I know when I do workshops, you know, and you do ceremony for the new moon or you invite spirit into your container, you want to create safe space. This is where intimacy can happen. This is where you can be more vulnerable. And as you become more vulnerable and open, okay, you can really transform and change on deeper soul levels. So we do want safety. So there was this part of me like, I don't care what they say, you know, I'm not going to get attacked. I'm going to go hiking out by myself and, you know, to, you know, to foo with you, uh, nobody can stop me, uh, you know, but no, no, actually, there, there is a space, there is a need on this planet for safety, for protection. In fact, this is the highest expression of Aries, Mars, the warrior energy is protection. 
So not only do we stand for ourselves, but we may also protect others if we really want to, you know, step out there. So anyway, you just kind of get this energy that this week is about assertion, not aggression, but assertion, drawing that line, holding the line, and doing our inner work so that we don't have so many crises externally happening in our lives if we are really actively inward. Yeah? One last time, let you go, babe. It is my lack of boundaries and fear to say no have created the box I'm in. If I want to be free, I'm going to need to draw my line in the sand. Don't be afraid to say no. Capricorn doesn't have any trouble saying no. Saturn doesn't have any trouble saying no. Libra has trouble saying no. Pisces, you know, some of these other, you know, there's, there's, there's definite. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> enough. Namaste. Aloha. So much no. <laughs> <laughs>
So there's your answer to that, Tara. Uranus goes stationary direct next Saturday. All right. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. That's good. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a, two steps forward and one step back. Right. Except in astrology, it's degrees. Right. Yes. That's but it's, true. It's the same thing, you know. Humans are so dumb, they have to repeat the lesson, or repeat it again, and continue to repeat it. Forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> so, okay, everybody, listen to Tanya, see what she might be talking about. And I will join you again next week. Yes, thank you, Richard. Thank you. Here we go. All right, watch out for the squirrel, squirrely energies. You know how squirrels are, especially when they get on the ground. They're right. very erratic. Oh. They they run, you know, five feet and freeze and stop it and they'll run twenty five feet and they'll stop and freeze and look around and then they'll change direction and they'll run another direction and then they'll stop freeze. That's <laughs> the motion of the squirrel. Gotta hide those nuts somewhere. And somewhere yeah, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. <laughs> All right, peace out. Peace out, Richard. Thank you. Here we go, Rella. Thank you. Hello there. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the astrology and numerology, and we're going to check out a very exciting lunation, the first lunation of the year, the Capricorn New Moon, happening on January 11th, so 1-1-1-2024, such an exciting date as I'll get into shortly, but this Capricorn New Moon happens with the sun and moon at 20 degrees. And it will be the third of five consecutive new moons at 20 degrees, which in itself is quite amazing because when the sun and moon are together, 2020, it means 2020 vision is activated. Clarity, insights, shining the flashlight really closely on whatever it is we need to see. And because it's the first lunation and happening on the 11th, new beginnings, the portal, and because the date for 1-11-2024 also adds up to 11, so we literally have the 11-11 portal open, this is really very significant. So the 2020 aspect of this third of five consecutive new moons means that we are aligning with incredible truth. We are seeing things much more clearly over these months leaning into the new year, of course. Now, at the same time, in the full moons, we have consecutive full moons at five degrees, and that's the number of freedom. So freedom and clarity are really magnified at this time. So sun and moon at 20 degrees, universal day and date is 11, 
both 20 and 11 reduced to the number two. Two is the number of diplomacy of two people coming together, listening closely, being intimate. So this is very much about being inspired and always seeking harmony in everything. So the number two is the number of peace, the number that seeks balance and seeks to look at the other side, to listen closely and gain wisdom and understanding. So these are going to be key themes in 2024 because we are starting this way. We also began with a very powerful January 1 code. If you remember, Mercury stationed direct that day in Sagittarius. Jupiter, the ruler of Sagittarius, stationed direct literally hours before that. So there's a lot of joy as well and expansion. And Mercury in Sagittarius means positive thinking, positive words, positive communication, as opposed to going into stories and future scenarios that are negative, so worry and fear. So all of these are being activated in the first month on very potent days, and then now we come to Capricorn. So we have this lunation in Capricorn, and Capricorn governs our career sector, our destiny, what we're here to do, what the world sees us do in terms of our passion, right? Something that we bring, our abilities, our gifts. It's ruled by Saturn, Capricorn, and Saturn is about work and being disciplined and taking life seriously and timing. And so this new moon at 20 degrees means that we are going to be listening more, seeing more clearly, and working more closely, intimately with whoever we are serving through our work. Now, because there are so many ones in this code, it is a time to explore other ways of pursuing your career, maybe new projects or marketing your projects in a different way. Knowing that you have a voice, but that voice may carry a more profound, courageous message this year. After all, 2024 is an eight universal year of leadership and courage. So it really is about manifestation and bringing your goals into an actual practical expression so that they can be of service to others. Others can either purchase from you or others will receive something from you through your job that is very meaningful, very encouraging to them and empowering to them and you as well, of course. So the discipline through Capricorn and also Saturn, the planning and the being realistic as opposed to looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, pie in the sky, right? We need to really see that how we approach everything really carries meaning that is both practical and spiritual. And to help us with that, the sun and moon are trying to Uranus. Uranus will be at 19 degrees Taurus, the sun and moon, of course, 20 degrees Capricorn. And that really impacts our independence and our willingness to do things in a new way, a unique way, a way that may be unconventional 
definitely uses innovation and a sense of ingenuity, being the inventor of some new way that you get inspired by. So this trying to Uranus is lightening the energy. Uranus rules the new age we're moving into as we speak, the Aquarian age. And so we are all being asked to not carry these heavy loads that are more represented by a, a sign like Capricorn and a planet like Saturn, which takes responsibility and lighten the energy without taking away from the actual meaning and message. So Uranus inspires us to channel our inner genius to really understand we have an ability to do something in a very unique way. We don't have to copy someone else. We can get inspired, motivated by others, but we don't want to be cookie cutter and politically correct. We want to branch out. We want to not toe the line, but receive divine guidance that inspires us and gives us the incredible magnetism that this whole year represents. So this way, you don't care what others actually think about it. You just care that you have inspiration that is motivational and that inspires. So the opinions of others carry no meaning whatsoever. You're basically taking your power back in that way, right? That's the unique factor. So all you want to focus on is what is my true expression from within? Does it ring true to me in my heart? And then it will carry tremendous force. Now, remember that Capricorn is the sign that Pluto is currently at the very, very, very end of. So Pluto's at late 29 degrees by the time we have this Capricorn new moon and will be leaving on January 20th, I believe it is, 20th, 21st. So Pluto is leaving Capricorn and will be out of that sign for most of the year, except for a two and a half year period, two and a half month period from September 1st to November 19th. And then it will be history for Capricorn and Pluto. Then it moves into Aquarius for 20 straight years until 2044. So really what we're going to see most of this year is Pluto leaving Capricorn and moving into Aquarius. And that means that this final few days Right after this Capricorn new moon, that Pluto is right at the very end on the critical 29th degree, the final degree, is going to be very potent, very strong energy, a lot of Capricornian energy where you're going to be empowering yourself and releasing yourself from beliefs, from ideas that are old. Pluto purges, Pluto transforms, Pluto changes, and Pluto really, in a sense, allows you to completely let go and say no to anything that is an impediment to you. And these would be usually beliefs, habits, ideas that are old school. They don't apply to you anymore. They were hand-me-downs. And so, again, they may carry a load, an impediment that then impedes the joy and freedom that you seek. That is so important for this year. Remember, we started this year with such a joyful Jupiter-themed, Sagittarian-themed message on January 1st. And so there really is this opportunity now to move forward with that kind of positive energy. So another beautiful trine 
aside from the one to Uranus from the sun and moon is a trine between Mars and Jupiter. Speaking of Jupiter, Jupiter will be at five degrees in Taurus and Mars at five degrees in Capricorn. So it will be an exact trine and five is the number of freedom. Five is the number of the current full moon cycle, which is happening at five degrees. So again, it echoes the message of Uranus freedom, independence, liberation. Mars loves that idea to begin with. Jupiter makes it larger, bigger, because Jupiter makes everything in terms of it. what it touches, it enhances it, it magnifies it. So Jupiter sees the big vision, is very excited about the new beginnings of the vision, which Mars represents, and there's an increased desire to succeed, to apply your attention, intentions, to focus them on what brings you joy, Jupiter, and then see the results unfold and probably rapidly because Mars moves quickly and making positive goals that help you take the initiative that you then benefit from because of all these wonderful opportunities that this transit brings. Now, Mars and Jupiter together also create a trine to Saturn. And this is very important because Saturn rules Capricorn and thus rules this new moon. Saturn is at four degrees in Pisces. So this is also a beautiful triangle that's created. And when Mars and Saturn come together, there is a sense of a lot of energy, uh, taking your work seriously, making time to commit to things that uh, are meaningful, especially relationships, and having the patience because Saturn slows things down. And, you know, Mars usually can get impatient, but this will give you that sense of timing and waiting it out and allowing things to unfold naturally that really helps with successful outcomes. And then Jupiter sextile Saturn is very helpful for tremendous growth and a time for you to take a risk, try a new approach and gain a lot of self-awareness and wisdom. So you also take your responsibilities seriously, but you do so in a very happy-go-lucky way. So you allow life to guide you. It's It's like this divine faith that you have. And even If you have a restriction from Saturn, because Saturn does restrict in order for you to focus on what's most important, so it restricts distractions, in other words, you'll venture out with a lot of freedom and you'll feel your prosperity really growing with this connection. So again, this happens on an 11 day, this new moon, on an 11 date. The 11-11 portal is absolutely vital It's a beautiful, extraordinary moment at the beginning of the year with this first lunation, a very exciting moment, a moment that actually propels you forward into what it is you love. And it truly is also a spiritual awakening because when you walk through that 11, it means that you leave everything else behind. So all your preconceptions and beliefs are no longer part of the equation. And the reason is you are so focused on the present moment, on the here and now, that 
your beliefs actually don't play a role anymore. It is just your intuition that guides you. So this is a deeply spiritual experience, an initiation, really. When you put all of the components together, there is a sense of being initiated as the year begins. And so to find out more about all the spiritual awakening that is happening on Earth right now, I have a free online class that you can watch at spiritualmasteryclass.com. It's called How to Master Your Stars, The Truth About Taking Your Power Back. And in an eight universal year, let me tell you, that is what this year is about, is taking your power back. And what we cover in this class is the true meaning of your rising sign, the secrets to spiritual mastery, the important difference between individuality and uniqueness, what we just talked about, also your natal sun and natal moon's placement and how that placement has a profound impact on your life and how to instantly connect with source, with your guides, with spirit, with your inner voice, with your higher self and many more secret tools. So it's free, it's fun and you can watch it at spiritualmasteryclass.com. So have a beautiful Capricorn new moon on the 11th of January. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. behind you and true love will find you, right? Cross over the bridge. Okay, Rava, what's the phone number? Uh, 720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353-863-POUND. All right, let's do that one more time. 720-716-7301. And the pin code? 353-863-POW. And so we'll see you there on the conference call. And then at the top of the very next hour, we'll be back, right back here at BBS Radio, Best Radio in the neighborhood, wherever you might be living. (laughs) Okay. So... See you on the conference, everyone. Happy New Year again. Namaste. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Rama. Hari Rama, Hari Krishna, huh? Hari. Hari. <laughs> Hari, Let's just keep Penny in the circle of support, everybody. It's kind of been lately that she's needing more rest. I think that's what that congestion and headache. I have had some migraines that are that's long gone, though it's a long time ago. Oh dear. But uh, this is um, afterlife.
and the Cult of Skepticism is the title here. And this is Regina Meredith, uh, and her guest is Daniel Drossen, D-R-A-S-I-N. What if an ordinary household voice voicemail recording actually revealed a hidden message sent from a long deceased loved one reaching out from the after afterlife. Daniel Drossen joins Regina Meredith to share footage of instrumental trance communication and electronic voice phenomena as material proof of direct contact with the dead. See photos discovered by Drossen on an underground roll of film, excuse me, undeveloped roll of film, of physical beings from lower densities from his early life exploring precognition to his career as a filmmaker documenting uh, ufology and most recently his book publication Drossen has always believed in the open inquiry inquiry of our physical senses and our greater reality. Drossen specializes, speculates, excuse me, what as the established cult of, can you get those papers out of Her Royal Highness's way? <laughs> okay. Um, let me get the last sentence in here. Um, what as the established quote unquote cult of skepticism no longer pre, no longer precludes, precluded us from embracing afterlife transition. All right. This is 41 minutes. So we'll get started here now. One of the missions in my own career is to help people become more comfortable with the innately scary things in life, such as death. The more knowledge we have, the more experience with the subject, the less we fear it. Today's guest, Dan Drazen, has done a wonderful job of demystifying the natural process of transitioning to a less dense reality when this incarnation is finished. And Dan, thank you so much for joining us here. I, I haven't seen you since I met you 20 years ago. <laughs> Who'd have thought we'd be here sitting across from each other? Met mm-hmm. you in a strange circumstance, right. but we kind of very loosely stayed in touch through mm-hmm. the years. And 
I just love what you've been doing. Thank you. Likewise. I really admire the work that you've been doing over the years, and I really appreciate the invitation to be with you today. Well, you're most welcome. First of all, I have to tell the audience, you are going to be dazzled by these film clips that you're going to hear. So let's start more with your interest, your innate interest from the beginning, which is you are very interested in understanding that life is about consciousness. It's it's about frequency. It's not about this this meat suit, as some say, that we're right. wearing. And that has put you on an amazing path as a filmmaker and a producer of putting together some films that actually prove the existence of the afterlife, physically prove the existence of the afterlife. And everyone loves these films. So, but I want to start more with your own ideas on consciousness and why you decided to write this particular book. Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure how far back it goes, but probably to my early childhood when I became aware of having precognitive dreams, Mm -hmm. dreams that would in some sense come true shortly, shortly afterwards. Um, I didn't, I didn't understand this, but it gave me an important clue that in the theater of life, stuff goes on backstage. Mm-hmm. There are aspects to reality that are not necessarily reflected in, in the materialistic, within the physical world that we believe we inhabit exclusively. So this took the form of an abiding interest in, in various things that our culture considered to be outside the norm. Became very involved in UFO research over the years, starting actually way back in the early days when it was not a controversial topic. Would you explain that again? Well, back in the... What days, what what era are you talking about? I'm talking about the 1940s and 50s. Right, right. Yes. Uh, I'm an an old guy. I was born in 42. Uh So I I, I don't quite remember Roswell, but Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, I do remember listening to a radio broadcast every evening, a a mainstream New York uh, news commentator named Frank Edwards. And he would give UFO sighting and landing reports, which yeah. were which were a, a perfectly acceptable um, realm of, of discussion at that time. Yes. Uh, before the curtain came down in the 1950s, and it became a, 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 an object of ridicule. Yes. So um, that I was very intrigued with that, and that was another for me another example of what goes on backstage. Mm-hmm. As Actually, as you're talking about that, I remember as a news anchor in the 19, early 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have the stuff come across the wire, mm. across Reuters and such, AP, where mm-hmm. there had been a sighting and the police were called and the whole town was aware of what had gone on. Mm. And I was always warned, no, I'd try to write stories on it. They always told me, we don't do that. You toss them out. And so they never made it on. Mm-hmm. And that was part of that repression you're talking about. Right. It's not as though it's not happening. It's not as though news stations don't know. They won't allow you to know, us to know. Right. So continue on. Yeah, and then, of course, we know that's going on today as well. There's mm-hmm. this whole battle between the, the uh, disclosure elements yes. in the armed forces now as well. Yeah. Uh, and and the old guard, as it were. And, uh, you know, those of us who are really interested in, in bringing the uh, the hidden together with the, with the obvious, yes. as it were, um, are following this very, very closely. Mm-hmm. And I think the question of a so-called afterlife is part of this. Mm-hmm. Part of this bigger picture of, of disclosure. Yeah, in your book, The New New Science of the Afterlife, which I loved Thank because you. you get right to the point. But I love the fact you're so in the face with some of the statements you made. And in fact, I'm going to bring a couple of them up. It's like I rem- I was writing my little notes. Love it. <laughs> because you just don't put up with fools anymore. You know, you've reached that point in life. And basically you're saying the big block to 
our understanding of the nature of life and reality has been materialism, scientific materialism. At the same time, you're using a materialistic approach because that's where we live. We live in that world. You're using that to help us understand the invisible. Well, yes, I think it's important to bring in as much physical evidence mm-hmm. of the metaphysical as as we can get our hands on. Absolutely. Uh, instrumental transcommunication is one aspect of that. That is communication from the other side through modern electronics. Mm-hmm. But anything that brings the unfamiliar into the realm of the familiar mm-hmm. is is a bridge builder. Absolutely. For, for people's awareness. Yeah, and those are the two documentaries we're going to be focusing on in a little bit. Calling mm-hmm. Earth, which is that technology, mm-hmm. and then the famous skull uh, the afterlife experiments, right. what you call the video, but the famous skull experiments right. out of England, which were just phenomenal. You did a great job on that. So let's look back. And I, 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 I want to give a credit to my co-producer, Tim Coleman, who yes. worked with me on these documentaries, which we started back in the early 2000s, took us um, over 10 years to produce these. And um, anyway, I hope. Well, I hope they're very know. carefully done. I mean, you have great examples of this. Phenomena, which we're going to be showing the audience in a little bit. So basically what you're talking about in the book is uh, to begin using our own discernment, because as you say, materialism became its own religion that could not be questioned. And a lot of people watching this when they're trying to talk to their friends and their family will be given a bit of the cold shoulder, made fun of because they dare paint outside of the materialism Color box. Or, or worse. Or worse. When people, people have been committed to psychiatric institutions, ostracized by their families, so Historically, on. they have been put and, away. And, and this is, it's still going on. I've, I've, I've met people who, um, to whom this has occurred in, in, in recent decades. So. You know, so it's, it's almost as if we're, we're still at the tail end uh, of, of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Fighting, fighting the advent of, of, of a coming enlightenment, as it were. Yeah. Um, and this is beginning to change now, of course. It is beginning and to change. And as you call it, it's been the worship of, and explain this because I love it, the worship of building blocks. Right. <laughs> the worship of building blocks. Yeah. If, if you, if you look into, um, materialistic science, which is only one kind of science, because science is just a method of inquiry. Mm-hmm. It's not wedded to, to a materialistic approach necessarily. But it often is. And, you know, we, we find uh, the leading edge of physics going on at least a hundred years has been looking at smaller and smaller particles and the particles that make up the smaller particles and the ones that make up those particles. And hopefully, hopefully they'll find the, the, the real God particle one day. And then what? And then what? <laughs> Which is pure consciousness. Well, that, but they, they don't go that far. No, they don't. They will never go that far. And even quantum physics, which is now about 100 years old, mm-hmm. century old, um, they had to label it quantum mechanics right. to get it acceptable. That's true. Right? You're right. They had, right. they had to do that. And that, that's what really began to push the envelope away from a, a kind of solid building, building block reference uh, in connection with what we call reality. Right. And it's interesting that, that when you ask a skeptic what reality is, or what I call a pseudo-skeptic. Yeah, we'll, I was going to we'll, bring we'll that up. We'll get into that. They'll, they'll always pound their fist on the table and say, this is a reality, mm-hmm. right? right? The physical. But even the physical plane is not just solid. Our bodies are what percent water, yeah. right? Yeah. There's liquids, there's gases, there's plasmas. So what we take to be physical is, is not physical 
quote unquote physical, the physical plane. It's purely non-physical. If you look at it on an atomic level, there's nothing here. Right, right. We're a perception. Exactly, exactly. And this gets into the question, you know, when we speak of the afterlife, we use the term the veil, Mm -hmm. right? What's the veil? In my book, I I try to make a case for the veil being our senses. Our senses are tuned to a very, very narrow band of reality. We take that to be all there is. Now, we know that you and I sitting here right now have tens of thousands of radio and television broadcasts and wireless communications going through this space and through our bodies as we speak. But they don't exist unless we have a device that resonates with it. I think that's a, a model for our physical senses versus what we call the greater reality. I agree with that. And you wrote here, and I wrote down a couple of the things you said, is that materialism is an assumption about reality. Mm -hmm. It's just an assumption. And it's supposed to be about open inquiry without knowing the answers or outcomes. And that's what science seems to be most afraid of, is not having the pat answer. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it's science so much, but the scientific and academic establishment. Yes, that's a that's which, a fairer way to which, say it. Of which, which, in some ways, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of sorry for it because institutions often have to maintain at least a somewhat conservative um, standpoint. The yes, same, but, same to thing, stomp, but to completely stomp out potentials is not cool. Right, that's crossing a line. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're probably familiar with the story of John Mack, mm-hmm. right, who uh, was a, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, almost lost his tenure there because he was in, investigating uh, UFO abductions. And uh, ultimately, they couldn't <laughs> they, they, they couldn't you know, kick him out because he followed proper scientific protocol all the way. Yes, and, that's a good example. Right. And then this is where science and in, institutional inertia you know, butt heads. Mm-hmm. And you know, in our society, it's inevitable there's going to be some of that. But I think it's time to shift gears now. I think it is too. And the work you're doing is really moving us toward that. I hope so. I hope so. I think that that particularly in, in, in our time uh, with so many stresses and so much loss of life as well in the, in the world, uh, that we do need to shift our perspective on death. I use the term afterlife very loosely. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's somewhat misleading. Actually, the, the longest chapter in my book is about language and how language influences our yes. take on reality. And I try to have some fun with that as well. Afterlife presupposes that consciousness is created in the body and then somehow continues afterwards. Yeah. And I don't think it works that way. <laughs> I think we've, we've been here that the self, the inner being has been here forever. And, you know, we take on these bodies and these human lives. Uh, for whatever purposes that we as individuals and as groups may choose. And then we pass on to the next phase. Mm-hmm. And un- until, until we, we start understanding that as a, as a flow pattern rather than a series of hard edge comings and goings, as it mm-hmm. were, I think we're, we're going to be, um, stuck in some very old patterns. Yeah. Thought, it's kind of a dark age, in, in my opinion, that we've been stuck in. I agree. And when you're talking about death, there's been so much death, and there's going to be more. I mean, I think the the thing we went through over the last few years is not done. I think this mm-hmm. is going to happen a couple more times anyway. Mm-hmm. So one thing that um, a channeler that we talked to here named Lee Harris, mm-hmm. his group are called the Z's, and they're very pragmatic. And I was chatting mm-hmm. with them recently, and they said, 
The problem is humans are so sentimental about death. <laughs> when it's just another transition you've all been through so many times and will be going through so many more. And so to get us over that fear of the ego identity non-existing, not existing any longer, that's the real catch. Is the fear that we don't matter and that we won't be remembered as though we were never here to begin with. Well, that's a good point. And, and I think that's mostly what people fear, not understanding. This story goes on and on. You've already been through so many of these iterations. So let's and, talk. And one, one, other, yeah. one other point about time. Um, one thing that I discovered almost by accident not too long ago uh, was the nature of eternity. Mm-hmm. Eternity is not merely an infinite extension of time. That's a very tricky one. That is. So explain it. I'm not sure it can be explained, but only experienced. But I can talk about it. Um, this experience occurred to me quite unexpectedly while I was watching a YouTube video of a, of a channel session with a, a young boy who had taken his life, a Skype session between him through a medium and his mother. And um, without going into a lot of detail, just watching this interaction, I was suddenly brought into the space of what I think I can only define as eternity. It lasted in objective time. It lasted about less than a minute. Uh But during that time, I realized, oh, my God, eternity is not just an infinite extension of what we call time. It is totally open ended. And our human minds have trouble wrapping it, wrapping themselves around anything that doesn't have beginnings and endings. Well, that's true. We live in a very linear dimension of time. And it's divided up incrementally. Yes. One of the interesting things about the the new James Webb Space Telescope Ah, is that it has brought out of the woodwork the cosmologists who are uh, loosely um, labeled the eternalists. Oh, yes. Which I was really quite unaware of until recently. That's fascinating. There are cosmologists who have proposed that there never was a beginning and never will be an ending. And that's really hard for our... It's hard for us to get our minds around. The point is that we are, I think, in the process of understanding what we call time in a new way. Mm -hmm. And that obviously encompasses questions of birth, life, and death. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's the game we're all playing one way or another. So you're capturing part of it in your films, which we'll show in just a little bit here. So... You mentioned pseudo-skeptics before, and this is a good point, because I'll tell you what I couldn't stand working in the news and, and mm. media, mainstream media, is if you wanted to bring any of this up, you had to trot on the one and only famous skeptic. He had a badge, skeptic across his forehead. <laughs> Didn't matter what the subject was. He was going to basically try to nullify anything that you had to say. Yeah. So you you call them pseudo-skeptics. So let's talk about what real healthy skepticism is versus what some people that are going to show people your film mm-hmm. will have to say. Well, healthy skepticism is simply a matter of looking into things. You know, we, we observe a new phenomenon. Skepticism is part of the scientific methodology. You see something happening, you look into it. You don't necessarily accept a particular conclusion immediately. I mean, that's what the scientific method or process is about. You propose hypotheses, you test them in an orderly way. You don't want to be fooling yourselves mm-hmm. one way or another. You don't want to fall into belief or disbelief, which is just another flavor of belief. Mm-hmm. You want to go right down the middle mm-hmm. and stay with the process. What so-called skeptics, I call the cult of skepticism, yeah. um, uh, its position is 
that uh, there are areas which we cannot and must not look into. Yes. Gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. I think you can look at all of these various influences and, and movements, so on, as religions. Yeah. Each belief system within its own cohort is inviolable. Some people get stuck in it for the, for a lifetime, mm-hmm. whether it's mainstream religion or beliefs about anything else. Right. And I think it's imperative now that people at least begin to broaden their horizons a bit mm-hmm. and be willing to... Hardest part of it is being willing to admit, oh, I was wrong. Yes. And, and not maybe necessarily wrong, but maybe my, my views, my views were incomplete. That's right. I simply didn't know. Exactly. Because some of what's in the narrow box may be true. It's just a question of widening, widening one's perspective. And which brings up for me the question of language, Mm -hmm. uh, words such as, um, supernatural. Mm -hmm. What's supernatural depends on our definition of nature. So who are we to say that nature begins here and ends here and everything beyond that is supernatural, supernatural, right? Right. And as far as paranormal is concerned, how do we know what's normal if we can't discuss it openly? Exactly. So it's it's an arbitrary definition. So now you have a definition for people who tend to view science in that way, which is pseudo-skeptics. They're not a classic, true skeptic that's going through a process they're just there to deny and censor and i'm with you 100 percent. and i've interviewed them and i'm done with that story and that's why i love gaia so much i don't have to bring them on just because you say one thing so you've been in the trenches with that i respect that i have for a long time so one of the things along the way to and we're going to get toward the films now is you came across the notion well first of all you have your own experience with communicating with a very dear one on the other side And we'll talk about that toward the end. But you came across the technology that's been used to capture these voices. And how did that come about to give you the notion, yes, we can make this demonstrable to people now? Well, I had no idea about any of this until uh, the mid-1990s when I was actually living here in Boulder and uh, met a man named Mark Macy, who lives in the area here. And he had been involved in this instrumental transcommunication field for some years, worked with groups here and in Europe and South America uh, who had been routinely doing this sort of communication with the other side through various kinds of electronic devices. Uh, at first, I was a bit skeptical of it. And oh, has, has the CIA been getting into people's tape recorders, <laughs> things like that? But I very quickly um, got got past that phase of, of perhaps excessive skepticism mm-hmm. there and began to meet and communicate with more people who had been doing this practice and um, finding it absolutely fascinating. This is, you want to take it back where kind of to the 50s? Because it really all began with our ability to record things. Right. In the, the post-war time of the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, uh, where wartime industries were being repurposed for um, consumer production. And one of the products that came on the scene was the audio tape recorder. So Sunday preachers and amateur musicians could record their priceless uh, words and music and play them back and preserve them for all eternity. And some folks began to uh, hear on, on their tapes voices that didn't belong there. Uh, at first they were faint and they were dismissed as, well, maybe the machines picking up a radio station or something. And that sort of thing did happen occasionally. So at least in the United States, this phenomenon was pretty much dismissed. In Europe, it was taken more seriously. It began, as far as we know, with a man named Friedrich Jorgensen, who was a well-known Swedish 
documentary filmmaker and artist and so on, well known in his time. He went out one night to record nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was producing. And uh, when he played back the tape, in, in the spaces between the sounds, he heard faint voices discussing nocturnal bird sounds. <laughs> he thought, well, this is quite a coincidence that it's picking up a radio station just discussing nocturnal bird sounds. And he thought no more of it until he then uh, heard his deceased mother's voice on one of his tapes calling him by his childhood nickname, Friedel. So at that point, he sort of threw up his hands and said, okay, we have this, something's going on here and we have to, we have to study this scientifically. So for a number of years, he experimented, uh, simply rolling the tape, asking questions, leaving a pause, asking more questions and so on. And when he played back the tapes, there were responses in these, in these pauses. He was then joined by a Latvian researcher named Konstantin Raudova who worked with Jurgensen for a time and then went off and did his own experiments. And by the time he passed on in 1974, he had recorded, by all accounts, between 60 and 70,000 of these voices. He put out a phonograph record at the time uh, that included uh, quite a number of his dialogues with these voices. It was quite fascinating. You'll hear some of this We're in, my, hear it in, just in, a minute in my now. film. Yeah. And then when he passed on, he started showing up in his, in his surviving colleagues communications. Yes. And, uh, some of this is documented in my film as well. So this is this longstanding tradition. I, uh, I spent some time with, uh, a young man named Robert Vandenbroek in the Netherlands, uh, back in 2014, I think it was. Um, and he is able to uh, produce photos of the deceased on a camera. You hand him your camera. He'll point it at the wall and knock off a few shots, and it's it's highly likely that photographs of deceased individuals and, and other things will appear in those photos that shouldn't be there. And when I I visited him for about a week, set up very rigid protocols to make sure there was no hanky panky, and in the photographic experiments we did, uh, four anomalous. Shots showed up, two of which depicted Friedrich Jürgensen in his later Oh, years, interesting. Later oh, I years. love it. So they're all collaborating together. Yeah. So, so, then, so it appears. Yeah. Why don't we, one of the films you did is called Calling Earth, and that's the one that's dealing particularly with this phenomena. Right. And so let's take a look at that clip right now. Okay. Yeah. I think the fact that we survive bodily death is a scientific fact. It's nothing to do with religion. One day in the summer of 2002, Martha Copeland of Lawrenceville, Georgia, played back a sound recording she'd made earlier that day and heard the voice of her daughter, Kathy, disciplining her dog. That wouldn't have been so unusual, except that six months earlier, Kathy had died in an auto accident. One evening, to my great surprise, with some equipment I was developing at the time, I heard a voice. I was really startled. After the second or third test, I immediately got voices saying, we are the dead, we are alive, we are able to think and to speak. A brief definition of the electronic voice phenomenon, or EVP as we call it, would be the existence of voices of unknown origin, which appear in tape recordings particularly, but could also be recorded in other ways. This is really nice. Uh, one, two, three, 
It was the voice of my late father. And he addressed me with my nickname he used when I was a little boy. Here was this voice that I recognized immediately as my mother. That last bit there always gets me. I mean, anyone who's lost a child. And this has to be a mixed blessing to be so close to hear their voice yet so far. And so let's talk about the, this woman and her son, mm-hmm. Brayden, a little bit. And she continues to communicate with him from what you say, right? right. right. Yes, uh, Vicki Talbot is um, still in touch with her son. She works with a, a group of mothers who've lost their children. And uh, they uh, post some of their uh, recordings online. And it's a group of mothers um, who have been in touch with their deceased kids and others through this technique of, of, of using electronic devices. Uh, Vicki started with, I mean, was the first she'd heard from her son, Braden, was through their answering machine, old-fashioned tape cassette answering yeah. machine. That's when he said, pick up the phone, Mom. Oh. Right? And she had not been in, in the habit of picking up the phone, but of just letting the answering machine take the calls. And she said afterwards, I could have kicked myself for not actually picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. But since then, um, she at the time they used um, tape cassettes. Uh, now she uses her iPad and her iPhone, uh, as, as do a number of her friends who are, are doing this practice. We don't know what enhances it or inhibits it. We know that an emotional connection with one on the other side uh, is, is, a, is a big help. We don't know whether the time of the year or the phase of the moon or things we know nothing about uh, affect this this um, process. But it works enough of the time that uh, people who, who practice it have had continuity of experience going over periods of years. So I have a question here. When we think about this, oftentimes when we think about automatic writing or mm-hmm. um, beings or entities coming through and speaking with us, when it's someone who's a person who's deceased, we often think, oh, they haven't made their full transition to the mm-hmm. other side. Mm-hmm. So my question would be, from what you've been able to glean, the entities that do come through like Braden and talking to his mother, that might be an arrangement where he's just staying close through his mother's life to keep her comfortable. But could it also be that the entity actually does make passage through to other domains and dimensions, but can extend part of themselves as desired or needed through to communicate? I think I don't think our language and our concepts really encompass what's going on here. Yeah, I think what you're saying is probably true. Uh, my understanding from various sources is that everyone's experience of transition is different, just mm-hmm. as our experience in life is different. Right. It's highly individual. Depends on, on our, our command of the energies of ourselves, energies of the environment that we're in and so on, and the energies of the, the barriers that exist, exist between the different levels. Um, we, don't, we don't have the language of physics that describes enough of that, but we do know enough 
just on the level of, of empirical science, of observation, that um, these are, well, number one, the phenomenon exists. There's no question about that. Right. That's the most important thing right. to establish. Stuff's going on. Right. right? Um, and to un- understanding the mechanism of it, I think and the mechanisms of it will come in due course. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I think the most important thing is for those who practice it to practice it. Mm-hmm. To to cultivate the personal habits and maybe even condition the energetic environment by doing it, uh, so that the environment slowly shifts its capacity to be more transparent between so, levels. I'm, I'm struggling for language. I understand because it's hard. To, you can't really explain because right. you're not on the other side. But yeah. if you were to maybe. Um, give a little bit of advice to someone who's lost someone that they mm. would love to be able to finish up something with or hear mm. from, simply have the comfort of knowing they still exist. Mm. Well, how would you lay that foundation? I know you're just starting to t- touch into that. How would you lay a foundation for that kind of communication? To say, would you just put your intention and love out and say, can we communicate through maybe my iPad or my cell phone or my computer? Or is that more random? I wish I could give you a definitive answer to that. We just have to try and see what happens. I think that we're at the stage where we, you know, have to throw everything at the metaphysical wall and see what sticks. Exactly. And and in doing so, uh, I imagine that that new avenues of communication will also open up in addition to those that we're familiar with and those that have been practiced by people who uh, who maybe we don't we have no awareness of. Right. May come to the fore. And just some of the basic old-fashioned connecting with your own higher self and their higher self. I had a, a visit from my deceased father some years ago mm-hmm. that was preceded by events in my actual life over the preceding week mm-hmm. that I didn't understand until I went to sleep one night and there was my dad. Yeah. <gasps> uh, looking, uh, he died in his 90s. And uh, he was looking like he was in his middle 30s. Yes. And my first thought, and he was like really like hair slicked back and had yeah. this ruddy suntan. And my first thought was, oh, he's overdone his astral body. <laughs> no, it's just but, the way you related to was, feeling strong. Yeah. 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 So, and we had a wonderful short dialogue. Um, and part of it was love to see you. We'll see you again. Eventually I said, I know dad. Wonderful. You know. And, uh, but the, to me, the evidential part was what preceded the events took place over a period of five days without getting right. into a lot of detail that culminated in this, in this yeah. visit, uh, in, in a short dream. And it was unique. I had not had this type of experience yeah. before with my late partner, Jane Kimbrough, who mm-hmm. passed in 2007. Um, I've had communications of, of other kinds. Right. A sense of her almost physical presence standing next to me. Right. Couldn't see her with my eyes, but she was there. I, I don't know how to express this other than to say, there she was. Yeah. You know? She also switched on a clock radio at night and surprised the dickens out of me. <laughs> there <laughs> Sorry, are all kinds of hijinks. It, yeah. Right after my dad died, six mm. days later, I was here doing this job at Gaia, mm. and he followed me to, into the studio. And he was right where you are sitting, but up a little higher and just thrilled to see what I do for a living because he didn't really under, he was in his nineties. Oh. He didn't fully understand no. it. And so there are all these ways, but the, the importance of what you're doing with these films is for people who have a hard time getting their mind around it is to give them proof positive. So right. now let's go to a clip from Skull, the afterlife experiment. And this went on. 
for uh, how many years was this experiment? Five years. Five years. Five hundred sessions. Five hundred sessions in Skoll, England. Just Skoll, England. It's a small town uh, about a half hour northeast of Cambridge. Yes. And um, this took place between about 1994 and 1999, that mm-hmm. period of time. Five hundred sessions for two years. The experiment was observed by three properly skeptical investigators. Yes. Anyway, you'll see it all in the film. Okay, let's take a look. I love it. The school experiment was reported in contemporary magazine articles, two books, a 400-page scientific report, and a full-length documentary film. Its successes included nearly a thousand hours of direct communication through the mediums and an impressive variety of intriguing physical phenomena such as tiny animated lights that flew around the room. The Skull Group also witnessed what they claimed to be the spontaneous appearance of physical objects. Perhaps the most astonishing of these objects were these newspapers, which arrived in mint condition, despite having been published in the 1940s. We took it to the leading research station in the world on paper and printing, and it was absolutely clear from their report that this was a genuine article which appeared 50 years after the event, and no one was able to explain how it got there. In other sessions, a video camera loaded with brand new blank tapes and switched on in a darkened room produced an amazing series of colorful abstract frames. The tapes also contained unexplained light phenomena and enigmatic faces. The conventional 35mm film camera placed on the table in their darkened room initially produced a series of black and white images that the Skull Group were told were faithful duplicates of existing photographs from around the world. Some were photos of existing photos, and they said initially that was easier for them to do before they went on to photos that had never existed. Continuing photographic experiments using isolated rolls of film and no camera were carefully controlled by the independent investigators. We would buy the film ourselves. Uh, We would load it into a box. The box was held in the hands of the investigators so that no one could get at it. And then immediately afterwards, we would take it out of the box ourselves so that no one else touched it and then develop it ourselves in a special machine. To everyone's surprise, these films revealed a stunning variety of content. This included whimsical drawings and symbols, diagrams, writings and poetry in multiple languages, as well as portraits and signatures of known individuals. OK, 
Okay, so that's irrefutable. <laughs> I just found it fascinating. I mean, so much of it, but also the notion of you have film that's in its containers still and mm-hmm. then being developed, having these images on them. So I think mm-hmm. we don't have to argue the point something's happening on the on the other side right. anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm especially intrigued with the films because, of course, the, the raw film is rolled up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's got to be a, a very different relationship between the other side and physical space. Yes. It's they hard for phys- us to imagine how they're able to energetically imprint in this way. Right. But I find it entertaining, mind-blowing, yeah. fascinating. <laughs> I find it all and, of the above, too. So you still communicate with Jane? I, I do, though, in recent years, it's been through a team of mediums that I work with. Okay. And so and, what is her position? I mean, because this has been since 2007, so it's been right. quite a few years now. Why is she continuing to come through and speak with all of you? Well, she comes through as well as some other deceased friends of mine mm-hmm. through this team of mediums that I work with. Mm-hmm. And to me, the most fascinating thing is to get a sense of the different phases that, that folks go through after they pass. Mm-hmm. Again, each one is individual, but there are definite differences in in uh, the flavor of their presence, where they're coming from, uh, their language, where words are involved, and so on, uh, how they express themselves. One of the most fascinating, heartbreaking but fascinating things to me was I was with Jane when she passed, and she left her body about 10 hours before the body expired. Yes. And the, the difference was stark, and it taught me so much. Yes. That when she left, the body was... Kind of like an automaton. It's kind of like clay. That's what happened with my yeah. mother. It still still had its its, its primitive reactions and response, breathing. And I could ask a question, but the response was sort of blunt, like a um, ah, that sort yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. So something was really different. I really got that she was no longer there. Right. And the first time that I had the odd opportunity to to speak with her I was actually on on the phone with one of my medium friends. She says. Um, oh, Jane is here. I'll just hear her words and I'll, I'll translate and let you know what she says. Whereupon Jane pushes the medium out of the way and I'm talking to Jane on the phone. Oh, I love it. You could hear her clearly too, right? Because some of them, it's a little bit garbled. This is just coming through the medium's own voice. I see. So it was yeah. perfect. Oh, yeah, clear. of course. Yeah. Okay? But it was a, a two-way conversation as if she were there on the other end of the phone. And one of the first things I asked her was, it was my impression that you left your body before the body expired. And she says, yes, that's absolutely true. I said, why? And she said, because I couldn't stand to see you see me in that condition. Yeah. She didn't want to be witness to it anymore. Well, and that was one of many brief, but, but intense opportunity to discuss. Uh, It was to me, it was a priceless, a priceless experience. It was a gift. Well, because we're about out of time now, and I highly encourage people to watch these films. Now, they can find one on Vimeo, right? They can find them both on Vimeo. Both on Vimeo. Uh, YouTube? Anything on YouTube? Uh, the older version of the Skull movie, which was called The Afterlife Experiments, uh-huh. is on YouTube. But the updated the, the new updated, one. What we call the director's cut yes. is on Vimeo. Vimeo. So and Calling Earth and Skull, The Afterlife Experiment, are both on Vimeo. Right. And they're free. And they're free. That's yes. absolutely yeah. fabulous. And they, 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 each, they run about an hour and a half. Yeah. And before we go, I want you had in your book, and I, I just have to put it in because I love Jeez. it so much. I took the quote from your book. Whoever undertakes to set himself up as judge of truth and knowledge is shipwrecked by the laughter of the gods, Albert Einstein. 
<laughs> because till the end, he remained open-minded to truth, whatever the whatever truth would like to show itself to him. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Any final thoughts before we go, Dan? Well, speaking of truth, I think truth is a moving target. Yeah. Science is open-ended. Yeah. It's a matter of of continually unfolding discovery. And I think Einstein got that. I think he definitely got it. He lived it. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much. And thank you for making these beautiful films, which I know our audience is going to be sharing with their loved ones who might have questions about this phenomenon and whether afterlife exists or not. Thank you so much, Regina. Again, for a succinct and clear argument for consciousness extending not only beyond life, but as the foundation of everything, pick up a copy of Dan's book, A New Science of the Afterlife. For more information on Dan's films and books, you can go to dandrazen.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Oh, my. It's just, it's it's so wonderful because we're living in a new uh, perspective now from the fifth dimension. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. It's uh, just for being here together. Uh, so this one is harmonizing lower frequencies. Mm-hmm. As we stop demonizing lower frequencies, we will harmonize our energetic spectrum. Will we? Um, and Eileen McCusick is a healer, practitioner of biofield tuning, a method to identify and release blockages, which are root causes of disease. This subtle work helps individuals become more regulated, coherent, and resilient by clearing trauma held by the subconscious. So, we become less reactive when faced with perceived difficulties. Acoustic explains raising our vibration does not necessarily reduce noise in the energy field. Instead, harmonizing lower frequencies can increase the electrical current in the body. To balance our energy, Acoustic believes the power of voice and the use of specific words can heal our sonic anatomy and offer protection from illness. So this is 45 minutes again, so we better get started with Regina Meredith and Eileen McCusick. We're having some fun with Regina tonight. Eileen McCusick is back with us today to share her expertise on healing the energy field surrounding us. As this epoch in history continues to roll out its surprises, human anxiety mounts. According to Eileen, by tidying up the first line of defense, our energy matrix, we can avoid the illness that could eventually follow because your body knows exactly what to do once your field is clear. Welcome back, Eileen. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to be back with you too, Regina. So we have so many things to tidy up here. First of all, I just have to say, because we were talking off camera, you're known worldwide. You have practitioners all over the world in biofield tuning I didn't know till today that you got your very first tuning forks from Gaim, way back when Gaim had a store. That's where you got your first tuning forks? I did in 1996. I love it. I was reading books about the use of color and sound and music and healing. That was when this journey with sound started. And just as soon as I finished my little stack of books, 
I got a guy in catalog in the mail that had a set of tuning forks for healing in it. And that was what got me started. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So here we are full circle all those years later. But there's more to that circle. You've got a long way to go. So first of all, there's something else that you've said that I find interesting because so many, you deal with frequencies, you deal with sound. As so many people say, well, you just have to raise your vibrations and raise your frequencies. We were talking about, and you say, how oh, that irks me when people say that. So let's get your take on it. Well, as a writer, as a wordsmith, and as a sound therapist, I realized it's so important, the specificity with which we use words. Mm-hmm. And when we heal, we're not really technically raising our vibration. Uh, this idea that, that somehow higher is better or that we're going up in this one kind of linear way. What I find happens is that we clarify our vibration. We bring our vibration in tune. We want to get the noise out of the signal. And when we do that, we raise our voltage. We raise the amount of electric current that's flowing through us. And we actually have an experience of expanding our field. We expand mm-hmm. out into our potential. Like why limit it in just one direction when what is really happening is we are expanding out in every direction and and accessing our potential as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about it, it's like raising when you so if we're talking about it in terms of music, right? It's as though somehow a C is more lowly than an A or a B. And you're and actually that is not true. It's more harmonizing the total effect of all of these frequencies, right? Right. We want all of them to be in tune. And this sort of demonization of these low frequencies, you know, I joke about like, well, how does that make the bass players feel? (laughs) And the drum players. And the drum players. (laughs) Or, you know, we need the low frequencies for sleep. So the whole spectrum of frequency we want to avail ourselves to, uh, to be, to experience and, and to get all of those in tune. And you've also said that the low frequencies actually help us take up oxygen in the body. So, I mean, I like the tabla, for example, the sound of the tabla, that deep Indian drum. What's actually going on there when we hear these deep resonant sounds? Most people feel it on a really primal level. It kind of wakes you up. It feels like it's feeding you. You say it's more than that. Well, the work of John Stuart Reed, who is a cymatics expert, he observed that the, these low frequencies, these bass rhythms and like the tabla cause the blood to uptake oxygen. I mean, that's fascinating. When you think about it, when you go to different experiences where you're doing a trance dance or whatnot, it's really those lower frequencies that kind of get you into this ecstatic state. Exactly. Interesting. So then you're talking about getting rid of what we would call the static or the dirty noise that is taking away from the harmonization from all of all these frequencies? Mm-hmm. We all have noise in our signal. If you think that of your body with an electrical system and mm-hmm. everything is running in different rhythms and expressing different tones, uh, trauma, multi-generational trauma, accidents or injuries, uh, a, a vicious inner critic being inwardly divided and having just a lot of noise in your own mind all create static that diminishes us self-doubt, low self-worth, all of these things stop us from having that experience of accessing our potential. And everybody knows that they have greatness within them. That's certainly been my experience. Many people are stuck feeling like they can't get to that self-realized place. 
And the mean girl thing, you've also said that this has a lot to do, kind of the mean inner voice, and I'm using females because of a, a subject we had talked about before, which has to do with digestion. And so many people are having chronic digestive disorders now. It's like it's like we're allergic to everything. But you say what we're actually allergic to is our own thoughts. Our own thoughts. Yeah, that's, you know, I've worked with thousands of clients over the years. And that is really what stands out to me more than anything, that the enemy is within. And people are inwardly divided into judge and the part that's judged into victim and perpetrator. And they have very unkind dialogues going on inside of them. So there's this experience of being inwardly split. And then this voice that is just, or maybe multiple voices that are mean, that are punitive, that are critical, that if that was a person who was following you around and saying those things, you wouldn't stand for it. You wouldn't, you're like that, you're a really bad friend, like (laughs) get out of here. And yet somehow we've been conditioned to accept it in our own mind. And it's very, very destructive. In fact, I observed a pattern. Everybody that I treated who had, uh, that were diagnosed with Crohn's disease just had a vicious, vicious inner critic. They're like eating themselves alive with acidity within their own mind. So these are, this is highly critical type of thought you're talking about here. But what about something that seems like it's kind of more ordinary and it's definitely ubiquitous, I see, and that is the subject of self-doubt. I'm just seeing this a lot in people around me questioning themselves. Very few people actually don't question themselves and say, what am I doing? I mean, why am I bothering? Is this, am I on the right path? This kind of chronic self-doubt, what does that do to a person? Boy, you know, I see that too, Regina. And I think this this past year, that really sunk in for me that I was noticing the same thing. Me too, yeah. So I teach the advanced classes in biofield tuning. Mm-hmm. And we do a number of exercises in that that really gets people centered and grounded and embodied. And what I really notice is that after people go through those experiences, they're self-confident and you can see it in them. They, they, they all look like they're like the star of their own show. Like everything that we are, if we can let ourselves be our authentic self, we're all amazing. And when, and it's really there, you don't have to go out and get it. That is in you. And self doubt becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because that creates a lot of noise in the signal. Right. And then you're just in the noise instead of in that comfortable, clear, like I'm awesome kind of place because everybody is. I mean, that's really been my observation. It's interesting, though, because it's almost come hand in hand with after the pandemic came and went, it changed the nature of reality and the questions people ask and the way people want to allocate their time and energy. So a lot of people have taken a courageous step to say, you know, I'm not going back to that job, which, you know, we have shortages in fields all over the world because workers aren't showing up. But many people are saying, I can't do that job anymore. And they're trying to put it back together. They can't. I've always wanted to do this or that. Then comes that sticky old subject of survival and money. And as soon as a price tag seems to be attached to something someone really wants to do, self-doubt and anxiety seems to take over. Mm-hmm. Have you know, do you notice this as well? Sure. And, and I've been through that myself. You know, do what you love and the money will follow, but sometimes there's Not a gap. A, yeah, there's a gap. <laughs> exactly. And, and I definitely struggled when I was first creating biofield tuning, working in the field. I wasn't sure about what I was doing. I think it takes, you can't shortcut experience. 
Right. Like the self doubt is appropriate. But as you gain more experience and more comfort with what you're doing, mm-hmm. then that, then it goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. And then there's something that's just chronic where people continually their entire life doubt themselves. Yeah. How does that tend to play out in the body, that level, that kind of emotion? Well, you're going to see that in digestion because that, okay. that is creating noise in the signal. It's creating low level stress and mm-hmm. discomfort. So anything that you've got that is a signal jammer that is stopping the body from accessing a clear blueprint is going to show up. One of the places where I see self-doubt and the inner critic really show up is in people's right hips. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's just a pattern that I've observed when self-doubt and self-worth and constantly criticizing ourselves within, it creates an imbalance in the field in that sort of right root sacral area. And then because there's noise in the signal there, the body can't repair itself properly. So it starts radiating out to the hip joints. Exactly. And the right hip in particular. In particular. Oh, pay attention if you have anything going in your right yeah. hip. So we're here, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about an electromagnetic field. And I love the work you do in the biofield tuning because you actually, you can read a person, you and your practitioners around the world. When someone comes to you, you start assessing out what's going on with them by reading, I think, believe it, you start with the left side of the field, using your tuning fork and finding resistance when certain ages come up. And that's where the trauma may have started and so forth. Talk about that a little bit for people who don't already know your work. Sure. It's, it's very, it's sort of an odd practice. And it took me a very long time to get over my concern about how strange it was. But now we have thousands of people, like you said, around the world doing it and it's normalized it a bit. But biofield tuning is a little bit like using a tuning fork, like a needle on an album. So it's like dropping a needle on an album and reading the vibrational record of somebody's life. So in this model, our memories are stored in standing waves in our body's magnetic field. And there's a very specific anatomy and physiology that I mapped over many years. I discovered that there was a pattern. And every time I heard what sounded like sadness through the overtones and undertones of the tuning fork, it was off the left shoulder. Every time I came across things that sounded and felt angry, it was off the right side of the solar plexus. Hmm. And, and I essentially discovered that just like you and I have pretty much the same digestive tract, we have the same biofield anatomy as well. And so the essence of my work is this biofield anatomy map. So we're sort of striated and different emotions produce different frequency signatures. And then those are stored in different areas of field. The field is also timelined. So as we generate information, we go through our day, we have our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our experiences. That's all electrical impulses in the body. And those get recorded in the field and they move away from us. Mm-hmm. Right. So so most people's fields extend about six feet around on either side. And what I discovered was that the outer boundary of the field, because there's a boundary, it's a torus or a bubble with a spiral channel, that 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 outer boundary contained information from gestation and then birth. And then as we went along, the fork was literally reading these this track as it was laid it's down. It's almost like tree rings is how I see it. Yeah. So you've got rings. the rings of the tree, the years of the tree. So you're coming in. And so when you're you're using the fork, all of a sudden the tone shifts for you and you, or you find a resistance of some kind. You say, ah, what happened at age three? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Uh, just for an example, I was working on a, on a gentleman not that long ago, 
And I got to uh, this place in his field where the sound went so wonky and he could hear it and I could hear it. And he was like, what's that? And I plotted it on the timeline and I said, this is something that happened when you were around 18. And he's like, oh, that's when I went through the windshield of a car. Ah. Right. And you think about the chaos of that experience, the pain, the resistance, the aftermath, the shock. Right. Those are all very dissonant vibrations Mm -hmm. that got laid down in his record, in his memory. Yes. Well, I did a session with you years ago when we first met, and I, what I thought was interesting is definitely hit on the primary times when things happen. I mean, you you got them exactly what happened at this age and this age. But then as you went along, there were more, and I thought, oh, no, oh yeah, wait a minute, and things that I wasn't even remembering anymore, but they were actually profound. So it actually helps us reflect back in our own memory the things that we may have even suppressed. Absolutely. Or we can also find the things that are precognitive that happen from gestation to three mm-hmm. that we don't remember that might have been really formative where we form beliefs. I mean, like if you were a baby who was left to cry it out, bottle fed on a schedule, you form a belief early on that nobody listens to me. Yeah. Okay. So now you've gone through. This is on the left side of the body. You've read the tree rings. What happened here? Ooh, ooh, okay. All right. Then you go to the right side of the body. And this is, as I, as I understand it, how, what the lingering effects of these traumas have been on you, what you're still carrying? Well, not so much. The, the left side is these file drawers. So mm-hmm. the left side is more of the yin inward kind of mm-hmm. feelings, frustration, powerlessness, sadness, yeah. holding things back. And right? so this is more wet, more inward. Whereas the right side is more hot or fiery. It's anger. It's um, overdoing. It's, being a caretaker. Is it caregiver. how it expresses itself? It's how it expresses itself. I see. Yeah. So we might find issues in the right shoulder because you keep saying yes when you mean no. Or we might find issues in the left shoulder because you have a lot of sadness that you're not expressing and it's just sort of piling up. So the biofield anatomy, each, each energy center has a particular theme off each side of it. So mm-hmm. I don't always start on the left. I often do, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes I might start on the right. If your okay. right shoulder and right hip hurt, well, come start yeah. over there and then come follow up on the left. So what happens if you have two frozen shoulders? Well, we work on both of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, if you have two frozen shoulders, I would say that that you're really stuck in your life. You're, yeah. you're trying to take care of everybody else and you're not taking care of yourself and you're sad about it. Let's get into the subject of cancers for a moment. Where does that, how do you see that showing up in a person's field? Well, you know, it's interesting that you ask about cancer, Gina, because in biofield tuning, we don't treat cancer. Yeah. You know, in the United States, you're not allowed to treat cancer with anything other than gotcha. than drugs or surgery. But it has to show up. In it, the field. it does show up. It shows up as, as stuck energy, as places where, where there's traumas that have been present. Well, for example, women with breast cancer, I've often observed that they get it on the right side um, if they've been putting everybody else's needs ahead of their own and neglecting themselves. And then cancer often becomes a gift and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You realize that it, it's time to take care of you. Right. right? And that's usually it. you're giving yourself away. Yeah. At your own expense. Yeah. Okay. So now you've identified these things. So now where does the healing part come in with the tuning fork and uh, vibration? Well, you know how we 
talk about having charge around certain things mm-hmm. like that divorce you went through 10 mm-hmm. years ago and it still gets you upset. Mm-hmm. So that's a place in your memory bank in your field where you literally do have charge. And and that is uh, the electrical voltage that should be flowing through your body is stuck in that particular. So it's just making a jaggedy stuck kind of place in you, yeah, overamped that, place. That's the way I see it. It's it's sort of like a memory that's that's overamped. That's why we feel resistance when we hit it because mm-hmm. there's charge and it's stuck there. And so and it's usually trapped in chaos waves because of the all of the upset that was involved. So it's a sort of pocket of chaos and stuck energy. Mm-hmm. Then we could call it our emotional baggage, right? The things that weigh us down, that we haven't digested, that we haven't integrated, that we haven't forgiven. Uh and so a tuning fork is both diagnostic in that it helps us to locate these places in our memory bank where things are jammed up. But it, it is also immediately therapeutic because it starts giving the body the information of order. So, so when you first, you first are um, using the tuning fork and it sounds maybe a little discordant mm-hmm. when you first discover it. So what, what starts happening in that transformational process? So it's the physics principles of resonance and entrainment. The mm-hmm. tuning fork will initially resonate with whatever the story is that is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a strong coherent signal will overtake and entrain a weak incoherent signal. Mm. So I describe it as it sort of acts like a mirror mm-hmm. in that it reflects to the body what's going on. Like the, the guy with the car accident, you're like, whoa, what's that? Right? It's an opportunity for that kind of reflection. It's like you don't know that your hair is a mess and that you have a poppy seed in your teeth and you don't have the opportunity to fix it until you see it reflected, yeah. right? So that's yeah. the same thing. The moment we see ourselves out of order, we immediately go to put ourselves in order. And so the body's organizing intelligence does this. It has a mirror. The tuning fork acts like a metronome. It's producing a steady rhythm that the body can order its rhythms against. And so as the the, the information and the rhythms that are present there start to harmonize, the energy that's been stuck sort of decouples. And then the tuning fork acts like a magnet. And, you know, sort of odd as this is, I'm able to do what I call click, drag and drop, where I use the tuning fork like a magnet. I hook into that little pocket of energy that was stuck and I bring it back to the midline of the body, the central channel, where it goes back into circulation. So how does this, these, how do these tree rings of trauma and events that happen and our reactions to them correlate with maybe just making visible the subconscious? Mm. Well, that's exactly what it is because this is our biofield is our, it's our conscious mind. It's our subconscious mind. It's our memories. I don't even go so far as to say that it's our soul. Mm. So it's allowing you to see what is serving as a hindrance in the subconscious. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets right into it and people don't even need to so. talk Me about it. it, it that, that's one of the things I think is beautiful about it. Yeah. You know, talk therapy only does so much. After you've talked and talked and talked, it seems to me oftentimes you just reinforce the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can do this without even saying what happened when you were three. I can just be like, well, I hit a, a, a stuck spot here. Where are you feeling this in your body? What are you noticing? Just make it somatic so that you can tell. Because all of these places where we have jam ups in the field, we have tension in the body. So these these areas of tension create inflammation. And we know that inflammation is the root of disease. So if you end up with excess in one place, you get deficiency in the other, and then you're out of balance. So really on a very fundamental level, this is just helping you to relax subconscious tension that you're still holding from old trauma. 
So how does this then resonate out in the subtle bodies? Okay, so let's say how does it resonate out into the mental and the emotional bodies? Well, I would say that it settles people down. It helps you to go from being maybe habitually dysregulated to being more regulated, mm-hmm. from being incoherent and upset and, and feeling like you have ants in your pants or, you know, discomfort of some kind to just being more at ease. So once you can bring the field into coherence through the tuning, because first there's the recognition, the person saying, ah, yes, that happened at 18. So now it's on the table. You're going through those sub frequency sounds. You're doing the over, you say overarching um, harmonics or coherence mm-hmm. in the forks. From that point, that's going to then start automatically radiating out and making those corrections in the emotional body and the response it's been holding on to. Yeah, and the responses. The, so those knee-jerk yeah. places where, you know, your parents oh, got your goat in this way, yeah. all of a sudden you find yourself less reactive, less triggered, more able to keep a calm center in difficult situations, certainly more resilient. I think that that's a really big part of it. If you're holding a lot of tension from a lot of trauma, you can't take much more. Right. But if you're sort of big and soft and relaxed and you've released tension, you can handle those difficulties with a lot more ease and grace. Well, you've had to go through a lot of these transitions of your own or these transformations. You had a lot of digestive issues, for example. We talked about that earlier at one time. But as you've moved through the process of using the tuning forks, you literally can, you don't have any of those issues anymore. No, I used to have terrible digestion, gas, bloating, heartburn, stomach aches, everything, dairy, everything, everything miserable, you know, go to bed miserable. Just, and, and, but at the time I was giving my power away. I didn't have good boundaries. I was under stress and running on adrenaline. So all of these things contribute to not being in that sort of solid place of rest and digest. And over the years, through receiving tuning, I started teaching this in 2010, and uh, my first students started working on me. And right from the very beginning, my digestion started to improve. And I also learned a lot about boundaries, about saying no, about how to not put myself in situations where I was under time pressure, under money pressure, revving, Mm -hmm. stressing, feeling like a victim. You know, I've learned a lot of hard (laughs) lessons and gotten myself to a place where uh, you know, for the most part, I enjoy being in a coherent, regulated state. And so that, and I'm, I'm way better at boundaries, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I can eat anything and everything, you know, and I don't suffer at all. I, 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 I think everyone's ears are perking up, the women in particular, yeah. ears are perking up at this one to think of how to actually do that instead of taking yet another digestive aid, going to another gastroenterologist or whatnot. You finding it's mostly emotion. And I find that too. It's honestly. mostly emotion. It really is. And you know, it's also really important that we express our emotion. I had a very difficult emotional thing happen a few months ago and, uh, and I tried to suppress it and my stomach immediately protested. Like immediately I got a stomach ache. I was like, Oh, this isn't going to work. Like I absolutely have to express my emotions. And I can do that diplomatically. You know, we can we can figure out ways to express our emotions that are appropriate, mm-hmm. that don't hurt or damn. They might hurt other people, but they don't. You know, we don't have to go off the hook or be uh, wild and uncontrollable. Well, suppressing it is not going to work. Suppressing it doesn't work. We really have to learn to dance in a healthy way with our emotions and not suppress them. So, how long did that process take you in the beginning? Once you had your student work on you, how long did it take you to work through all of this? 
Well, you know, I've had a lot of tune-ups. I was going to say, you're in a lovely position yeah. where you can have a lot of tune-ups. Exactly. I've, I've had a lot of tune-ups I've, and I've learned a lot as, as a tuner mm-hmm. because I work in people and I see their bad habits or their imbalances and I go, well, I do that too. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So, so I've had kind of a window into the imbalances of human nature and seen that kind of behavior in myself. Um, but I've worked with people and I've seen them completely turn their digestion around and six to 10 sessions. Wonderful. Yeah. And we're going to get to it at the end in terms of what we can do for ourselves if someone doesn't have access to a practitioner. But right now there are thousands of practitioners. But another interesting thing is that through this field, we have, of course, quantum entrainment and entanglement. So this can actually be done at a distance. Remote tuning can be done. Can you talk about this and how long you've been doing it when you discovered that the person didn't have to be in the room with you anymore? Well, people would ask me for years if I could do it at a distance. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing to ask me. I'm like, this is sound waves on the body. This is physics people. Like, I am not doing this at a distance. And I, I was sort of arrogant and snide about it, mm-hmm. uh, as people can be. Right? You know, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there who, who feel this way about distance tuning, and I was no different. Um, but I am a scientist and I do like experiments. And so I think it was probably in 2011, I was working on my master's thesis mm-hmm. and I was working with a fellow by the name of Dr. Carl Merritt, who is very, very knowledgeable about the biofield and energy medicine. And he's a physician, an MD, and he was helping me with my thesis. And he said, Eileen, how about if we try a distance session? And I said, okay, I'm game. Let's give it a try. But I went into it not believing it was possible. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he lay down in his office in California and I approached my treatment table in Vermont pretending that he was there. We had no open line of communication at all. Now, at this point, I had mapped the field and I learned the language of vibration pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so I just went and did a session as if there was a body there. And much to my amazement, all of the same patterns of information that would show up when there was a body there showed up. And so I went through and I took notes and I observed the years that were really stressful, um, the the organs in his body that weren't quite up to snuff, where he had inflammation, the personality of his mother or the personality of his father, head injury at five, like all the things that I had learned to figure out by reading the field. And then we got on the phone afterwards and I went through my notes and he said, I mean, all of that is correct. So how did you feel? I felt like I had to eat crow. I was like, wow, I've been so rude <laughs> about weren't this. weren't you incredibly relieved to know it's possible? It, well, I, I, and I was a little mortified because I've been so <laughs> adamant that it wasn't so possible. Once you got done being ashamed, yes. ashamed of yourself. <laughs> yes. Then I was amazed because it opened up a whole new world of possibility to actually be able to do this at a distance with no open line of communication. Now, after that, I did, you know, I did some with people without open line of communication, but now we do it all like through Zoom or right. through the phone. And mm-hmm. so your practitioners have been taught this as well? Yeah, every single person who's a biofield tuning practitioner knows how to do so this. So now thing. this makes it a lot easier because if people want to get tuned up, they can do it on a more frequent basis because they don't have to be obviously in physical proximity. Yeah. So let's talk about something else because we're going to get on to the notion of our own voices as our tuning forks. This is something you're really charged about and really involved with right now, going beyond the forks back to the most primitive thing, okay, mm-hmm. our own voices. But right now there's some studies going on 
And I think this is really important. I, I know almost 40 years ago, my group of beings told me the most profound accepted new healing that will happen in my lifetime is going to happen through sound. And they said, including sound beyond the ability to hear it auditorily and that which we can hear. And I remember thinking, that's interesting. So let's talk about some of the great strides that are being made now in these studies. Well, we did a study uh, in December of 2020 that was originally going to be an in-person study, but because of COVID, we decided to move it to remote and it was on anxiety. So things that are rhythmic, that are tonal, like for example, anxiety is just a pattern in your electrical system. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty easy to treat at a distance. But if you have um, a pinched nerve in your neck and it's going down your arm, I would rather see you in person, right, if there's physical things. But these these things like anxiety that are purely energetic are very, uh, very readily treated through at a distance. Mm -hmm. And so our first study was just a feasibility study. We had uh, 15 people and everybody came in with clinical anxiety and everybody left without clinical anxiety. Uh, and, and the markers were very dramatic. Like there were very dramatic drops. And we wrote both a quantitative paper with all the graphs and p-values. And we wrote a qualitative paper that was about people's stories and experiences with it. And basically it changed their relationship to themselves. People said things like, I know when I'm hungry. I know when I'm thirsty. Like I know what my needs are. That they just really settled down into greater regulation. So this was very, and it was very consistent across the board with all of the participants reported the same thing. Um, so we this used, is important because there are rising levels of mass anxiety everywhere. This was just three one-hour sessions at a distance that dramatically changed people's quality of life. And you're saying they knew when they were hungry, they knew when they were thirsty. Are you saying that the anxiety was blocking out their ability to even be in tune with the simplest things about their own functioning. Yeah. When you're, when you're very full of anxiety and you've got all of those pulsing currents running through your body all the time, it, that's a strong signal that interrupts your ability to perceive your more subtle signals. If, if all you are aware of is your fear and your discomfort and things like that, you're not aware of the, the subtle signals that your body is sending you about what its needs are. Well, because things are changing rapidly, because we have changes and changes happening in the cosmos, on our planet, you know, societally in every which way, everybody can feel changes upon us. And most humans don't respond that well to change, the yeah. notion of change, you know, yeah, that's true. means you don't know the outcome. So what are you seeing in your practice in terms of rising levels of fear and anxiety at large throughout your all of your practitioners practices as well? Well, it definitely got worse in COVID. Yeah, this sure. feeling of just a collective fear and discomfort mm -hmm. and anxiety. And and certainly in the younger people, it's absolutely rampant. Uh, you know, kids, teenagers, they're struggling more than the adults are. They're, well, they're, everybody is struggling. Everybody is struggling. But they don't know their futures. Yeah, and their futures don't seem to work, right? At least you and I grew up in a world where we could have a job and get an apartment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. things kind of worked, but it's become so stressful and so uncertain and, and so endemic to the whole population of them, right? The whole morphic field yes. of young people is, is just rife with this and social pressure. Um, but the amazing thing is, is that young people respond very quickly to this work. So somebody who's 15, I only need to do a few sessions with them, give them a little bit of instruction about self-regulation and self-care, and we're going to see significant shifts. Uh, if I'm working with somebody who's 70 and they have 
patterns that have been going on for a lifetime, it's going to take more sessions. It's going to take a longer duration Mm -hmm. to get the body to shift and start adopting new patterns. So there was another study too, as I recall. Are there two? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're, we're currently underway in a three year study, mm-hmm. the fully funded by grants that we have uh, 60 participants in and a control group. So, and oh. we're repeating the same study on anxiety, taking a, a diverse group of people. And in this one, we're going to do six sessions instead of three. Mm-hmm. So we're going to really see what is the difference? What happens when you have six biofilters? So what happens sessions? with the control group? Um, to be honest, like yeah. in this moment, Regina, it's we've been all over the place with that, yeah. and I'm not sure yeah. what we settled on. I'm working with another organization, a research organization, yeah. called the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, that's founded by my uh, friend and colleague Shamni Jan, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they are working on the IRB submission right now, and mm-hmm. you have to get permission for right. these kinds of things and make sure it's. It, I'm just trying to imagine what the control group experience would look like because they have to think they're getting the same thing yeah or have something that might be comparable but comparable, is different but is different yeah mm-hmm. well that'll be interesting so three years 60 people we'll see what comes out of that sounds like the first one you do great with yeah we were so pleased with yeah. with the outcome the way that it got written i've been getting accepted into peer review so they've this those, is the deal yeah mm-hmm. that is the deal and, and that's what my guides were telling me back then this will be accepted in our lifetimes as a powerful mode of healing that is non-invasive compared to everything that was going on at the time. Yeah. This was in the area, era of AIDS and all that too. So at the time I thought, wow, that would be great if that happened. Here you are. It's happening. It's happening. So now let's go even further into the most simple thing we carry with us all the time, our voice and the work you're doing with that now. Mm-hmm. So I paired up with these two wonderful Australian brothers, Isaac and Torald Corin. And I initially, uh, worked with them because they are specialists in helping people to overcome their fear of seeing. And they work with you to co-write and record uh, some songs so that you can just overcome that fear. And I think this is a fear that so many people have, and I certainly had it. I'm so comfortable speaking in front of thousands of people, but the thought of singing was absolutely terrifying. And I didn't really feel connected to my voice or to that authentic place where where your voice really comes from when you sing. Uh, I'm a big fan of meeting fears head on because where we have fear, we also have power. And so the the exercise in addressing and overcoming fears is really one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. It's, mm-hmm. it's so expanding, mm-hmm. right? And so I started working with them to write and record some songs, but then COVID happened and I couldn't get to California to do the recording with them. And and to be honest, I didn't feel ready. I still had felt like I had all these blocks and places in my body and I still had fear and tension around it. And so without even trying, and I, I don't even really fully remember how it happened, this whole body of work that we call the sonic anatomy came through us. And what we discovered was that there were very specific tones, like sounds that resonated in very specific areas of the body. And they're all primitive sounds, like the sounds that babies make when mm-hmm. they're exploring their human instrument. Sounds like ga and wa and ma and pa and da. Mm-hmm. Um, but the discovery through our own uh, shared experience that, for example, wa resonates in the tailbone. <laughs> and ya comes from the front of the heart or ha is in the throat. 
And so we developed a program called Sing the Body Electric, where we take people through what we call the tones and the demitones of the sonic anatomy. And it is an incredibly powerful and liberating experience to make all of these sounds because you don't have to sound good. You don't have to be in pitch. Um, the metaphor that I use is that we're all like pipe organs and we've got all of these pipes that have been shut down in mm-hmm. us, right? Places we don't go, emotions we don't express, old traumas. And so many people have voice trauma, mm-hmm. right? You got a mouse nest in this pipe, and the key to this yeah. one doesn't work. Yeah. And so we don't feel comfortable singing because we don't have our full instrument available to us. So it's really like an exercise in pipe cleaning where you just go to these different areas in the body and you make whatever sound is there. And it might sound awful because that's just what is held there, right? Whatever emotion or tension that you're holding, the sound of the heart might come out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just keep on adding air and it kind of blows out the pipe. And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, and you're <laughs> yeah. really able to, to make sounds. So when we take people through, um, it's like an eight or nine hour workshop. At the beginning, we have them sing happy birthday to themselves mm-hmm. because everybody knows how to do that. And then we just make all of these vowel sounds and we really play in, in, you know, tuning up our instruments. And then we sing happy birthday at the end and everybody has a completely different experience. They're more soulful. They're more creative. They're more playful. Oh, I can feel the truth in this. Yeah. Right? They're just like, Oh my God, I can sing. And we, we didn't even sing. All we did was just make a whole bunch of noise, um, very freely and as loud or as quiet or as oddly as we want to. And then suddenly, because you've opened up your human instrument, you get to enjoy. And I think this is one of life's greatest pleasures is to enjoy singing and how it resonates in you. It's energizing. They've done a lot of studies that show that singing in groups is so good for our health. Yes. And so many people, I would say Sheldrake, I think, was involved in some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so many people, probably 90% of the population doesn't get to enjoy this process. But it's more than that because it's really by our word that we create our life. Right. Mm-hmm. The word is creative mm-hmm. and we speak our lives into being. And if you just use your voice in one little place and then your life is going to be like that. It's true. I, I years ago was friends with a woman named Annie Williams and she has a, this voice spectrum analyzer. So you would sit and chat with her and she's a beautiful, beautiful singer. But this was what she did in the daytime. Uh, analyze your voice and it would go through and show which notes were missing from your voice, for example. And you could tell a lot about, she could tell a lot about a person on an emotional level in particular by which notes simply weren't there that you don't utilize in your own spectrum. Did you find this as well? Yeah, absolutely. And then those are parts of you, right? Again, coming back to this idea that we all have this incredible potential, Mm -hmm. but we struggle to access it. Yeah. And so if you can really open up the spectrum of your voice and have it be a full body experience, then your voice is reflecting more of who you are. And then your life follows suit. So is it fair to say if we even so much as when we're driving in our car, okay, roll the windows up so no one can hear you, but um, just sing to yourself, singing to ourselves, singing to ourselves in the shower, in the car is the beginning of this vibrational healing process without having to even go to a workshop. Then we'll talk about the workshops. Right. Well, when you're singing, one of the things that's happening is your mental your mental body, that inner critic, the fussing, the worrying, 
isn't taking place. Mm-hmm. So if you can really sing with your whole being, then you get to experience yourself as whole and undivided. Mm-hmm. If you can sing with with just the, the play and the pleasure without what Isaac and Troll call the small voices coming in and criticizing and judging, then all of a sudden you've created wholeness in yourself and wholeness is where healing happens. Let's talk about the workshops. Are you actually doing these workshops yeah. with these two men? Yes, we do. We do workshops uh, online and in person. And what uh, are they called? So if people want to look for so them. So it's called Sing the Body Electric and uh, Sing the Body Sing Electric. the Body com. And and it's great for for all kinds of people. So we have a lot of biofield tuning practitioners who learn this and then you know, they might be working with somebody and they're all jammed up in the heart. They're having trouble giving and receiving love. So as they are tuning the heart, they'll also have the person say tone yaw. And mm-hmm. and so people might not then like, uh. <laughs> so it's really making your original bio uh, bio tuning practice even more rich and more subtle. Yeah, because we're getting the sound from the inside. Yeah, and the sound from, from the, the outside at the same time. Oh yeah, no, I just listening to you, I can feel the truth in that. So what about using the forks on ourselves? Mm-hmm. Is it as good if we try to do it ourselves? And how do we know which fork and which tone and everything that's going to work for us? Well, I would say the the best one to start with for self-care, and actually this one, a lot of people have reported to us that it's helped their digestion, is a a weighted tuning fork that I call the Sonic Slider. And I originally created that more for vanity and and rejuvenation, sort of ironing your face at the end of the day with this vibrating tuning fork handle. Um, But then over the years, people have discovered that it's great for pain, for arthritis, for digestive stuff, for headaches, for TMJ. It's just a really pleasing frequency that's based in the Schumann resonance, the mm-hmm. Earth's natural mm-hmm. background pulse. And uh, and we recommend that people use it every day because you're putting coherent sound and energy into your body. And it helps you to just look and feel better. So that's one is the sonic slider. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just brought you a 528 yes, I love fork. this. I love the feeling of it. It's really, for me, it's all kind of moving and flushing upward from the eyeballs from the sixth chakra up. That's my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a really brightening, Very lifting, bright. lightening mm-hmm. fork. So it's nice to just sit with with meditation if you want yeah. to quiet your mind and sort of bathe yourself in coherent, bright, uplifting. It takes you right out. Frequencies, it'll quiet your mind right away. Oh, yeah. Right away, right? Yeah. And this is what, what we've been talking about. Like people need to learn mm-hmm. this sort of mental discipline of, of quieting the unkind voices in the head, right? Right. Whether it's because you're singing and you're fully present yeah. or you're just sitting listening very deeply, your brain goes into that alpha brainwave state where you're just very present and listening. And that, again, is where health happens when we're whole when we're present, when we're regulated, when we're harmonized, when we're harmonized. Any, we're out of time. Any final thoughts? Hmm. Any final thoughts? Um. Well, use your voice. You use your. You know, explore the beauty of uh, and the the gift to yourself in believing. Everybody can sing. Everybody can sing. I couldn't sing for so long, and this work has opened my voice where I can lead sing-alongs now. Oh, I love lead it. Lead sing-alongs at the end of these workshops. Where even a year ago, Regina, I wouldn't even, I didn't even want to sing in front of Isaac and Torl. And just practicing these tones over and over again has given me so much more confidence and presence 
an enjoyment of my voice. I love it. Yeah. So sing to yourself sing and you can yourself. feel, you can feel the harmonization happening anytime you even start humming to yourself. Your vibration immediately, immediately starts immediately shifting. Starts to shift. So believe that you can have a beautiful voice and make it a goal that to get there. I love it. Well, I'm so glad you took on this new body of work to add to your already amazing body of work. So next time we see you, who knows what, who knows what study you'll have going and what you'll be up to, but I'm very appreciative you took time to come in because you're a busy, busy lady. Yeah. You bet, Regina. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. You can connect with Eileen's work and tools and even find sessions with one of her certified practitioners by going to biofieldtuning.com. You can also check out my other interviews with Eileen here in the Gaia archives. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, everybody. Rama. it's time for music so uh, we're going to play it (laughs) Um, yes let's enjoy this and uh, put it in to the perspective of higher conscious awareness uh and persist uh, in calling in these harmonics, harmonics of color, sound, and vibration to the whole of what's here, all of us, and all of these situations, and call in that flash, everybody. Let's do that. How about that, Rama? Mm, Yes. All right, so this is just a momentito. Where is it? There it is. All right. We're getting there. Um, all right, just a minute. We're just about there. Start over. Yes.org slash giving dots. You are watching NMPBS, KNME and KNMD, a community service of the University of New Mexico and Albuquerque Public Schools. Presentation of this program on NMPBS is locally funded by... When it comes to New Mexico's only dedicated children's hospital, what does delivering more mean? 
It means giving your child access to advanced specialty and primary care right here in the Southwest. Delivering more means using today's technology to perform complex children's medical procedures. It means emergency care, cancer care, behavioral health, and 13 children's health specialties only found at UNM Children's Hospital. UNM Health. Delivering more. James Correction Public Relations knows that great performers deliver great performances. Businesses that rely on the public can rely on JKPR. Advising clients in New Mexico, the U.S., and Europe, we are proud to support great performances on NMPBS. More at jamescorrection.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Hugh Bonneville, wishing you a happy new year from the Austrian Alps. In Vienna today, the Golden Hall is filled with the music of the waltz king, Johann Strauss. Christian Thielemann leads the Vienna Philharmonic in the Musikverein and will visit romantic castles and alpine villages with the Vienna State Ballet. So, join us from Vienna. New Year's Celebration 2024 is next on Great Performances. Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, supporting the arts and education, the Anna Maria and Stephen Kellen Foundation, the Lewester T. Marks Charitable Trust, the Taya Petchek Yervolino Foundation, Jody and John Arnold, the Star Foundation, the Philip and Janice Levin Foundation, Lenny and Peter May, Seaton J. Melvin, the Blanche and Hayward Serker Charitable Trust, the Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith, Ellen and James S. Marcus, and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. Funding for this program is also provided by Lorraine A. Eakin and the late Richard T. Eakin. Happy New Year. I'm Hugh Bonneville, delighted to be back in this magnificent hall for this festive holiday concert. 200 years ago, two young composers and band leaders, Josef Lanner and Johann Strauss, were causing a sensation here in Vienna with a new dance called the Waltz. Starting with the common folk, in no time it caught on with the upper crust. By the time Johann's three sons, Johann, Josef and Edward, got into the family business of composing, the Waltz had spread worldwide. With this, our 40th New Year's concert on PBS today, I think we can attest to its continuing popularity. Here in the Musikverein, we and the Vienna Philharmonic are awaiting the entrance of Christian Tielemann. Today marks his second appearance at this iconic New Year event. For 12 years, the busy maestro has been principal conductor of the Staatskapelle Dresden. But next fall, he'll succeed Daniel Barenboim as general music director of the Staatsoper Unter den Linden in Berlin. Now, let's begin with some sparkling waltz melodies from Johann Junior's Waltmeister operetta. The Waltz King premiered the piece right here in this very hall.
spa town of Bad Ischl, high in the Alps, was the summer capital of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy from the middle of the 19th century until its fall in 1918. And this was its centre, the Kaiser Villa. A wedding present from the Emperor Franz Josef's mother upon his marriage to his teenage first cousin, Elizabeth. Cizi, as she was known to the family, was renowned as one of the great beauties of the 19th century. While the young groom had been educated to be Emperor of Austria from birth, his young and spirited bride had not, growing up in the countryside. A tomboy by nature, this strong swimmer and expert rider felt caged by the rigid demands of the imperial court and could never reconcile herself to the formality of life in Vienna. It was only in the summers in Ischl that she felt truly free and happy. Sadly, early on in their marriage, the young lovers were beset by tragedy. They lost their first child at the age of two. The emperor's brother, Maximilian, was executed in Mexico in 1867, and in 1886, her beloved cousin, the mad King Ludwig of Bavaria, drowned. Oh my God. Finally, in 1889, their only son and heir murdered his mistress and then shot himself. From here on, Elizabeth dressed in black and yearned for death. Until the end of her life, Elizabeth looked back on her youth, on the freedom and closeness to nature she had enjoyed in her childhood, as a paradise lost. Only here at the Kaiser Villa, and in the hideaway the young emperor built for her just up the hill, did she feel at home. Elizabeth called this her magic mountain, and she never lost her fascination for it, the place her husband called his heaven on earth.
They're having a little performance here with ballerinas right in that castle. Here we go. Out on the veranda right now. Elizabethan, Elizabethan gown here, with a little crown on her head. Now she's out in the grass. Woo, beautiful. Here comes her suitor. In their bare feet. They ran into a dance floor inside. Gorgeous, just gorgeous.
in Bad Ischl that the love story of the young emperor and Sisi began. Franz Josef had succeeded to the imperial throne of Austria at the age of 18, after his childless uncle Ferdinand advocated in the wake of the revolutions in 1848. After five years, the future of the dynasty demanded he acquire a wife. Immediately, his domineering mother, once described as the only real man in the Hofburg Palace, sprang into action, planning, what else? A ball for her son's birthday. She wrote to her sister in Bavaria, inviting her 18-year-old niece, Helene, to the celebrations. The 15-year-old Elizabeth tagged along. For the emperor, it was love at first sight, but not for cousin Helena. He wrote in his diary, Oh, but how sweet Cezy is. She's as fresh as a budding almond. And what a magnificent crown of hair frames her face. What lovely soft eyes she has. And lips like strawberries. At the ball, he led the dancing with Elizabeth as his partner. And the next day, his 23rd birthday, she sat beside him at the family lunch. Afterwards, he told his mother that he would marry Elizabeth or no one. He proposed, and in a perfect Cinderella moment of romantic euphoria and emotional confusion, the innocent young girl said, yes. The emperor would regard this villa as a private retreat for his bride and their family, somewhere they could relax, hunting and hiking in the woodlands and hillsides. From 1855, the young Johann Strauss could be found leading his orchestra in the Ischel Park Pavilion. In our next polka, he mimics the song of the bird he heard chirping away on those summer evenings, the nightingale.
communities of the Salzkammergut, the Salt Crown Estate. For over 600 years, right up until the 20th century, the Habsburg salt monopoly was a mainstay of the ruling family's finances. Around 200 years ago, a new use for Ischl's underground wealth was discovered. The therapeutic qualities of its mineral springs transformed the sleepy little community on the Traun and Ischl rivers into a meeting place for European high society. They flocked to the Trink House to drink and bathe in the salty waters. They dined and danced in the core house where innumerable imperial balls, receptions and dinners honoured visiting heads of state and strolled along the riverbank in the latest fashions. Back in the capital, safe drinking water was becoming a concern for the city's ever-increasing population. To satisfy demand, the emperor donated springs on another of his estates to bring pure water 60 miles by gravity from high in the Alps all the way to Vienna's taps. 150 years ago, the Viennese cheered when the emperor turned on the high jet fountain, inaugurating the first Vienna mountain spring water pipeline. Handsome Eddie Strauss celebrated the occasion with his mountain spring polka.
Mm. That's too good. In summer, the intellectual and cultural life of Vienna migrated en masse to the salons and cafes of Ischl. Theatre season ran from mid-June through mid-September, and when in production, the writers, singers and composers would all escape across from the stage door to the Café Ramsauer. Johann Strauss, Franz Lehár, Johannes Brahms and Anton Bruckner were patrons. Brahms and Strauss, often together, at the billiard table. By the 1890s, Strauss was busy composing operettas and conducting only on special occasions. For instance, for the King of Siam, the Emperor arranged for the composer himself to conduct a gala performance of Die Fledermaus in the Ischl Theatre. Franz Josef's journals record that one summer he attended the theatre nine times, usually accompanied by his daughter. One night, writing, I slept well and long in the court box. Let's hope Johann Strauss's new pizzicato polka doesn't awaken his majesty. Thank you. 
Vienna's monumental neo-Gothic-style city hall, the Rat House, officially opened with a ball here in the Festsaal during the carnival season of 1890. Two orchestras were engaged for the evening and played in tandem from opposite ends of the hall. At this end was the Strauss Orchestra, under the direction of Edward Strauss. Commissioned for the occasion was his brother Johann's new City Hall Ball dance. It began with a musical quote from his Blue Danube Waltz, even then a famous symbol of Imperial Vienna. This gave way to a mishmash of tunes, ending with a snippet from Haydn's God Save Our Emperor. The size of this enormous room is nearly that of an American football field and is dotted with statues of the city's mayors over the centuries. Way down at the other end, Vienna's own Hoch und Deutschmeister, or High and German Master Military Band, conducted by its Kapellmeister Karl Zira, was ready to play the second piece commissioned for the ball. Of the two waltzes that night, one from each end of the hall, it is Zira's terrific dance piece, a tribute to the citizens of Vienna that stole the show and remains the more popular to this day. back on the dance floor and there's one, two, three, four, five of them. They're male dancers and here comes the young lady. Oh boy. and they're all kind of observing
Okay, here comes some more ladies. They're all dancing together. Now one of the one of the couples is dancing in the courtyard. Five couples are in the in the uh, ballroom dancing. Ballerinas, ballerinas. Now they're out there on the lanai, then back in the courtroom. They're everywhere. They're center of the Habsburg dynasty's coat of arms. Every August, their banners lined the streets for the celebrations on the emperor's birthday. Franz Josef's parents had come originally to Ischl and its saline baths, looking to become pregnant. Apparently, it worked, because after treatments here, his mother bore three sons in succession. 
Thereafter, they were known as the Salt Princes. The summer after his birth, the baby Franz Josef was brought to Ischl to celebrate his first birthday, a tradition he followed for the next 80 years. Central to the festivities would be the Mass in the little parish church of St. Nicholas with Franz Josef in attendance. On the morning of August the 19th, 1853, the Emperor and his parents went on foot as usual to his birthday Mass. On reaching the church, the public knew something was up when Franz Josef's mother, the Archduchess, stepped aside and motioned to Elizabeth to enter the church ahead of her. With this gesture, it was clear that the young girl was to be the new Empress of Austria. At the end of the service, as the congregation sang the imperial anthem, Franz Josef took Sisi by the hand, led her to the priest and said, Give us your blessing, Father. This is my bride. Special occasions here often featured the great composer Anton Bruckner in performance. He was the organist at the wedding of the emperor's youngest daughter. Her descendants are still in residence at the Kaiser Villa today. Now, to launch his 200th birthday year, the Philharmonic pays tribute to Bruckner with this charming quadrille.
castle, the heart of the Habsburgs' realm. Encapsulated within it is the Gothic Augustinian Church of 1327, when in Vienna, Anton Bruckner often gave organ recitals here. And it was in this church that the wedding of the century took place, just eight months after the engagement of Franz Josef and Elizabeth initial. At seven o'clock on an April evening, in imperial splendour, under 15,000 candles, the Archbishop of Vienna, attended by 70 bishops and priests, married the 23-year-old emperor and his 16-year-old bride. This was a sacred affair, and as such was attended only by the court. No prying eyes of the media in those days. So the public had no idea of what the bride wore. For a century and a half, her descendants kept her magnificent train, but it wasn't until 2021 that a contemporary portrait of the Empress wearing the entire ensemble was discovered. A reconstruction of the gown now appears in Vienna for all to see. A grand banquet followed in the Hofburg, with the 28-year-old Johann Strauss directing the dancing in the palace ballrooms. Now, how about a spirited gallop to wish us all a happy new year? It's by a Danish composer nicknamed the Strauss of the North. a patient must have felt climbing the stairs at Berggasse 19. You'd open the door to the cloakroom, hang up your coat, and enter the waiting room of Dr. Sigmund Freud. Oh. Here, the patient waited anxiously for his or her therapy. On Wednesday evenings, Freud's early followers, physicians, writers, and intellectuals gathered for their weekly psychological society meetings a forerunner of the psychoanalytic associations which today stretch around the world. 
In these rooms, he developed the science that fundamentally changed our understanding of the human psyche. And 125 years ago, he wrote what he considered his most important work, the interpretation of dreams. On the walls are certificates and awards, pictures of colleagues and friends like this one of Albert Einstein, and a rather appropriate engraving, The Nightmare. Like the father of dreams, Josef Strauss explored altered states of consciousness in his Delirium's Waltz, written for the ball of the medical students at the University of Vienna. The introduction portrays acute delirium, but with the first waltz, the hysteria abates and sanity is restored.
deliriums once. I think the orchestra was prescribed the perfect piece to wrap up today's programme. But the festivities are far from over. Tradition demands three encores from our illustrious players. The first is a flashy little ditty that Joseph, an enthusiastic fan of the racetrack, called Jockey Polka. century, many of the luminous figures of music were gone, buried in Vienna's central cemetery. Brahms's grave lies next to that of his friend, Johann Strauss. The Empress Elizabeth spent the first two weeks of July 1898 at the Kaiservilla. Before leaving to visit her family in Bavaria, she and her husband took one last stroll around the park. Two months later, she was stabbed to death in Geneva. You have no idea how much I loved this woman, the emperor cried when told of her murder. Their life together had ended where it had begun, here in Ischl. In the summer of 1914, this study in the Kaiser Villa became the center of world attention after the murder of the Archduke in Sarajevo. At this desk, Franz Josef signed Austria-Hungary's ultimatum to Serbia. Tensions escalated rapidly as other powers intervened, and on July the 28th, he signed the manifesto An Minor Volker, explaining to the people of the empire why he had been forced to declare war. Mm. That year, there would be no birthday celebration. Franz Josef left for Vienna, never to see his beloved issue again. Mm. The Wolf's king, Johann Strauss, died 125 years ago. At a celebration marking the 50th anniversary of his debut, he named the inspiration of his art, My Beloved City, Vienna, in whose soil is rooted my whole strength, in whose air floated the melodies my heart drank in and my hand wrote down. Of those melodies, none is more beloved than his Blue Danube waltz. Mm. 
Deshalb wünschen die Wiener Philharmoniker und ich Ihnen
Christian Tieleman and the Vienna Philharmonic have sent their New Year's greetings of hope, friendship and peace to the world with the Blue Danube Waltz. So now it's time for the maestro to signal to the drummer to launch the new year and it's time for us to clap to the beat of the Radetzky March. In Vienna, I'm Hugh Bonneville wishing you and yours a joyous and healthy 2024. slash great performances. Find us on Facebook and follow us on X. To order the New Year's Concert 2024 on DVD or Blu-ray or the CD, visit shoppbs.org or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. the new year in royally.
properly, as they say. And so to properly say goodnight, we're going to pass this talking stick with the emerald serpent feathered one on it and all the fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, and all the men Huni and the Sasquatch and all the great angels and archangels and all that is. Here it comes, Rainbird, to you. Okay, I got it, I got it. <laughs> Was that good? <laughs> Let's waltz. What was that? Wait, what you play that? <laughs> Hurry up. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed all that music. Oh, I did too. Yeah. Well done. Well, well done. Guys. May peace be with us all. <laughs> I, yeah, I second that. <laughs> I do too. I do. Okay, well, well, that's it then. Um. <laughs> well, we're going to play a little short piece here. Um, I just need a moment to fetch it. It's the last award of the Golden Globe evening. So I'm just going to have to cue it up. So, Okay, well. Give me a moment. Well, lots of gratitude. I'll just say my gratitude for all of us and for the day and while you do that. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, everyone. Um, Well, you're just getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, we're we're good. Oh, well, Rama's got his favorite song at the very, 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 very end, too. Yeah. But, uh, this is almost here now. It's right at the end. It's, it's uh, quite a joy to play it. So here we go. Wait a second. Oh, good. Just back it up for just now. I, uh, just about. I need you to talk to Dick. <laughs> Thank you, Raver. <laughs> Moment here, you guys. Okay, let me turn up the sound again. All right, here we go. Another fueling the next generation. about how they got a role. I found out I got my first big break while I was still a student at Oxford. Oh, I love that story. Yeah, me too. I get to remind everybody that I went to Oxford. Oh, yeah, you got that in there. That's good. Um, I wouldn't have gotten the role of Mouse in Devil in a Blue Dress had I not literally bumped into the director, Carl Franklin, at a doctor's office, where I physically threatened him into casting me as Mouse in Devil in a Blue Dress. Lily Gladstone was waiting to hear about a job tracking giant hornets and then got a call from Martin Scorsese. Did you say giant hornets? For the first time in my life. Yeah. Yes, that's <laughs> <it is>. cool. <laughs> Lee first heard about past lives from an email titled Korean, Do You Speak It? Well, one of these actors is about to have another very cool story to tell. 
Here are the nominees for Best Performance by a Female Actor in a Motion Picture Drama. Annette Benning, Nyad. <laughs> Lily Gladstone, Killers of the Flower Moon. Sandra Hewlett, Anatomy of a Fall. Greta Lee, Past Lives. Carrie Mulligan, Maestro. Kaylee Spaney, Priscilla. And the Golden Globe goes to... I love everyone in this room right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I I don't have words. I um, I just spoke a bit of Blackfeet language, the beautiful community nation that raised me. That encouraged me to keep going, keep doing this. Um, you know, my mom, <laughs> who, um, even though she's not Blackfeet, worked tirelessly to get our language into our classroom. So I had a Blackfeet language teacher growing up. Um, it's about This award belongs to, and it's, I, I hope I don't get counted down too fast because this is an historic one. Um, I'm so grateful that I can speak even a little bit of my language, which I'm not fluent in up here, because in this business, um, Native actors used to speak their lines in English, and then the sound mixers would run them backwards to accomplish Native languages on camera. Um, this is an historic one. It doesn't belong to just me. I'm holding it right now. I'm holding it with all my beautiful sisters and the film at this table over here and my mother, Tantu Cardinal, standing on all of your shoulders. Um, thank you. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Leo. Thank you, Bob. You, um, you are all changing things. Thank you for being such allies. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chief Standing Bear and big old way we know to Wajaje Osage Nation. This, um, I, I, I'm at a loss for what else to say. Thank you, Apple. Thank you, my manager. Thank you, my agent, Jill and Sasha. Thank you to 
all of you, and this is for every little res kid, every little urban kid, every little native kid out there who has a dream, who is seeing themselves represented and our stories told by ourselves in our own words um, with tremendous allies and uh, tremendous trust from with and from each other. So thank you all so much. It's so awesome. <laughs> transform how we see the world. They can help us escape or make us feel like we belong, and at the end of the day, entertain us. While comedies make us laugh, dramas can inspire us to make a change, even if that change is small. And that is why it is my honor to present Best Motion Picture Drama. Anatomy of a Fall. I did not kill him. That's not the part. Killers of the Flower Moon. And kill these men who killed my family. Maestro. If summer doesn't sing in you, then nothing sings in you. If nothing sings in you, then you can't make music. Oppenheimer. This is a national emergency. Remember, it's against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. Past lives. What a good story this is. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. Shut up. The Zone of Interest. Die herrliche Zeit, die mir im Gastgeschmack so hörs verliebten, wird immer mit zu unseren schönsten Urlaubsländern herumgehören. Im Ausgrund steht unser Morgen. And the Golden Globe goes to Oppenheimer! Incredible experience making this film, and this is 
just the smallest portion of the, the many people that, that made the film what it is. And um, what I've loved sitting here hearing everyone talk about their work. Um, and what's so clear is that what we do is collaboration. That's amazing and it's exciting and I find that to be completely magical. Um, so um, I have to say I'm so pleased that Chris has been acknowledged because I just think that what he does is unlike anything anyone else has done. Um, <laughs> You know, these, these amazing actors, but also all of our HODs, but, you know, the PAs, the camera assistants, everybody, you know, did their best on this film. And I think that, you know, Chris sort of brings the best out in people by being the very best himself. Um, and I would love to thank Donna Langley and everybody at Universal. Um, you know, when I on that moment where we sat down with you, I mean, I don't think it was a no-brainer by any stretch of the imagination to make a three-hour talkie movie about, you know, sort of R-rated, by the way, and, uh, you know, about one of the sort of darkest developments in, in our history. And um, I'm really grateful that your faith in us has been rewarded tonight. So thank you, everybody. <laughs> And everybody. All right, so Rama's got our favorite song to complete the evening, everybody. Went a little bit over, but it'll be okay. Here we go. And the world will indeed live as one. We, we can do this, everyone. Thank you for being here with us as we bring these new energies into reality in this world. Uh, we are one. There is only one of us here. Inshallah. Satnam. Satnam Ti. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart, no evil. Live long and prosper, everyone. Namaste. Namaste. Aloha. <laughs>